Ahoy! It is your boy. And welcome to episode 16 of the podcast. This is M. And, uh, uh, dude, this is the first podcast of the year 2020. And here's what's going to happen. On the last episode, I was talking about how I wanted to start recording and be present. Normally, I record so far ahead of everyone that by the time an episode comes out, everything I've talked about happened a month ago. And I'd like to be more um, uh, topical, current, I don't know what the word is, but you know, it's strange for me, for you guys to be hearing this in the new year, and still, at the time of this recording, it is uh, a week since I recorded the last episode, so um, we're still only a week out of, uh, Thanksgiving was a week ago yesterday. But here's what's going to happen. I told myself that I I probably couldn't keep myself from recording for the rest of the year. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to record on my regular schedule. And on this episode, the first episode of 2020 is just going to be one big ass episode of everything I record from here until the new year. I don't know if it's going to be four hours or five hours or three hours or whatever it's going to be, but it's going to be one big ass episode. I'm going to record the episodes like I normally do for an hour and I'm just going to string them together and, uh, It'll just be a marathon fucking podcast episode for the people who can tolerate listening to it. Now, is everyone going to sit through it? Probably not. They're going to get sick and fucking tired of me. But if you're a real fan of this podcast, you're going to love it. So, um, right. So I have to plug shit. So if you want to subscribe to the podcast, you know how to do it. You're smart. You listen to podcasts. This is probably one in a constellation of other podcasts. Uh, that you listen to, so subscribe to this one however you subscribe to podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and Stitcher, and uh, on YouTube, and uh, share it with a friend. If you like it, I'm sure you know someone else you might, so f- think of one person in your life who would like this podcast and uh, and send it to them. Uh, and if you want to connect with my socials, you can at this is M X O X O, and please uh, rate and review the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. If you think it's worth five stars, give it that. If you think it's worth less, do something else with your time. Um, uh, uh, it's not clear to me how, but apparently those things go a long way in helping this podcast reach other people. So, uh, yeah, appreciate all that. Uh, I literally just got off the phone <clears throat> with my one of my best friends. His name is Matt Evans, um, former singer, songwriter, and lead singer of the band called Reddening West out of Austin, Texas. And before that, he had his own project uh, with one other, one other collaborator called Sleepy Holler. Um, recently moved to Portland. Just, uh, you know, when you get older, you, know, you have a lot of friends through your life. And when you get older, you realize that there's really only going to be three if you're lucky, but otherwise just one or two people that you're probably going to carry with you through your whole life. And one of them for me is Matt Evans. He's been there, I think we met when I was like... 19 maybe and we were fast friends then and we've been um incredibly close ever since and the craziest part about our relationship is we we have seen each other maybe twice in the last 15 years or so uh most of our the major, our entire relationship is long distance over the phone and we check in with each other probably you know uh, ha- at least half a dozen times a year but you know probably once a month sometimes more uh, and all of our conversations are like at least an hour, sometimes two hours. We just spoke for like an hour and a half on the phone. And he's one of these people that when you speak with, you go deep with, you know, you immediately go deep. And uh, he's been a supporter of everything I've done, music, podcast, all of that. And we were fucking 
we were having a fucking laugh. And I was saying that from now on, I'm just going to communicate with everybody like it's the freaking podcast. So when he calls me and I answer the phone, I'm just going to say, Ahoy, it's your boy, and welcome to episode 1,286 of the podcast. <clears throat> um, I don't know. I guess you had to be there. But um, the point is, is literally he and I just had one of our epic conversations for like an hour and a half. And at the end of it, I was like, this, this just should have been recorded and been released as a fucking podcast episode because that's exactly what my life is. I mean, one of my favorite things, you know, when I get messages from people who like the podcast, you know, one thing they say consistently, and maybe now that I've said it, that's why, (laughs) you know, uh, but um, even unsolicitedly, or as in, uh, it was, it's unsolicited, but people will tell me that what they like about the podcast is that it feels like they're just chilling with me, that I'm just sort of talking with them. And people who do know me uh, reiterate, reiterate that when they check out the podcast, they say, oh, it's just like talking to you on the phone. And, uh, and that's actually, I'm, I'm, I'm actually, it's rewarding to hear that. That's kind of exactly what I'm going for. And, um, and dude, we were just fucking going through it all. And and I think it's partly why I want these, um, podcasts to be more timely, to not be, not have so many banked because I would like you to hear things uh, as they're happening to me. Because uh, if you'd like to check these things out, I'd like to experience them more in real time. Um, not that it really makes a difference, but there's something about you guys hearing about what's going on in my life a month late or, you know, whether it's movies I've seen or, or what I'm into. I don't know. I'd like us to be able to check these. If, if, you, if you're like me and you happen to sort of take recommendations from people, um, either personality or podcast uh, hosts that you enjoy, um, I'd like us to be checking these things out at the same time. So, uh, but I think the, the the major part of our conversation was... If you're like me, you'll go on YouTube and all of a sudden it'll recommend something to you. It's like, oh, check out this video. And you're not entirely sure why it's there. It's probably because it's trending and based on some algorithmic thing. They're, you know, they, they just assume that a fucking um, um, mid-30-year-old white dudes are, are watching this thing. So uh, you'll probably like it too. <laughs> and of course you do because you click on it. And then the minute you do, your your entire fucking YouTube suggested videos is, is the fucking same shit. And you go down some crazy rabbit hole. Dude, for me, it's been interrogation videos. And I hadn't really thought about this. <clears throat> well, a few things. It starts out, I mean, the, and I actually saw this, I think, about a year ago. So it could be that this recent resurgence is just like a trace element of, of a video that I watched uh, about a year ago. But it's this three-part uh, investigation or really presentation of uh, all the public footage surrounding the interrogation of, I think his name is Charles Watts. Charlie Watts. I can't remember. Uh, If you Google this, I'm sure you'll find it. But it's a gentleman living maybe in Colorado or something who basically killed his wife and I believe his two daughters. And um, of course, it's it's a gruesome crime, obviously. But the fascinating part of the videos is it begins with the, um, you know, police officers have to carry cameras now or they, you know, they have these sort of I don't know, like lapel cameras that they wear. Body cams, that's what they're called. They wear these body cams. And from the minute the police officer shows up uh, at uh, this person's house, um, apparently his wife's best friend who was expecting to see this person didn't call the police because this was highly irregular. Police officer comes to the house and it's just the entire body cam footage from the time the officer arrives, uh, has to call the husband and call him over to the house um, to this person's eventual uh, arrest and interrogation 
over the disappearance of his wife and children. It's, it's just fucking fascinating to see someone, you know, not, not in a movie, but in a very real sense, someone who's guilty of a crime, try to navigate their initial police encounter. What is their story? Um, you know, what explanation do they give for their behavior or, you know, what, what story did they come up with? You know, because when you're committing a crime, especially a crime of this magnitude, it, you just can't imagine that it's never going to come up. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's not like, uh, it's not like shoplifting some gum or pocketing a candy bar. You, if you get away with it, you're probably never going to hear about it. But when you kill someone and you think, oh, my wife and children are disappearing. How am I going to explain this to people in our lives? And by the way, no one will ever see them again. What possible explanation can I come up with? And to watch them, and by the way, you don't have a lot of time, right? I mean, this is, I think it was literally later that day. He kills his wife and children, like uh, drags them out to his truck at some, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know how he covered their bodies, but like first thing in the morning before the sun rises, he takes their bodies into a truck and like drive. I think he buries his wife one place and takes his two daughters and puts them in like, um, like a water reservoir somewhere or something like that, that morning. And then later that day, the police are at his goddamn house. And you think, what, what, what story did he formulate in his mind? And, um, and to be honest, this was the video I watched about a year ago. So I, I, I don't remember all the specifics, but I'm sure you can imagine the fascinating part of it is just watching someone sweat bullets through this experience. And they're, they're trying desperately to appear innocent when of course Well, I want to be fair. I was about to say when it's obvious that they're lying. The truth is you're watching this entire thing knowing full well that they're guilty. So it's it's hard to really know if it's apparent to you based on their behavior that they're guilty. But you have to think that the police officers and everybody involved knows from the jump, given their experience, that this person is, one, certainly the prime suspect, but also almost certainly guilty. And everything that they're saying is a lie because it just doesn't fucking make sense. But the thing that kept coming up in our conversation, because I've gone down the rabbit hole with this whole fucking thing. I've, I've probably watched maybe half a dozen different interrogation videos um, about people with different crimes. And um, and they're all the fucking same. The person comes in, they have their story. The police officers have these sort of interrogation techniques that they fucking keep coming back to. But they keep circling the story over and over again. And they get the person to repeat this lie over and over again about what happened. And then usually at some point they'll inject what they've already known, that they have more information than they've conveyed. So they've gotten this person to incriminate themselves by one committing to a story that's false, thinking that it was going to be the story that the investigators were able to sort of, I don't know, uh, take away and sort of hum over and think about, not knowing that the investigators already had evidence that proved that the story was a lie to begin with. You know, they trap you in a lie. They give you a chance to tell the truth and see if you tell it. If not, they get you to sort of reiterate the lie over and over and then present you with evidence that demonstrates, obviously, that everything you said is a lie and what are you going to do in the face of this information and hopefully confess. But the the classic moment, I said, it's sort of like when I I used to watch... Do you guys remember the show To Catch a Predator? And I think it was Dateline Dateline NBC, and it's the host was Chris Hansen. And for some reason, as I'm mentioning him, I think something came up. I don't know. I don't know. I don't want to besmirch the guy. I think he may have been me too'd, or something else happened recently. But Chris Hansen was the the host of a, a wildly popular segment on Dateline NBC called To Catch a Predator. 
And uh, if you already know it, it's going to sound silly that I'm explaining it. But if you don't, um, it was uh, a sting operation that they would do. They would stake out in a home in some suburb. And they used this, um, I, don't, I think they were called Online Justice or Youth Justice or something. But they used this organization. They would basically have someone pretending to be a, a, a teenage girl or boy, but to be a child in chat rooms online. And these children would be solicited for sex or these sort of sexual encounters by adult, uh, adult males online. And, um, this, um, I'm trying to think of the word. Uh, I don't know. This, this fake teenager, this person posing as a teenager would get the adult to commit to coming out to some location and bring something. And, and, and they have these chat logs of all the sexual things that they're going to do to each other. And then the person shows up. And as soon as they show up, Chris Hansen steps out and, uh, asks someone, you know, why, what, what are they doing here? I hadn't really thought about it, but it's, it's exactly what happens in the interrogation. He doesn't come out and say, oh, I'm Chris Hansen with Dateline NBC. What are you doing here? The person usually thinks that this is like either the father of the person that they're coming to see or they're, or they're unclear. So they set the person down for about 10, 15 minutes asking them, well, what are you doing here? And of course, the person always has the same fucking bullshit story about, oh, I'm just here to hang out. Oh, who are you here to see? Oh, I'm here to see... Um Oh, I'm here to see Jennifer. Oh, how do you know Jennifer? Oh, we, we started talking in a chat room. Okay, and what are you doing seeing a you know 13-year-old girl? Oh, she seemed nice and just wanted to hang out. And what were you guys going to do? Oh, we were going to watch a movie, um, eat some pizza or something. Uh, and, uh, and yeah, we were just going to hang out. And so, of course, they get them roped into this absurd story about their plans to be there. And this is my favorite fucking moment. They've reiterated the story three times. They're adamant. And dude, this is the best part is they get indignant. They'll say like, I mean, you, because you wouldn't be here for some sort of sexual reason. I mean, you can understand how I might interpret this, right? You coming, Dan, usually these guys have drived across fucking three states to fucking be there, which is insane to me. But the guys get indignant like, oh, no, no, no. I know, I know how it looks, but no, 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 no. I have daughters myself and dude, I would never, I would never, I, 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 how 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 dare you i would never do anything like that i'm a christian you know they get on their fucking moral high horse or whatever and after they fucking dug their heels in on this like 15 times chris hansen goes well well i'm chris hansen from dateline nbc and the fucking cameras come out and they go and i have the chat log right here and they're like oh fuck here you are bloviating on your goddamn moral high horse about how you would never, not knowing that this person had 15 fucking printout pages of you saying exactly what you were coming over to do to a 13-year-old child. And dude, the shit that people say is fucking unbelievable. They get super graphic about the sexual stuff they want to do, and you just think, who are these people? Obviously, they're fucking sick. Actually... I don't want to be too dismissive. I mean, don't get me wrong. They're fucking sick. But uh, I don't know. For some reason, I don't want to do that thing where I just sort of write these fucking people off. I mean, they're, 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 they're con- let's just say, to be generous, let's say they're severely conflicted people. <laughs> they got major problems. But um, that moment of the, oh, fuck, and then their tactic immediately fucking changes. It's like, uh, well, I don't know. I'm trying not to spoil this movie I saw recently. There's a moment like this in the movie Parasite that I mentioned uh, that I saw recently with my girlfriend. Great Korean film that uh, if you haven't seen it, you should. But it's sort of like a who's got the gun 
thing. You know what I'm saying? It's easy when you have the gun and you're pointing it to someone's fucking bark orders. But if you know, it's like that moment where they sweep the leg and now they got the they sweep your leg, you fucking drop the gun, they grab it and point it at you, and immediately you go, oh, oh, wait, 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 oh, now the shoe's on the other motherfucking foot, dude, huh? Now what are you gonna do, dude? I know I'm going left. To, I'm going off here, but when I think about that, there's literally out here in um, in the Bay Area, there was just this tragic story um, of a guy who was stabbed on BART, uh, which is our, just think of like a subway. BART is Bay Area Rapid Transit. It's a train slash subway system that goes around the Bay Area to commute people between the East Bay and San Francisco and, and all that sort of shit. But, at one of the on one of the bar trains, there was a, a guy. I think he was recently paroled, but basically, uh, uh, he he was a homeless man who was stealing the shoes off of a sleeping passenger on the train. And a good Samaritan stepped forward and pulled a knife on this guy, saying, "Don't take this guy's shoes." You know, defending the sleeping passenger who was having his shoes stolen, and the fucking guy attacks him takes the dude's knife away from him in the altercation and stabs him with his own knife and kills him. Now, I realize this is not the same thing because the guy was trying to do a good thing. You know, it's not like the shoes on the other foot, like, yo, now you're going to get what you deserve. But that moment of when the power shifts, you know, where you're sitting there thinking you're, you're sitting there comfortable. You think you're getting away with something and all of a sudden the fucking shit shifts and you go, oh, fuck. Now I'm the one in the fucking crosshairs. I'm also thinking, when you have these moments where you're sitting there and you're the fucking to catch a predator guy, you know, of course, you know, when whether you're burying the bodies, whether you're fucking getting in your car to drive across three fucking states to see a 13-year-old girl that you think you're going to take her virginity and fucking film it, by the way. Dudes come with condoms and webcams and fucking large pizzas and fucking ice cream. Dude, it's fucking creepy as fuck. But when you're getting in the car, you have to be thinking... I, I I bet they waffle. They they must say, "Oh, dude, this is crazy. You can't do this." But they think they think they're gonna get away with it. Do you know what I mean? They're praying that they're gonna get away with it. <clears throat> and when they show up and it fucking it, and it and it fucking turns and exactly what they didn't want to have happening is happening. They just must be thinking, "Oh fuck!" Like the one that came up. I'm thinking of two things. There was one video I watched of a of a police officer. She was a detective. In like the fucking mid-80s, she kills the wife of her ex-boyfriend. They have some sort of altercation. She goes to the guy's house, finds his wife, and fucking like pistol whips her and fucking kills her. And um, and uh, the, the mystery was unsolved. It was basically was written up to like a, a, like a, um, a, a botched break-in. Just by weird coincidence, there were other break-ins in that neighborhood in the same night, and they just assumed that these guys broke in, killed this girl, and, and fucking bounced. The woman got away with it for 25 years, was herself a detective in the police force. And she basically, I guess, I, think, I don't know if it was L.A., but whatever the police department was, was reviewing cold cases, you know, to, to increase their solved rate, or whatever the fuck you want to call it, to, to improve their stats they were revisiting cold cases to sort of try to close them and solve them. And because there was new technology, there was new, they could like re-examine the evidence and, and, uh, and for whatever reason, point, the evidence pointed to this detective. And they call her in, uh, not for questioning on this case, but under the guise 
of uh, consulting with her on an unrelated case that given her experience and expertise, she'd be able to advise the investigators on. And the minute they fucking sit her down, you know, uh, they, I don't know, I don't know what name they use, but they say, oh, do you know Meredith so-and-so? And immediately she goes into, I don't know. Maybe. And the look on her fucking face is priceless. And dude, when I watch this shit, it's like I get so goddamn nervous. It's like when I'm back in, dude, my heart starts to race. Because I feel their fucking fear. They're, you can literally feel their mind racing. And the only thing I have to compare it to is like when I first started performing and you're fucking terrified. And, you know, you sign up for an open mic or something and you're just stewing in your own juices waiting for your name to be called. And until it is, your leg is just fucking trembling. You don't know if you want to fucking shit your pants or throw up. And it's just, one, you've never felt more alive in your fucking life. Not in a good way. I just mean sensorially. <laughs> your senses are just, you're firing on all cylinders. On You're firing on all cylinders. And your mind is fucking racing. And the crazy part is this strange disconnect between, I mean, I guess I can't pretend to know how they think they're coming across, but the words that they're saying and the way they're presenting themselves, because they are trying so hard to be nonchalant. Every question they ask this girl, oh, do you remember this? Do you remember what you're doing then? And oh, do you know this person? And, and, and of course, the cops have all the fucking information. And to watch this person dance and try to be big and be, oh, well, geez, I don't know. Oh, gosh. Oh, I don't know. That was so long ago. I mean, I, what's this about? You know, keep trying to fucking figure out what the fuck exactly is going on to get their bearings on the situation that's completely out of their fucking control. And by the way, it's been 25 fucking years. I mean, I... I Unless you're just criminally insane and you have no empathy, maybe, dude, maybe some people do these things and they literally don't lose sleep over it. You know, maybe they, you know, people who are truly insane have no fucking compassion. Like, I did watch an interrogation video of this, uh, like, incel guy. And I think it was, like, in Ontario, Canada, who, like, weaponized a fucking van and just drove down the sidewalk and killed, like, 16 people. And they talked to this guy and he's a fucking automatron he's a complete fucking robot and he talks about what he did completely dispassionately without any remorse very matter-of-factly i guess in a way given their reaction that's clearly not who they are i mean the fact that they're so nervous and heightened for the last 25 years they must have been i mean it's it's like crime and punishment right? Or uh, The Telltale Heart. Do you know that story by Edgar Allan Poe? Dude, of course you do, because you're smart like your boy. If you listen to this podcast, you're smart. (laughs) You're a fucking card-carrying, intelligent motherfucker if you listen to this podcast. Of course you know The Telltale Heart, but in case you don't. Right, I think this guy kills someone. It's an Edgar Allan Poe short story, or maybe even a poem. I don't fucking know. Maybe I'm not that smart, actually. But, you know, the story is that this guy kills someone, I think, I think he buries the dead body beneath his floor, floorboards, floorboards, and he's so racked with guilt, he just hears the guy's heart thumping, getting louder and louder, and uh, and he thinks that the you know he thinks the investigators can hear 
the heart beating and it's going to give him away. And he gets so terrified of this hallucination that he eventually confesses to the crime or something like that. But, uh, you know, if you killed someone 25 years ago and you're just getting away with it, you have to be fucking tortured. Dude, it's not my point. I think Adam Carolla may have made this, but it's like OJ Simpson gets away with murder. And look, I don't pretend to know what really fucking happened, but maybe I'm just fucking going along with the fucking um, common thinking on this without really knowing what the fuck happened. But I think it's pretty safe to say that OJ killed those people, <laughs> killed Nicole Brown Simpson and, and, and what's his butt and, uh, and, uh, and got away with it. And you look at his latter life where he's fucking like, what did he like? Didn't he like uh, break into someone's hotel room with like two other sort of goons and like rough a guy up to sort of reacquire some of his own merchandise or memorabilia or merchandise or some shit. I think Adam Carolla made this point. Like, look, when you get away with a crime like that in some psycho spiritual way, you want to pay retribution for that. You sort of, you may put yourself in a situation where you get caught. Anyway, I'm sort of going off the rails here. That's not really what's happening in this um, particular case. But the point is, is that you must be racked with guilt. On some level, you must be suffering. I can't, unless you're a fucking automatron, you can't kill someone 25 years ago and not live with it every single goddamn day of your life, waiting for the heat around the corner. Dude, you're like Robert De Niro in heat. You're just waiting for the heat around the fucking corner to fucking run. Do you know what I'm saying? And dude, you think about 25 years, how many of you listening to this are even 25 years old? Or if you are, are you in your mid-30s? Are you in your 40s? Dude, over half your life, you've spent getting away with this crime, and on a fucking average day of work, you fucking walk in and someone goes, hey, and that split moment where everything you didn't want to have happen in your life is fucking staring you in the face, I can't even imagine. I can't even begin to fucking imagine. In a way, I sort of talk about this in episode nine. Oh, really? That moment of just utter disbelief. You know, the moment you're on a plane and it begins to plummet, there has to be a sort of shifting or changing of the guard of your own reality, right? Where you think, this can't be happening. You know, this sort of twilight, gear-shifting, Inception-like... You know, I'm picturing the fight in Inception where they're fighting and the world's sort of spinning. Or, you know, the room is spinning and they're up on the walls. And so just your entire world is fucking shifting, right? Um, yeah, this complete polar reversal of your sense of reality is fucking changing. And, uh, and just being in that interrogation room and someone bringing up the one name you thought you never wanted to fucking hear in your life and just being like, oh shit. And it's that moment where Chris Hansen goes, I have the chat log right here. And you go, oh fuck. Or one video I watched was this police officer who was, uh, at the end of his shift, he was fucking in his cruiser or whatever. And he would like log out of his system and he would do these traffic stops that he wouldn't call in. And he would turn off his thing. He wouldn't run plates. He wouldn't do shit. He would just pull women over and apparently um, sexually intimidate them for like sexual gratification. Like, have you seen the movie Bad Cop with Harvey Keitel? It's a fucking crazy movie. Um, I don't know that it's a good movie. It's just fucking, it's, it's fucking crazy. But like in the beginning of the movie, and I, there's actually two different versions. Um, 
I think in the in the in like the re-edited version, it may happen in the middle of the movie. But years ago, when I first tried to watch this movie and didn't fucking finish it, I remember it being toward the beginning. And I watched it in the last few years, and I was like, "Why is this happening in the middle of the movie?" But the point is, is he pulls these two girls over, and to avoid uh, a traffic ticket, I think one of them gives him a blowjob like through the window of the car. But um, that's the kind of shit that this guy would do, apparently. And uh, and they're asking him, hey, do you know anything about these traffic stops? Because we heard these complaints from these women. And, and what's your story? And what happened? And he tells his whole fucking story. And then they go, oh, and by the way, we have video. And actually, you got to get up. I mean, in some way, you got to get up, give it up to this guy. He didn't break at all. He was very consistent. But you know in his head, he was just like, oh, fuck. Just march into the fucking guillotine. Like, you know you're fucked. You know you're doomed. And some people break quickly and they just fucking, you know, they go, all right, this is what we're doing. Like, in a way, you know, I started off talking about the guy who killed his wife and kids. Of course, they had to fucking interrogate the shit out of this guy and break him down. And he took a polygraph and lied. And then they present him with the polygraph results and he's denying it. When they finally get him to confess in fairly short order, it's like, all right, here we go. And they fucking cuff him and take him away. Um, some people, they fucking hold out, you know? And interrogators are just like, they know they're fucked, but it's like they can't bring themselves to, I don't want to say accept the reality. It's hard for me to articulate what I'm saying exactly. It's just strange to me that some people... And look, it's not like they fucking stole a candy bar. These people often tortured and killed someone. Dude, sometimes children. And you think, how can this person be so simultaneously fucking savage and ruthless and brutish? Do you know what I mean? And then when they get caught, sometimes they're reduced to like a sniveling, weak... Um, they're just a fucking shriveled mess. Do you know what I mean? And it's for them. It's for themselves, obviously. They'll deny the story up and down, but they're like a they're like a caged animal, and they seem so weak. And you think, how did a fucking weakling like this summon the the fucking aggression to capture somebody or subdue them and then fucking kill them? or live with the knowledge knowing that they did, this person seems to have no constitution. Do you know what I mean? But maybe that's just, um, you know, the psychology of a fucking psychopath. Maybe it's possible for them to have absolutely no regard for other people. And look, not just antisocial. I mean, you're talking about capturing and killing and burying a fucking child or something in a shallow grave. And then when it comes to their own self-preservation, they're a fucking mess. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I mean, so, like, like as a counterpoint, I watched this like five-minute video of this dude admitting to killing his cellmate for being a pedophile, and the dude had no fucking qualms about it. And you go, oh, this guy's fucking scary. <laughs> they go, hey, tell me what happened. He goes, yeah, the dude told me he was in here on suspicion of being a pedophile, and I told him to shut up. I didn't want to hear about it. And I don't know if he wanted to like spill his guts or get it off his chest or whatever. But I basically told him to shut up. And if he didn't, I was going to hit him and he wouldn't be quiet. So I struck him a few times, laid him out on his bed, fucking took his shoelaces off his shoes and fucking strangled him with him. And they go, and how do you feel about that? He's like, well, I feel like he got what he deserved. And you're like, damn. 
Holy shit. This dude's not fucking splitting hairs. He's qualifying nothing, dude. He just fucking lays it out there. And you're like, okay. Well, hmm, I wonder if he babysits. <laughs> and then you have this person who fucking, like, uh, plotted to kill somebody. I, I don't know. Maybe, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not a criminal psychologist. Although, you know, it's so funny you watch it like this. Dude, and I was, I was telling my friend Matt this. You know, as a crisis line counselor, I mean, you sit on the line with people and you talk about you know you talk about incredible shit things you never would have anticipated talking with a fucking stranger about or someone opening up to you about about either what their experiences or how they're feeling and you find yourself in in what sounds like an impossible conversation about what somebody's life is or what they've experienced and you know you're not really affected by it and i don't mean that it doesn't touches you i don't i don't i don't mean that it doesn't touch you and i don't mean that there's no emotional response. I mean, there's sympathy and all that stuff, but you're not, I don't know. Sometimes you're surprised the types of conversations that you've never had that you find yourself having with ease. And when I was watching these interrogation videos, I'm like, you're, these, these interrogators are sitting across from somebody that they know. They already know that this person tortured and sexually assaulted and then murdered a, a child, sometimes multiple children or multiple people. And they're sitting across from, and at first just being completely conversational and friendly. And, uh, even when they're getting into the details of the crime, like, I don't know, they're, they're just, um, yeah, they just have a certain constitution. And there's a part of me that's watching it thinking, Oh, I could do this. <laughs> I don't know if it's true or not. I mean, I watch fucking figure skating and I also say, Oh, they make it look so easy. Or I watch gymnasts and I go, oh, I feel like I could do that. Well, that's part of the fucking magic. Dude, it's like magic. You watch sleight of hand shit and you think, oh, it looks so effortlessly. Not knowing that, dude, did I talk about this when I was talking about being a server? I was talking about my Thanksgiving dinner experience, maybe on the last episode. And I was talking about as a server, your job is to be like a duck in water. When you see a duck floating on the water, they're just sort of still but you don't see their feet fucking flapping under the water going a mile a minute. You know, that's what performing is. That's what magic is. You know, you make it look like you're not doing any, anything at all. Meanwhile, there's a fucking million moves that are happening under the nose of the people who are fucking watching you. Do you know what I mean? And music performance can be that way. Theater can be that way. Acting can be that way. Um, it's what the interrogator, in a way, dude, this is actually the funny part. It's, it is what the interrogator is doing as well. He's coming across, across as conversational, nonchalant, non-combative, and he's fucking playing fucking grandmaster level chess in his head. You know, he's thinking 15, 30 moves ahead about how this is going to play out and what to do. Meanwhile, he's sitting across from an amateur who's unprepared, who's trying and failing to do the same thing. To come across as nonchalant, to be relaxed. Meanwhile, their fucking head is, their, their, their thoughts are fucking going a mile a minute and they're completely transparent. That's probably what it is, honestly. You know, and it's easy to think you know what you would do in these types of situations. So, you know, like I bet there's criminals who watch these videos as well and think, well, now I've seen all these videos. I know exactly what to do when I'm in an interrogation. I don't think you can fucking prepare for it. You know, it'd be like watching a bunch of music performances or, dude, or stand-up comedy. That's the better fucking example. It's like watching a, bu- a bunch of stand-up comedy thinking, oh, well, I- I've seen a ton of stand-up comedy. I'm pretty confident I could go up there and do it myself. Oh, yeah? <laughs> I'd like to see that. My guess is you're going to go up there and, and you're going to be humbled very fucking quickly. 
Anyway, I bet it's the same way with police interrogation. <clears throat> but again, my favorite part is the fucking... The moral high horse that people take, or the incredulousness, the, the, the incredulous response they have to the accusation when it's first broached. The first confrontation that an interrogator has with a, with a, uh, with a person of interest, with a suspect... And, and and it's like with Chris Hansen with the sexual predators. I mean, you're not here to have sex, or you. And, oh no 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 how, no no of course of course not no no not me. No, that's that's crazy. I would never do a thing like that. No 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 no. Meanwhile, the fucking chat log is right there, dude. I think it was actually one of the channels. One of the channels that had these other videos also had this sort of psychological analysis or think piece about the Jussie Smollett case. Do you guys know that one? You may not know that, dude, this is what fucking sucks about society, right? Like, there's so much shit that goes on all the time that you literally fucking can't keep track of it. Like, these mass shootings. You hear names like Parkland. Or, um, I mean, for me, like, Columbine is, like, the archetype. Um, But they happen so frequently now. You know you know the names. You know that it was a shooting. But you fucking don't know anything about it. They're so fucking commonplace. Um, Oklahoma City, et cetera, et cetera. The point is, is that Jussie Smollett was the actor on Empire who paid the two black dudes to beat him up and, and sold the story to the, to the public as if it was a hate crime by two MAGA hat wearing white dudes who put a noose around his neck and said that this is MAGA country. <clears throat> there was this great video that was like a think piece about his, um, about uh, about the psychology of a person who goes through something like that, but the, the, the I, I wish I could remember what it was called. Um, anyway, it doesn't matter. I'm sure if you just search around on YouTube for something like that, you'll probably stumble on it. But there's a great, um, you know, they show an interview. I think it was with ABC News. Of course, he's sitting across from another anchor. This this um, black woman, this woman of color, and they always fucking have the anchor of color fucking sit across from people when it's. I guess it's because they don't want the square white dude to be sitting across from someone, you know, broaching these topics. And I think if you had a white dude sort of asking the hard questions, it would seem insensitive. You know, it'd be too easy to invalidate the conversation or whatever. So they just get the black anchor to do it. And um, and um, I think it just reads better. You know what I mean? <clears throat> but they're talking, and we already, I mean watching this in hindsight, we already know that dude's fucking lying, but they're asking him questions like, um, I think the dudes who uh, at that time were still at large. Um, and they were saying, well, they'll probably never be caught. You know, what do you, what do you want out of all this? And he's like fucking teary eyed and all that shit saying, I just, you know, I want the truth. You know, I just want the truth to come out. And it's like, you know, I'm thinking, Oh dude, how fucking ironic. That's a very interesting choice of words that you're using considering or knowing what we know now. But of course, this person standing on his moral high horse about how... Because even at the time, there was skepticism. I mean, the the, the story goes, and I, I don't know all the details, but the broad strokes of the story are something like Jesse Smollett's in Chicago in the winter, and he's like going to Subway or something, and basically two guys call, call to him from across the street and basically assault him and uh, um, rough him up and, and put a noose around his neck, and, and they're wearing MAGA hats, and they tell him it's MAGA country, and... And they, I don't know, they're supposedly beat the shit out of him. And he, he took photos of himself or whatever. He has a couple cuts and bruises. But even other people were like, dude, what the fuck? What happened? How did, how did two guys jump you and that's the only damage you have? Like, if you get punched in the face, you get fucking punched in the face. Do you know what I'm saying? 
if you get roughed up, dude, you look completely differently. Like, dude, your boy, dude, one time, and I know we're fucking going off track here, but it's still a good story. One time your boy was in Phoenix, Arizona, and I was at this, uh, I don't want to call it a house party. It was just like kind of a get together. There was maybe 12 people there. And uh, I was with my boys, you know, I was rolling deep with some of my friends, or I sh- actually I should say I was rolling shallow. I wasn't rolling that deep, but we were rolling shallow with some of our friends. And the other half of the party was like six other folks. Some of them we knew, and there was these fucking couple dudes who n- I didn't fucking know. But one of the dudes was dating one of the girls that we kind of were acquaintances with or whatever. But we're all chilling on this dude's back patio. And I think your boy still had a shaved head at the time. Had, or had just started shaving his head at the time. And I'm sitting there in this kind of like broy, y is not the right word. I just mean he's kind of a jockey, big dude. And I'm sitting across from him. And he's saying something. And I, he starts to veer into some kind of some racist shit. And he just looks at me and goes, you know what I'm talking about, though. And I went, no, I don't. <laughs> I, I wish I remember what he was saying, but I literally don't know, didn't know what the fuck he was talking about. I was like, nah, what do you mean? And he, and he like, you know, rubs his own head like he looks at me like he thinks I'm a fucking skinhead or something. And I was like, nah, dude. And for some reason, I had my buddy Jake sitting to my left and uh, it got kind of fucking heated for a second. And at some point, I, I think he was already drunk, but he like, he senses that there's some fucking tension and he's like hey man let's just squash this man let's go inside and take some shots and we were both kind of like okay so we go in with this dude and we're sitting in the freaking living room and this dude's sitting between me and my my buddy jake and i forget what's fucking going on but he's like talking to my buddy jake and he's getting kind of like confrontational or combative or something oh i think he was saying something to my friend jake like all right man here's what's gonna happen you're gonna take this shot and I'm i'm gonna punch you in the face and I'm like, oh, shit. And so at the time, the thing to do, I mean, because I hung out with a group of friends that like fought all the time. And not that your boy fought, but it was just, I mean, it was just something that was happening all the time. So what, what people would do is like you would, I was a smoker at the time. You would just take your lighter and put it in your, in your right hand. Because it's like you don't have brass knuckles, but apparently punching someone with a light in your hand, you're not going to fucking break your fingers or whatever. So I'm just like, oh, shit, I might have to fucking hit this dude. Like, if he hits my friend Jake, I'm going to have to do something about it. So I'm like, oh, I might have to hit this guy. So I got my lighter in my right hand. And then the guy fucking turns to me and he goes, I'm sure he starts saying shit. I'm like, and you're going to take this shot or I'm going to punch you in the face. And he looks at my hand and he sees my lighter in it. And he's like, hey, hey, why is your lighter in your hand? I was like, no reason. And he's like, oh, you were going to punch me huh and i was like nah <laughs> dude you don't know, dude it was exactly like the fucking dude with the knife i fucking drew on this fucking guy thinking i was gonna get the fucking jump on him and then he looks at me and goes hey what's that knife doing in your hand i'm like nothing <laughs> talk about fucking humbled the minute the fucking the shit fucking came down to it i was like Ugh, i wilted and he's like you're gonna punch me huh and i was like nah dude and I don't know how it fucking happened, but he stands up, snatches my own lighter away from me, and fucking hits me in the goddamn face. He punches me right square in the fucking jaw. And, uh, and I, dude, to be honest, I didn't even fucking feel it. And I do, I think it's like when people like get shot in war, they say, oh, it wasn't until I saw the wound that I realized I had been shot. I think I was just like adrenaline or whatever. And the dude's like towering over me. He fucking cracks me in the face. And my buddy Jake stands up, and it's not really entirely clear what happens to me, but I remember, I do, I think he hits me a couple times, actually, and he takes a break, and I think my buddy Jake at that time ran to get our friends, or whatever, thinking it was good, like, they needed to fucking help me. And I was fucking laughing, dude, because the guy goes, 
Now I'm going to hit you with my weak hand. Okay, so he punches me with his right hand, and then he moves the lighter into his right hand and goes, I'm going to punch him with my weak hand. And he punches me with his right hand again now with the lighter in it. So drunk. But, um... But, uh... Right after he hits me again, like, four of my friends who are bigger, and, like I said, my friends were fucking scrappy. These dudes used to fight all the fucking time. They fucking jump over the couch and grab this guy, and they don't start beating him up or anything. They just, like, restrain him. And I think one of the girls just, like, grabs me by the arm and, like, pulls me into the backyard. And for whatever reason, I'm standing in the backyard by myself just thinking, like, what the fuck happened? And there's this fucking crazy moment where I just fucking... I guess the guy, like, broke free of their fucking hands and, like, ran to the fucking glass door and was, like, trying to get at me. And my friends fucking tackle him again. And they basically, like, just, like, subdue and calm the guy or whatever. And then we just fucking bounce the fuck out of there. And me and my buddy Jake, our spot at the time was Denny's. And so we're at Denny's. And we're sitting there. And I'm feeling my face... Dude, it's already swollen the fuck up. And I'm looking at my friend Jake like, dude, is it bad? And he's just like, ho, 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 dude. <laughs> I mean, immediately, the dude punched me and my fucking face swelled like I just got my fucking wisdom teeth pulled. You know what I'm saying? And it was that way for a fucking week. I remember going to this party like two days later and all my friends were like, dude, what the fuck happened to you? And I was like, yeah, I got punched. Um, Just to fucking round this story out. My whole point about that is, dude, you don't get jumped by dudes without being fucked up. You don't get a couple paper cuts on your fucking chin. You know what I'm saying? You get fucked up. But uh, turns out that dude who punched me was just paroled from prison for, I guess, like, his friend had, like, hit on his former girlfriend at the time, and he just waited till the homie fell asleep and set him on fire. <laughs> I don't know how my fucking or how anyone I know fucking hooked up with this guy. But I was like, oh, that makes sense. Yeah, the type of guy who would just fucking do it. And by the, by the way, at the time I was like, like 17. And the dude was like in his late, probably, I don't know. It's hard to judge age at that age. When, when you're 17, it's, everyone looks fucking older. I assume he was in his mid, mid or late 20s. The dude was fucking gigantic though. And when I heard that story, I was like, oh, that makes sense. And then the worst part is somebody goes, oh, that's nothing. His brother is serving life in jail. And I was like, why? And they said, that guy shot and killed his best friend with a shotgun, put that guy in the trunk of his own car, and then set it on fire. And it was like, oh, that's fucking crazy. So anyway, how did your boy ever fucking end up hanging out with people like this? I have no goddamn idea, but, uh, but that's, that's what happened. But anyway, the point I'm trying to say is people thought Jesse Smollett was full of fucking shit. Cause if he was really jumped, he would have been fucking bruised. But of course, in the interview, they're asking about, well, what do you say to people who, what do you say to people who, um, say that you, you might be making this up? And of course he fucking, his lips start quivering and he's like, I think it just says a lot about where we're at as a society and, and victims need to be believed. And, um, yeah, dude, fucking sociopathic. I, I diverge. I don't know exactly where I was going with that shit. But as I'm talking about it, <clears throat> I was saying to my friend, for, first of all, obviously with the Jussie Smollett case, the worst part is that, I mean, it sort of goes without saying. Like, dude, there are obviously hate crimes that happen in this country all the goddamn time. And when somebody pretends, <laughs> pretends to be a victim, it fucking takes away from all the people who really need justice and support you know what i'm saying but here's the part that doesn't get enough fucking credence and maybe it does but it, it, it's i think it's brushed away too quickly 
sure this guy is a sociopath or whatever but the, but the point is is that this is a big point for me to make it's, it's hard for me to know how i'm gonna fucking get to all of it but the point is is that dude very accurately assessed that there is a currency to victimhood in our current society and all he had to do was fucking come up with a story and it would fucking get traction and sure he was caught but you have to remember what the climate was like before that was found out the dude went from zero to motherfucking hero and do you know how many celebrities came out of the fucking woodwork to support him and look i'm not saying that's horrible of course you would you hear a story like that it's look i'm not saying the dude should be disbelieved from the jump but Knowing what we know now, doesn't that seem fucking crazy? Don't all those people feel fucking stupid? And look, of course they do. And look, I'm not trying to blame those people necessarily. They were taken advantage of. Jesse Smollett lied. <clears throat> but it reminds me of a story. I remember Brett Easton Ellis told this story on his podcast. And I'm sorry I'm going into a story. I don't remember the name of the fucking person. But like in the 90s, there was this woman um, who who basically did a performance thing. She created a character. She pretended to be, um, I think, a trans boy who had been kicked out of his home because of his uh, sexual identity or gender identity, had prostituted himself, was drug addicted, and basically wrote this memoir about their life, which was just the fucking most horrific operatic thing you could ever fucking imagine happening to a person. And when this thing was published celebrities came out of the goddamn woodwork to support this person's work and to tell their story. And of course, once it was later realized that this person was a fucking hoaxer and a fucking, uh, is hoaxer a goddamn word? This person was a fucking, it was all a hoax. This person was a fucking con artist and this was just a fucking, a ruse. Of course, all the celebrities were like, oh, we were taken advantage of. People wanted to sue this person. But the part that doesn't get recognized is those people are in some ways, not that any court in the land would ever fucking convict them, but those people are guilty of exactly the person that they're now condemning. These people were taking this person's story, knowing full well how it was going to be received, maybe not by the mass media, but a certain, but certainly by Hollywood, and realized there is currency in attaching myself to this person. And they were using this person's horror story, the supposed tragedy of this person's life or what happened to this person to bolster their own self-image by coming to their defense and speaking in defense of them, being an advocate for this person. So in the same way, Jesse Smollett made up a bullshit story about how he was a victim and knew that that would give him social currency, that people who fucking come to his defense know that there's social currency in being a defender for him. So once the whole thing blows up in everybody's face, everybody feels pretty fucking stupid. And is it as bad as being Jesse Smollett who made the whole story up? No. But if we're being honest about people's motivations, those people didn't have fucking pure intentions either, if they're being honest. Of course, there are innocent people who are fucking duped by these sorts of things, but especially when it comes to the celebrities, it's fucking currency. <clears throat> but here's, here, here's, the, here's the real thing. I don't know how Jesse Smollett justifies that to himself, but there has to be a part of him that feels like he's just like a killer, like he's never going to get caught. But also, I think, I think there's people... You know, not when it comes to fucking torturing and murdering children or, or sexually assaulting other people. When it comes to things like this, especially in entertainment, 
and politics. I think there's people who come into this world and just decide, like, once they reach a certain level of success and they see what actually fucking goes on behind the scenes, I think they just acclimate and think this is how the this is how the world works. This is how you succeed. This is how you play the game. And is it right? No. But if I want to be successful, if I want to if I want to achieve this level of success, this is what you have to do. I think it's how all politicians get corrupted. They think they're going to run a good platform, they're going to be a good person, and it's, and it's a meritocracy. And then they get in and they realize it's a complex system of favor trading and lying, you know, and uh, getting aligned with the right people. And how do you do that? Well, you have to make certain financial contributions to this person. You have to make uh, political concessions for this um, um uh, for this lobbying group so that in the future you can leverage them for a favor to get this fucking pass through. And you just get corrupted. You make one concession and now they have something on you and they fucking use it against you. Um, but the point is, is that at some point you look at the landscape and decide, hey, am I going to play or am I not going to play? And if I want to keep playing, I'm going to fucking, I guess I got to do this kind of shit. And I'm sure at some point, Jesse Smollett, who was, you know, a minor character on a quasi-popular show. I mean, I've fucking never seen Empire. I, I don't know anyone who's fucking talked to me about Empire. I'm sure it was doing okay. But if you're a minor character on Empire, that that's going to fade pretty quickly, meaning that's not going to be fully satisfying. And if you want more, you're going to fucking have your head on a swivel thinking, where's my opportunity? Dude, you're like a football player and you're just fucking looking for an open person. You'll pass to the first person you fucking see. You know what I'm saying? This dude fucking saw an opportunity and he fucking took it. He looked... He, he fucking took the temperature of the fucking cultural climate and said, dude, if I'm a victim, I'm going to fucking skyrocket. And you know what? He was absolutely fucking right. And sure, it all imploded on him. But dude, for a minute, he was the fucking cause celeb, dude. If he had never been found out, that dude would be held up as a fucking paragon of social justice and victimhood. And that dude would be fucking celebrated. And of course, it'd be all a fucking sham. And he would know that. But I don't think this stuff is entirely uncommon. <clears throat> and again, the sad part is it, this stuff absolutely undermines the, the real victims and the people who need assistance. When this stuff comes to light, of course, of course there are people who are already skeptical. Um, um, I, I mean, this is a whole other podcast episode. But your boy was on a jury for a sexual assault case one time. I served as the four person on a jury for a sexual assault case. And uh, a lot of what made the case phenomenally difficult is people who are sexually assaulted react in ways that are completely counterintuitive. And it doesn't mean that they're not victims, but it makes it, it makes sense that people would be skeptical of their stories because people assume victims act in a certain way. They often don't because of shame and um, how difficult it is coming forward about these things. But the point is, is that it takes a lot of work to advocate for victims because there are a lot of people who just sort of sit there with their arms folded and put the burden of proof on the victim and not on the perpetrators. And, um, and, uh, and that's too bad. And of course, the Jesse Smollett case is, you know, it makes it even fucking harder for these people. But at the same time, the rails are well-oiled as well for someone to, uh, to trade on people's symp- sympathy. What was I saying last time? It's not the cause that, I, that, that bothers me. It's the way it's presented. And I think this is a big part of it. I don't believe people. All the celebrities who get behind Jesse Smollett and want to get on their soapbox and uh, and blow hard about the state of the world and how I don't believe you. This is self serving, the virtue signaling, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but where am I going with this? 
the opportunism. You know, people decide that this is how the world works. And make no mistake, dude, Barack Obama has a fucking laundry list of these things too. Nobody's fucking clean. It's like, what's the saying? There's behind every great success is a great crime or some shit like that. I don't know. Behind every successful person is a great crime. I don't know how the fuck it goes, but it's something like that. But make no mistake, dude. Barack Obama has some skeleton in his closet. Skeletons in his closet. Bernie Sanders has, I'm certain, has some skeleton in his skeletons in his closet. Dude, everybody does. You don't make it that when, dude, when the stakes are that high and when it gets that competitive, this is the fucking point I'm making. <clears throat> Have you seen the movie Apocalypse Now? If you haven't, you fucking should. Marlon Brando has a great line that I'm going to paraphrase here, but he has this monologue. And he tells this story, and I think the story is something like when he first comes to Vietnam, or maybe he's actually in Cambodia at the time. But um, let's just say when he goes to Vietnam, he says very quickly he realized that they were gonna, the Americans were going to lose this war because of an instance where he stumbled across either a Vietnamese or a Cambodian village, I can't remember. And the army had killed its own people, including the children. They had killed an entire village. I think for assisting U.S. soldiers. But the whole point is these people were had killed a whole group of their own people, including their children. And he said, that's when I knew we were going to lose the war because that's when I realized that these people had the will, the will to do what the other guy wouldn't. And actually, as I was saying that, I think that's also a line from Usual Suspects. So I hope I'm not... Uh, actually, maybe Usual Suspects just fucking appropriated that from Apocalypse Now. But uh, Kevin Spacey in Unusual Suspects has a line where he says, Kaiser Soze basically killed his own family to, to demonstrate to the people who were trying to hold them hostage that he had the will to do, or to demonstrate to them what will really was. But that's exactly what fucking happened. And that's the way, for many people, they realize, oh, this is how the world works. Donald Trump's a perfect example. He success, and, and, and I think people, when they rationalize their behavior, they, they see it as a form of intelligence. Um, it's why prisoners, I mean, law enforcement and like prison guards, they always talk about it as a, as a perpetual cat and mouse game that they know they'll never fucking win because you have one people, the prisoners, the inmates, they're not playing by the rules. And when you're law enforcement or whatever, uh, you know, not that they always do as well, but the idea is for, lar- for, the, for the large part, they're playing by a certain set of rules that these people aren't fucking playing by. And the people who aren't going to play by the rules or restrain themselves in the same way that the opposition is the quote good guys are never going to fucking win dude it's like professional sports how rife it is with steroid use and cheating for the people who are actually in that world you know like deflate gate or lance armstrong doping um these things come to light and the public is fucking incredulous dude people who are in that world it's not fucking news at all they knew they know full well that this is taking place all the time and the hard part is you reach a certain level of competition and you realize, oh, you know, I've done everything I can with, with diet, with exercise, with raw talent, with practice, et cetera, et cetera. And you feel the fucking ceiling of not only your ability, but your career if things don't change. And meanwhile, you see the people around you who are fucking cheating, excelling and accelerating. And at some point you have to decide, dude, am I going to play or am I not going to play? And many people just justify it. They think, well, other people are doing it. I'm just going to fucking do it. And they push forward. 
I think that's how a lot of crimes get justified or rationalized by people. They just move forward. They say, hey, if I want to do X, I got to do Z. And that's the world that Jesse Smollett was living in for a minute. Like, can you imagine there was probably a moment where he was like, I can't believe it actually worked. Like in every like heist movie, they have a, they have that scene where it's like they have some idea and they go, it's crazy, but it just might work. <clears throat> you know, Justin Smollett was like, I can't believe this is actually fucking working. He saw the tweets rolling in and people supporting him and he was like, who knows? Dude, actually, I mean, maybe he was terrified. You know, they say, be careful what you wish for. It might come true. Dude, that could have been exactly what the fuck was happening with him. Anyway. um, Yeah, strange. I I find usually on these episodes we get pretty circuitous or we sort of jump around. I know we had it. We we jumped off a couple points, but for the most part, we've kind of hit one note for this entire episode. It's pretty cool when that happens. Uh, like I said, um, I'm going to continue recording here for the, for the rest of the year. And, uh, I'm just going to mash everything I record from here on out for the year into one large episode and put that out. So, uh, uh, yeah, I think we've gone for about an hour here. So let's, uh, let's take a break here and, uh, I'll be back, uh, to talk to you very shortly. Um, on the off chance that this gets separated and really separately, um, if you want to subscribe to the podcast, you can anywhere you listen to podcasts, uh, share it with a friend. Um, if there's someone in your life you think would enjoy it, share your favorite episode with them and, uh, take a few minutes and rate and review the podcast, um, on Apple podcasts or wherever, wherever you listen to podcasts, give it a five-star review. Even dude, even if you don't think it deserves a five-star is five-star review, do your boy a favor, give it five stars, say a couple nice things about it, and uh, and post that shit. And if you want to connect with me, you can at this is M X O X O. We'll take a break here, and um, we'll talk to you again soon. So thanks for listening. Ciao for now. It's your boy, and welcome back for part two of episode 16 of the podcast. This is M, part two of the Super Smash uh, Mega Mix Marathon episode we got going on here. And uh, it's kind of funny, actually, when I sat down to record this, or I should say, at the the start of the last part of this episode, um, I had just spoken with my buddy Matt Evans on the phone for like an hour and had said at that time, oh, this should just be a podcast episode. And then I proceeded to, I literally hung up and started recording and recorded, you know, with some variation, pretty much the conversation I had just had with my friend. Um... And uh, literally, he, I was sitting down to record an episode. My phone rang. It was my buddy, Matt Evans. And I told him, oh, yeah, I'm about to record a podcast. But we had a literally an hour-long phone conversation just now. And literally 20 seconds ago, I hung up with him. Now I'm sitting down. And I'm basically going to regurgitate the conversation we had. Um, because in some ways, it, it sort of orbited what I was sitting down to talk about anyway. But uh, your boy finished his first semester of school yesterday. I had my last final 
<clears throat> excuse me for uh, chemistry class. Dude, the reason my voice is all fucked up is because I had my final yesterday for chem. I was up till 4 a.m. studying for the damn thing. And uh, I'm glad I did, by the way. Not that I really needed to cram or anything, but um, I was just kind of in the zone. You know, like sometimes when you're studying or working on anything, really, you just find a rhythm. And I was just kind of in it and didn't want to stop and wanted to keep reviewing and did. And uh, slept for a couple hours, went in, took the final, and it was kind of like a continuation of that session, you know, so I'm glad I did that. But uh, but uh, I had I ended up having to go to work after that and working till midnight, and uh, so I'm just kind of... I like I literally feel it in my voice that I'm tired. And um so I got some water here. I'll probably be sipping it, and maybe clearing my throat and shit, so I'm sorry about that. But um <clears throat> but uh took my chem final. Um I did okay on it, you know. I I I I mean an A felt really far out of reach going into it. <clears throat> but when I sat down I was actually surprised at um how relatively or I should say comparatively easy it was to what I thought it was gonna be. And so while it's still overwhelmingly likely that I got a B on it, um, an A doesn't feel that far out of reach either. So we'll just have to keep our fingers crossed. But um, the thing that came up for me over the course of the semester, and I talked about it with my friend Matt, was uh, my chemistry teacher. Or how do how do I uh, how do I broach this topic? But <clears throat> I was always surprised because my chemistry teacher was this fucking kind of a hard ass guy. He was from India. Um, uh, he's from Bombay. And he just kind of had a different attitude than all of my other teachers. And he was kind of a hard ass. And, um, you know, he just, he wasn't like my other teachers. It was, it was far and away the most difficult class I had. And I don't, I don't necessarily think it was due to his personality. I think chemistry is just a, a difficult class. It's information dense. If you're not sort of, I don't know, predisposed to it or have an inclination for it, 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 it felt like a foreign language for sure. And whereas, like, my liberal arts classes, like, if it's English or psych, I mean, I can, like, I walk through those classes. I can practically sleep through them. They're just very intuitive for me. They sort of play to my skills. But chemistry is, it's completely unrelated. Well, it's 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 very much related to everything you experience in your life, but on a very, in, in a counterintuitive way. Do you know what I mean? Um, it, it, I mean, it is the underpinnings of our experience of the world, but, um, but, uh, the architecture of it or the, the the mechanism of it is is it's like learning a foreign language but um but his his approach to the course was he was you know if he would lecture he had the lessons prepared he had the homework assigned but he wasn't really going to do any explaining do you know what i mean and he would lecture and it was your job to take notes and do the reading and do the homework and if you didn't understand it it was your job to teach it to yourself and it kept coming up in sort of in conversations I would have with other students before the class or, you know, seeing them in passing and we would sort of check in with each other. Oh, how are you doing in the class? And I think everyone kind of had their own struggles with it. Um, but the one thing that I never related to that I was hearing a lot is the sort of incredulousness of the other students, which is they all felt on some level that they were being cheated or gypped or that the teacher was somehow in in the wrong that he wasn't a quote good teacher um that they deserved something from him that he wasn't providing for them in the form of an education and i don't want to put words in their mouth but i think their 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 reasoning would have gone something like you know that they're paying for the class it's his job to teach and if the students start understanding the information as a teacher it's his job to 
either explain it in a different way or represent the information to them in such a way that they're that they're getting it and that somehow their performance in the class is reflective of his capacity as a teacher. And uh, it's not that I think that that's completely wrong, you know. Um, maybe you could make a case for that. Um, but the weird part for me is I never experienced him that way. And even though it didn't, it wasn't, I mean, and I struggled with the class, you know, it certainly would have been to my benefit or um, whether or not it made a difference in terms of how I felt about myself. You know, I could have felt quite a bit better if I had just sort of told myself that my, you know, the struggles I was experiencing in the class were due to his capacity as a teacher, but I, I didn't feel that way. And I, I think the reason this is interesting to me is because I don't know what it says about my psychology, but like when I go to math class and I'm getting an A in it, but I also know the teacher's a like out to fucking lunch, you know? And uh, it is, is like in math, it was like there were no tests. There was no final. You basically just had an entire workload that was given to you or assigned to you at the beginning of the semester. And it was your job by the end of the semester to have completed it. And you couldn't put it off or anything. You had to work diligently. You know, there was plenty of people who I know dropped the class or were failing it because they thought, eh, I'll give it some time and I'll just sort of pick through this when I get around to it. No, dude, it was a shit ton of work. But you could basically not come to class. You could just do the work online if you wanted to. And, um, and uh, you, you know, you, there, I guess there were quizzes, but it's like you had three attempts <laughs> for each quiz. And even after that, people were like, oh, can I get another attempt at that quiz? And he'd be like, oh, sure. So it became a fucking joke after a while. So even though it was an easy A, which is a good thing, ostensibly, you kind of didn't respect the teacher. Do you know what I mean? And in my psych class, I went into the final with over 100%. And I mean, I would basically have to like draw a, a penis. <laughs> I'd have to draw a penis on my final to not get an A in the class. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> and, um, and even though th- my psych teacher was actually a phenomenal teacher, I still felt like I was kind of getting away with it. You know, I felt I didn't feel like I was getting an A. I felt like I was getting away with an A. And my experience in chemistry was completely different. Like I felt like, oh, this is this is the real deal. Oh, now it's time for reality to fucking kick in because his whole stance was like, I've taught. I, I think his whole stance was something like, you know, I've taught this class a bunch. I know I'm not asking more of anybody than what they're capable of doing, and you know, the book explains the information. I've explained the information in the lecture. We're doing a lab, which explains the information. And if at that point you're struggling to understand, you need, you need to find a way to make it work for you. And, uh, not that it's, not that it's always been the case, but it's like, look, you could hire a tutor. You could Google it. You could look for other resources to explain the information to yourself. But, uh, but I think maybe what I'm thinking is, is I think there is this line of demarcation, and the students, uh, between what a student is capable of and what a teacher is expecting of them and sort of what's reasonable. Do you know what I mean? And that line gets blurry very quickly. And I think if you talk to most teachers, I think they're endless, the, one of the hardest parts about being a teacher, I think, is being endlessly disappointed with how little effort students often give or how disappointing they can be. Um, I mean, I had a moment in my psych class, we were about to turn in this final paper and we had to sort of peer review these papers at, at sort of one stage of the rough draft session, uh, at one uh, point in the semester, we had to review each other's rough drafts for the paper. And this kid handed me something that was unintelligible. 
to the point where I was literally, you know, I had to sort of talk to him conversationally because I couldn't determine if English was his primary language based on his paper. And I was talking to him and he just seemed like a regular, like American English speaking person. His paper was unintelligible. The punctuation was crazy. And this is a college level course and the punctuation was off. The sentences weren't capitalized. It was just completely nonsensical. And I don't know if this person had a learning disability or they were dyslexic or something like that. But, uh, I bet if you asked any, ta- any any teacher, even at the college level, who had to read people's final paper, they would say it's ridiculous, the stuff that people turn in. Um, and also, at the end of the semester, how many teachers are grading finals and they just feel like, I haven't taught these kids anything. But they know in their gut it has nothing to do with their capacity as a teacher. It has everything to do with the effort on the part of their students. And so for me, when I was in, in or engaging or interacting with my chemistry teacher... At no point was I like, oh, this guy needs to sort of extend himself to me more. My entire mentality was, oh, this is who this teacher is. This is how he runs his course. And it's my job as a student um, to navigate it and to, um, you know, uh, sort of comport myself in such a way that I am sort of deferring to how he runs the course. Like to me, he was in charge. And whether I liked it or not, he was the teacher. He was going to be grading my assignments. He was going to be evaluating me over the course of the semester. And it was my job to become what he wanted me to be, you know, or what he was requiring of his course. And what I think what I'm trying, when I start talking about this stuff, and and I'm not saying it's not entirely true, but what I'm trying to steer away from is the types of conversations you have, which is like, oh, this younger generation is so entitled and they want everything handed to them. And, you know, well, back in my day, it was like this and blah, blah, blah. And and that's not, you know, I I think all that stuff does sort of apply here, but that's not what I'm trying to say. Um, I'm really trying, the the only reason I'm talking about this, because otherwise who fucking cares? You know, you you don't really give a shit about my school experience. But But the reason it is interesting to me is what it says about my psychology and as I talk about my psychology, I hope you consider yours. Because, you know, if you like this show, you probably, we probably have a lot in common in terms of how we think about things. You know, we, we, we probably see the world in the same perspective. And rather just be this sort of echo chamber where I say shit and you go, oh, yeah, right? I mean, for me, I'm always trying to think of why do I experience things that way? And so, you know, I'm not just saying, oh, I'm a better person than these people and why don't they get their shit together? I'm trying to understand why is it, why is it that I'm so... Well, here, here's what I wonder. If I had to make a defense for the other students, and, and maybe I already said it, but I think there is something to the idea of, hey, I'm a student here. I paid money for this course, and I'm trying to learn the information. And assuming I've done my job, and that's a big fucking variable there, but let's say, assuming I've done everything I can, or I've held up my end of the bargain, and again, I don't think most people do that, but assuming they did, if I'm not understanding they believe that the onus is on the teacher to try to re-explain the information in, in a way that they understand it or represent the information or, you know, to teach with a capital, with a capital T, to teach the information. Okay, fair enough. But also, <clears throat> I think there's a certain amount of self-esteem, you know, not entitlement. And by the way, entitlement is, we use it as a pejorative word when really by its own definition, entitlement is something you're entitled to. How can it be a bad thing? But people mean overly entitled, but I'm not, to, I'm not talking about an over entitlement. I'm talking about a sort of, a, a regular run of the mill, um, literal sense of entitlement that they're entitled to an education and a certain amount of involvement from the teacher 
et cetera, et cetera. And there's something about that that's healthy, right? Like, well, here's what I am contributing. Here's what I deserve. And I'm, I, it's reasonable for me to expect that. I think that's where they think that they're coming from. And if I felt that way, or if I, if I had their perspective, it would be to my benefit. Well, and whether or not it, it did shit for my grade, I just mean psychologically, right? It would make me feel better if when I interacted with this teacher, I just felt, you know, what is this person not doing for me that I'm entitled to? And for some reason, I just don't fucking have that. You know, I completely defer to this person's authority, that I, that I, that I've sort of, I mean, I think they have it, but in some ways maybe I'm just giving it to them, but I think this is the teacher. This is how he runs his course. And, uh, look, if I don't like it, or if you don't like it, you can drop the class or try to take the class from somebody else. Do you know what I mean? Like you sit down first day, the person hands you a syllabus and says, this is what you're required of. Dude. And some teachers make you sign the syllabus. You know what I mean? They make you sign it and turn it in. Not because it's a legally binding contract, but so that if it's ever an issue, they can point and say, "Hey, these you knew you you knew the expectations of you in this class. They knew, you knew what was going to be expected of you in this class, and you you literally signed up for it." But you sit down the first day with the teacher, and they say, "This is going to be the course. This is what we're going to do. This is what you're going to be evaluated on. This is how much everything's weighted in the class. Like you know, these tests are this percentage of your grade. Homework is this percentage of your grade, et cetera, et cetera. This is when things are going to be uh, going to be due." And if you don't like that, you can drop the class. But um, but again, the thing that was interesting for me is this, this tangible feeling I had in that class that this was reality. You know, I don't know what it says about me that I would get an A in psych, I get an A in math, and I don't feel like I've earned it. I feel, like I said, I literally feel like I'm not getting an A, I'm getting away with an A. But there's something about the way this teacher conducted his, my chemistry teacher conducted his class that felt like the real world. And I felt, look, if I get an A in chem, and I I probably won't, I'll probably get a B. But if I get an A in chem, I earned an A. And it's because I did A quality work. You know, I was, I was actually talking with Gow, with Gowan Matthews, my producer, and he was talking about this. I, I really don't know anything about it. It sounds intuitively true to me. I don't know. I can't point to anything that sort of validates this but he talks about he was we were talking about school and and probably something along this lines and he was talking about grade inflation and it's something i guess he's looked at where you know you look over the years and it's just it's more you know there's more pressure on institutions to give a's and b's one because it makes students feel better um it's probably good for them in a lot of ways you know these are multi-dimensional things but but there's over the course of time this there's more a's and b's being, being given they're easier to achieve whereas Back in the day, you know, you were looking at the full range of this. So most people got a C, and that was considered average. You didn't fail. You, you, were, you, were, just, you were just middle of the road competent. Um, I mean, the easiest way or the, the easiest analogy is, you know, people will ask you all the time, on a scale from one to 10, how are you feeling? And if you say anything below it, seven or an eight, people are like, oh, what's wrong? And you think, because they're thinking of it like school, which is anything below a 60 is a failing grade, which is not how people need to think about the fucking one to 10 scale. It's one to 10. Five is literally neutral. How are you feeling? Five means you're neutral. You're neither bad nor good. You're, you're down the middle of the fucking road. If you're six, it's hmm, slightly better. Seven is, hey, pretty good. Eight is, hey, I'm doing great. Nine and 10 is like fucking out of this world, right? 
Um, but, uh, I mean, it's sort of, I w- <laughs> it's like we live in a world now where because everything's graded on like a five-star system, like every restaurant you look at, every Uber driver you fucking have, anything less than perfection we're fucking concerned about. Do you know what I mean? Like if you see a driver and they have like a 3.5 star rating, you're like, Ooh, what the fuck's wrong with this person? When really that's fucking fine. Do you know what I mean? Uh, anyway, I'm not sure how all this ties together, except maybe just to say that there was something about the way he ran that course where the grades felt more accurate. Do you know what I mean? Like he was, he was certainly harder than other teachers I had, but in a way, because he was the grades felt congruous with the effort that you put in. If you just walk through the class and don't put in a lot of effort, you're going to get a C. And by, that's exactly what you deserve. Now, if you put in a little bit of work and you, you know, you do the homework, but you kind of slack off a little bit and, you know, you don't, you know, necessarily stay focused the entire time or you don't get all the answers right on the test, you're going to get a B. And guess what? That's exactly what you deserve. But if you come to class every day, if you do all your homework, if you're focused in the labs and you study for your tests, and if you don't, you find other ways to fill in your knowledge and make sure that you genuinely understand it, you get an A. And that will be exactly what you deserve. And it felt like those grades actually were a clear demonstration of what the capacity of the student was. Do you know what I mean? It's like now I meet people all the time who are, they seem like fucking dullards to me and they get A's. Now maybe they're just good students and they're not very bright people as in a sort of a street, streetwise or emotional intelligence sort of way. But that was the only class I took this semester that felt like the grades were actually fair. And it was just strange for me that that both felt true, even to my detriment. Like I, like I said, I'll probably get a B. But I'm not going to feel bad about it. It's because I know in my heart of hearts I didn't do A work. And that doesn't make me a bad person. I mean, I've talked about this before in other ways. Um, I think I was talking about this time I was actually preparing for a chem quiz. You know, sometimes good enough is all you have to give. You got other shit going on. You're working simultaneously, which I am. Or you have assignments in other classes. You know, I don't think anyone's saying that you need to be doing perfect in all aspects of your life. But if you're not giving A work, there's, there are just going to be consequences from that. You, maybe you won't get into the, the number one school of your choice, but you'll get into your number two, and that's fine. Um, yeah, sometimes good enough is all you have to give. And that's okay. But you're just going to get what you deserve. And I know, you know, whether it's in social justice or whatever the fuck, <clears throat> I mean, this is where it does slide into this territory of... Um, you know, sounding like a boomer, you know, the whole okay boomer sort of shit where I'm talking about an entitled generation of millennials and all that sort of shit. But, and so I know I'm not supposed to feel that way. You know, I'm supposed to feel like I'm a dick if I start uh, floating into that kind of territory. But I got to be honest with you, that's kind of how I feel in this circumstance. You know, I'm getting an A in math. Did I do A work in that class? Dude, honestly, fuck no. I knew that that teacher had structured her class in such a way that I could do a very minimal amount of work and still get an A in the class. I exploited his system. And that's fine. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. That's smart. That's what you're supposed to do in life. 
I mean, I would say in every aspect of your life, it behooves you to try to do as little amount of work as possible for the most amount of gain. If you can find, with, I mean, short of cheating, um, although in some ways I think that ties back to our last conversation, but I would say in a, in a in sort of ethical stance, short of cheating, you should be trying in your life to get the most for as little for as little as possible. Um, I think that's how we're sort of bio, biologically wired as people. <clears throat> um, we're always looking for cheap calories, you know, if you just want to think about it biologically. We're looking for, you know, ways to exert as little as, as to uh, ingest as much energy as possible while exerting the least amount. That's just how people are. Uh, like I was thinking about when I go to my uh, buddy Gowan's house, his uh, studio house, he, my, my producer Gowan, we recorded his house. And when we go there, he has his uh, second bathroom, which is like for people like myself. And uh, I go in, every time I go in there, it doesn't matter how much fucking time has passed, he has a spider in his bathtub in the bathroom because nobody uses it. Nobody uses that bathtub. And I'm always like, and I'll blow on it. I'll see it and I'll blow on it just to make sure it's still alive. And I go, that spider doesn't fucking move. And he goes, oh yeah, spiders can go like months with, without eating. You know? And they're, they're just going to fucking chill there. Like they have a web, but if you think, like my analogy was having a web as a spider web is like being a fucking human and just walking around with your mouth open. Like when you build a web as a spider, you're just hoping something flies through it. And if you just think about the real estate of a fly's area that they fucking live in, they're flying all over the goddamn place. What are the, what, what are the chances that they're going to fly into a spider web? I mean, I walk into them all the time, but I'm also how many thousand times larger than a fly? Um, what are the chances that something's just going to fly into your fucking spider web? And I said the equivalent would be like if, if I just walked around as a human person with my mouth open, hoping that food would land into it. I'm not saying it would never happen. But if that was my method of gathering food, I'd have to fucking wait a long time between meals. And so his whole, anyway, his whole argument, dude, what the fuck are we talking about on this podcast? But his whole argument was, yeah, dude, they just chill. Like spiders, their whole life is like, yeah, I'm just going to fucking chill here because I don't have the energy to, um, to expel until my next meal. I'm going to eat a fly once every couple months and I'm just going to fucking chill. But that's... I know. Anyway, I, I'm I'm talking out of my ass here. I, I don't know. I've never taken fu- fucking biology. I, I really don't know what I'm talking about. But it seems like a fitting analogy that serves my point, which is you know it's perfectly fine to do as to get as much as possible for as little work as possible. That's perfectly cool. But if we're being honest, you know what kind of work deserves an A, and it's as, and it and it should be exceptional. It shouldn't be the bare minimum. It should be an exceptional, an exceptional, exceptional amount of work gets you an A. <clears throat> so anyway, yeah, that was part of what I talked with my friend Matt about. Like, what does it say about me? You know, I think part of it is, is it, I, I, I think to be fair, I think part of it is a, I don't know if you want to call it a personality flaw. I don't know what, I don't know what you want to call it exactly, but there's a part of me that just sort of looks to other people to tell me what is expected of me. You know, and it's very easy for me to, um, yeah, surrender to, to somebody else's will. For somebody else to just give me marching orders and say, hey, this is what's expected of you. And I go, okay. And I just defer to that. And that becomes my new normal. Um, and what would it be like to have my own ideas about that? And so when, when I hear other students say, hey, this is what I deserve, there's a part of me that's kind of envious. Like, I go back to the idea... You know, in I think it was episode 12, I was talking about, you know, I hate people's super self-serious Facebook posts. But on some level, when I bring this up in therapy, my therapist is like, 
you know, is there a part of you that wants to be able to post those types of things? Like, am I secretly just jealous that they have the moxie or the gumption to to ask to ask things of people to be vulnerable? Quote vulnerable. I, I mean, again, I think they're being self serving and fucking rude on some level. But if I was being more generous about it, that they're being vulnerable and asking people for their support or, what, or whatever the fuck it is that they're sharing vulnerable, vulnerable parts of themselves. And am I just a curmudgeon for sitting on the sidelines with my arms folded, judging them for it when really there's a there's a quietly wounded, um, whimpering side of myself that wants to be doing the exact same thing? I don't know. I try to entertain those ideas. I try to be fair. But... um. I don't know. In, in most of my, in, I don't know, most of my, I don't know, living experience, it doesn't feel that way. But maybe that's exactly the problem. <clears throat> but anyway, I am happy to be done with the semester. I went to work last night and normally I have to bring homework and I didn't. I just, I fucking felt naked going to work with just a book, um, which I'm actually excited about. I mean, I think I mentioned crime and punishment uh, in the la- or in um, part one of this episode. Um, I was talking about guilt, but, uh, I, I'm reading notes from underground, which is also by Dostoevsky. Um, and I started reading it at the top of the semester and then fucking, as soon as school started, I fucking put it down. I, I haven't read anything for fun since then, which is crazy, dude. I'm normally a voracious reader and to have gone so many months without reading anything for pleasure. I mean, on the one hand, it felt completely normal because I was occupied, but, uh, yeah, it felt nice. I was at work and sort of between you know, things that demanded my attention, for lack of a better word, I would pick up my book and read it, and it felt fucking nice. It felt really good. I even threw a book of Chinese philosophy in there just in case. You know, if I started reading this little bit of fiction and, and needed, needed, I don't know, and it wasn't fucking, you know, I wasn't getting my fix from it. I could turn back to some uh, Chinese philosophy I was reading um, over the summer as well. Oh, but yeah. Oh, there's a yawn for you, man. We haven't had too many of those lately. I mean, I feel like the first, the early episodes were rife with yawns. Maybe we've had a couple appear since then, but I feel like overall I've been I've been pretty good about not yawning. Um, <clears throat> I'll have to defer to your experience. Maybe you hear. Maybe I just don't notice it as much. But <clears throat> but yeah. Um. Yeah, it's funny. I'm sitting here thinking about what to talk about, but the truth is that I have a couple things on my mind that I can't talk about just because I, you know, I'm I'm trying to be considerate of, of other people's privacy. You know, I told you in other episodes, I I forget, I think it was like episodes nine and eleven. I had to go back and edit them because I was talking about something I <clears throat> ultimately decided I didn't want to be public, and it's not for me, dude. You, your boy doesn't give a fuck, man. I'll talk about anything that I'm thinking about, but um, but yeah, sometimes there's there's other things going on in my life that involve other people that I think they don't want to get roped into. I don't, I don't want to rope them into it. And it's not even because I need to identify them, but it's also the thought that I just know it would hurt their feelings or it would make, it would either hurt their feelings or it would make, you know, uh, if I'm saying something bad about somebody for sure, but also just, uh, I, you know, it can hurt someone's feelings or the, or they'd feel, um, I don't know, betrayed or exposed, even if nobody else could identify them, just knowing that I'm talking about them. So, um, so yeah, I mean, there's a couple things I'd like to talk about, but I won't. And uh, I know it's super fucking lame to be that guy who says that and then doesn't talk about it, but what the fuck? You know what I'm saying? 
Also, my cussing, I've been thinking about that. I know I cuss an awful lot. To the point where, like, I listen, dude, I listen back to episodes and I go, dude, this podcast is worse than a Quentin Tarantino movie. Do you know what I'm saying? And what, what, what is it about life that when you're a kid, you're hyper-conscious of cursing? Like, I remember I would watch movies. Like, I would watch rated R movies and hear the cussing, and I was just like, oh, my God. These people have potty mouths. Or I remember watching Quentin Tarantino movies, and, like, it was a, it was a, th- I was about to say it was a fucking thing, but, like, there's probably YouTube video. I, I think there is a YouTube cut of Pulp Fiction that's just every use of the word fucking Pulp Fiction. I think it's, like, 15 minutes long or something like that. But they just string them all together, and you go, God damn, there's a lot of cussing. But I go back and listen to this podcast, and I'm like, dude, I cuss so much. I use it every other word. Dude, and I say weird things like, dude. I, dude, I say dude all the, all the time, dude. It's, which is better than like. I mean, I, I probably say like a fair amount, but... Jeez, I feel like even when I was a teenager, it was a fucking epidemic. I remember our teachers would point it out to us and say, you guys got to stop using the word like. Because you would just be like, and like, like, I don't know, like, I just like feel like... Jesus Christ. But that for me, the, those for me now are the word dude and fuck. And goddamn, dude, like, fuck, man. That's the podcast. I should just call it the Dude Like Fuck podcast. The Dude Like What the Fuck podcast. Anyway, shout out to my boy. Shout out to my boy. Shout out to my boy. Shout out to my boy, Matt, dude. Shout out to my boy, Matt. Um for coming through with the phone call and giving us content for the podcast dude you know dude fuck it i'm gonna fucking give an award out right now and maybe this will be the start of a tradition but i want to get out a fucking mvp award to matt evans matt evans in terms of listeners for this podcast is is the most valuable player and it doesn't mean we don't have other star fucking athletes on this varsity team it doesn't mean that other people aren't putting in work and it doesn't mean that some of you aren't fucking pulling your weight around here but uh none of you guys are playing injured the way matt evans is this motherfucker has a fucking concussion do you understand my buddy matt evans was concussed like a year ago or something like that he was by the way i wish it was a cool story he probably wishes it was a cool story too it's not he wasn't fucking running into a burning building and a fucking two by four land on his head and he was like fucking saving an infant from a fucking inferno he was playing with his dog and he got up too quickly and hit his head on the coffee table and he was concussed. But the point is it was like a, over a year of recovery, which is fucking awful for him. And I know I'm making light of it. I know it was like one of the worst years of his life. And I think anybody who's gone through a similar situation knows exactly what the fuck I'm talking about. But this guy was wrestling like vertigo and I, I think he even had like some PT, some physical therapy and shit to like help him get him back on track. But dude, just like a month ago, he was like in a minor car accident and it fucking reignited his symptoms and now homie is fucked up again and he's having to relive and go through all this shit again. And he just called me today and was like, dude, shit's fucked up today. Um, but then you know what he said at the end of our conversation where I basically talked at him, which is like, dude, dude this... I've said it in the past. I say one of my favorite things is when people send me messages and they're like, oh, dude, I like the podcast. I like the podcast. It's just like we're hanging out. Dude, ask my friends, dude. Being friends with me or talking to me on the phone is like listening to the fucking podcast. And I'm not saying it's a good thing. I mean, I'm saying it's cool. Or I'm saying it's interesting. But literally, my buddy Matt called me and he was like, dude, I'm feeling awful. And I'm like, oh, yeah, really cool, cool story, bro. Hey, here's what's going on with me. And I basically, I, dude, I talked about myself for 50 minutes, for five zero minutes. And at the end of it, I was like, dude, thanks for taking the place of therapy. 
Because he and I are both smart, dude. And because we're smart, we go to therapy because that's what smart people do. Dude, it's like that scene in Happy Gilmore where he's like, hey, buddy, what's going on? He's like, oh, I peed my pants. And it's like he covers for his friend by saying, hey, you know you ain't cool until you pee your pants. Dude, that's what therapy's like. Dude, if you're not going to therapy, you ain't shit. Do you understand? If you're not going to therapy, you're not cool, dude. You're not even, dude, if you're not in therapy, you're not on my level. So don't, or what does it say? Run, don't walk to therapy, dude. If you want to catch up with your boy, dude, if you're, dude, if you really want to be on this varsity team, you fucking get to therapy and you start working on yourself, dude. Um, cause we're trying to do big things, dude. We're going places. And if you want to come with us, dude, you got to be fucking well adjusted. Do you know what I'm saying? You can't be struggling with the same shit all the time, dude. We're going places, dude. And if you want to be with us, dude, you better be fucking fixed. Do you know what I'm saying? Not perfect. Not perfect. Just on the right fucking track, dude. You got to be, you know, you know what you have to be? You have to be committed to the process. Dude, you could still be on day one, but you got to be committed to the process. Dude, it's like sobriety. Dude, we're like a recovery program. We're, dude, we're a fucking support group varsity level team, dude. You know what I'm saying? We're a varsity level support group. And you don't have to be perfect, dude. You don't have to be fixed, but you got to, you have to be committed to the process. That's what we're doing here. All right, but what the fuck am I talking about? Oh, yeah, I just talked to my friend Matt for like 50 minutes, and I was like, dude, thanks for taking the place of therapy. And we were laughing because we were like, because we both do therapy, we're like, oh, we're conditioned to have 50 minute conversations. You're like, we feel the 50 minutes coming to a close, and we're just sort of our internal clock is like, well, I guess it's time to wrap up. But yeah, Matt was like, dude, I'm feeling, I'm feeling a little nauseous and I have this fucking, uh, <laughs> um, oh man, he's like, dude, I'm feeling nauseous and I have this weird tick in my left eye and in my head, I have this tingling sensation on my temples and I'm just like, oh yeah, cool story, bro. Hey, here's what's happening with me. So Matt, dude, you're the MVP player of the year, dude. And I know it's getting buried in part two of this super long, super smash mega mix marathon episode that nobody's going to fucking hear, but I just want to let you know, dude, from me to you. You're the MVP listener of the podcast this year. So let's get a round of applause going for Matt Evans, MVP of the fucking year of the podcast. This is M. This is MVP, Matt Evans, dude. Hey, thank you. And look, I know other people are listening. But this guy's listening to every episode and he's playing injured. So look, if you're fucking scoring touchdowns with a broken leg, dude, then maybe we'll talk. But if you're not, dude, if you're just listening to this while you're walking to work, that's awesome. But if you're not listening concussed with vertigo with uh, uh, a tick in your left eye and fucking tingling sensation in your temples, dude, then you're just not playing on Matt's level. <clears throat> he's digging deep for this varsity team, dude. He's actually, he's, he's my first consideration for captain for this team, dude. So you can submit, I mean, if you want to submit yourself for consideration, that's cool. We're definitely taking applications for next year, but dude, for 2019, it's fucking closed out, dude. Matt Emmons, MVP, thank you for your support. <clears throat> and um yeah what else is going on yeah dude it was actually kind of a cool week honestly because not only did i finish school but i finished my creative commitments for the year also i i um y- you know oh yo, yo, you're gonna be hearing this at the beginning of 2020 but also this week actually on wednesday um you know yesterday i finished my final and the day before i finished uh, all my creative work in the studio this year um, I told myself at the start of the year I was going to release 12 original tracks uh, over the course of the year that were fully produced. And um, we had a slight hiccup in the middle of the year. I think I didn't release anything in sep- either September or October. I can't remember. But it was a confluence of me 
not booking time in the studio fast enough and Gowan getting booked out uh, before he went on vacation. So uh, I didn't, I wasn't able to release anything, but I've been in the studio consistently this year and literally just Wednesday we, re- we finished, uh, we closed out the last track that I was working on. So um, at the time of this recording, in a couple of days, I have a song called Slow Engineer coming out, uh, which at the time of this hearing, you'll be able to find on Spotify. And then after that, uh, we got one more coming out. And uh, I was going to say, I, I don't want to say what it's called, but by the time you hear it, it's going to be out. So it doesn't matter. It's going to be called Help Me From There To Here. And it was actually the last song on uh, my first record as The Plastic Arts. Uh, that record was called Praise Box. And at the end of the, or how do I, basically at the end of this One Counting Crows record, Recovering the Satellites, there's a song called Walkaways. And it's like a minute and a half song that's just like acoustic guitar. And it's just like a small, good thing. It's like a nice melody, nice chords, but it's just a wisp of a song. You know, it's just one idea that sort of comes and goes. And it's just kind of a nice, cool way to end the record, more or less. And I remember as I was finishing this, EP. Although I, you know, I thought six tracks was an EP. That's a fucking pretty long EP. I mean, you're 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 uh, walking into album length territory at that point. But for some reason, I was like, oh, I'd like a little something at the end of this record. And so I wrote this really short song called "Help Me From There to Here," and it's actually in a weird way, it's one of my favorite songs that I've ever written because it's short, it's sweet, it's strong, it's a good idea. It kind of goes somewhere musically. And um, I don't know, I've just always liked it. And I, I've always wanted to revisit it. And I, I think for a while, I thought that I would sort of expand it and make, a, make it a full song. But I, as I was coming near the end of the year, and I was like, man, I got to go in the studio. And I don't necessarily have a newer song that's like burning to be recorded. But I thought it's the end of the year. It's the end of the, you know, these cycle of 12 songs for, for the year 2019. And I thought, you know what, I'm just going to take that song in there and we're going to arrange it. And it's just going to be a nice cap at the end of this song cycle. And, uh, dude, Gallon is so fucking talented. It's crazy. He really killed it. Um, it has this, you know, we did some strings on slow engineer, which turned out great as well. But, uh, we had gone in the studio for one day for, well, it's probably like a half day to do the beginning of the work on help me from there to here. And then like two days later, he emails me and he's like, Hey man, we should put some strings on this. And I was like, word. So I go in the studio, I think like the next morning, and uh, we spent a couple hours doing the string arrangement that he comes up with. And dude, it's so beautiful. <clears throat> you know, it's crazy to me. I think of all the people I've met in my life. Excuse me. Of all the people I've met in my life, dude, Gowan Matthews is just one of the most talented. And the fact that, I mean, he's primarily a, a guitar player, really, is by, by, by trade. But he basically taught himself how to engineer, like how to be a recording engineer and, and, and producer. And... um and he just fucking taught himself, man. But he's also, you know, he went to music school and all that sort of shit, but he's just so smart. And he has so many talents, you know? And um, so basically he just starts throwing throwing this fucking string arrangement up there and I'm just like, God damn it. Like if we were a band like Radiohead or some shit, like we would have farmed that out. Do you know what I mean? Like we would have hired someone to come up with a string arrangement. And I'm going to be honest with you, dude. I don't think they could have done a better goddamn job. You know what I'm saying? It's pop music. It's not going to be a fucking Bartok string quartet. It's not going to be super fucking crazy. It's going to be relatively straightforward with some cool voicings. And dude, he fucking nailed it. And it's creepy and it's cool and it's tense and it's kind of unresolved. And man, I did, I really feel blessed to have him in my life, man. I feel super blessed to have Gowan Matthews, like not only collaborating on my music, but just 
you know, I fucking won the lottery. I say it all the time. I don't know why everyone doesn't work with him. I recommend him to people all the goddamn time. And why they don't use him, I don't fucking understand. It's going to be cheaper. It's going to be better. <clears throat> but no, dude, people still insist on working in this old format where they fucking go into some studio and they pay some exorbitant fee just for the room for the day. And then they want to hire an engineer on top of that. And then they want to hire a bunch of musicians to come and sit on the fucking record and play. And it's like, like if you're Dylan or the stones and you want, or, or Zeppelin and you want to do it live in the room. Cause you guys are like, dude, we're a fucking band and we fucking kill and you just fucking can't do it in this. But it's like, I hear these fucking records and I'm like, dude, why did you spend $15,000 on this fucking record that one, you're never going to recoup the cost, but it doesn't even sound that much better. Like you spent all this fucking money to go in some famous studio and it, it doesn't sound great. You know, I'll, dude, I'll fucking take the Pepsi challenge with the fucking should I do with gallon with fucking anybody. At least anybody, anybody on my level. And dude, I'm telling you, dude, the shit that we do sounds at least as good, if not better than most of the shit I hear coming out of other places. And is that a cocky thing to say? Yeah, sure. But it's really how I feel. And maybe I feel okay saying that because it has, has, it really has nothing to do with me. <laughs> it has everything to do with Gallon Matthews and his talent. <clears throat> like I just hear some of the records that some of my peers are making and I know they got like fucking 15 people on the record and it's just like, it sounds like garbage. The fidelity's not great. The arrangements aren't great. I got a fucking golden ticket with Gowan Matthews, dude. <clears throat> it's like whenever it gets quiet, whatever you're really thinking about sort of comes to the fore. Dude, it's why people like uh, are, who are emotionally avoidant do things like run marathons all the time. It, well, now it sounds like I'm talking shit about somebody, but there's this girl I work with who's like a fucking athlete-level runner. Like, she's literally considering fucking going out for, like, the Olympic trials and shit. And you're like, oh, fuck. Like, she ran a marathon over the weekend. She ran a six and a half minute mile. She averaged a six and a half minute mile on a fucking marathon. And you think, what the fuck? Dude, you can't run a six. Dude, unless you're, like, an athletic athlete level runner. Dude, when I jog or when I, when I, I, I call it running, but I, when I hear that, I go, oh, I'm just fucking going on a light jog compared to this person. But, dude, I averaged, like, a nine and a half minute mile. And for me, that's pretty fucking good. I don't even think I could run a mile at six and a half minutes, let alone a fucking marathon. But when you talk to these people who, you know, they run like, they just run ridiculous amounts every week. You're like, dude, what are you running from? People who exercise chronically or people who are like workaholics. Because dude, when you stop, the truth comes out. You know what I'm saying? It's why when people who get sober, they're terrified because they think, well, what am I going to do at the end of the day? I'm just going to fucking sit at home after work and just sit with my thoughts. You know, they don't always articulate it that way. They don't even always experience it that way. But that's, you know, when you stop moving, when you stop working, when you stop distracting yourself, it's when the truth comes out. And sometimes I find that uh, in the podcast, you know, I run out of, quote, things to say. And whenever it's sort of in the background all the time sort of comes to the front and it sucks to have those things come out and be like, oh, fuck, I, I can't really talk about that, can I? <clears throat> It's not appropriate for the podcast. Yeah, but it makes me feel like I'm lying. It makes me feel like I'm being disingenuous. But that's that's performing, man. It makes me think about people like Donald Trump who are just a fucking joke. Do you know what I mean? Like they're so far away from the fucking truth, but 
they're not really concerned with the truth. You know, their concern is success and how people perceive them. That is, that is that's where they get joy from, or that's how they get satisfaction from. <clears throat> not in who they really are, but how people perceive them. And again, I know it sounds self-congratulatory, but I'm not that kind of way. Do you know what I'm saying? Like for me, it would not be satisfying to have everyone think I'm successful and know I'm a failure, you know, or for everyone to think I'm a successful businessman and to, to not be, or to think I have a million dollars in the bank and not, or, you know, to be a complete fraud in terms of my creative talent and have everyone think I'm a really good singer and I'm not, you know, I would just, I don't know. I would feel like a fraud. Hell, I still worry about that. <clears throat> I still worry that I'm going to get fucking caught. You know what I mean? I mean, in a way, in those moments when I'm on the podcast and I sort of run out of things to say and it goes silent, I go, oh shit, oh shit. <clears throat> Here I am asking for people to listen to me talk for an hour at a time and oh shit, I'm, I'm, uh, I, I'm demonstrating that I, I fucking don't have the skill set to do this. In a way, maybe it goes back to chemistry where it's like, dude, when I'm in chemistry class and I'm... When I get an A in chemistry, I know I deserve it. When I sit down and do a podcast and I, I listen back and I, I speak for an hour and it's entertaining, I go, oh yeah, you can do this. <clears throat> but when it doesn't go that way, when I'm sitting here thinking, oh fuck, what the fuck do I talk about? I start feeling like a fraud. Actually, um, I think I've talked about this dude in the past, but his name is David Goggins. You hear him talked about all the time on like the Joe Rogan podcast and shit, but he was like this former Navy SEAL. He used to be like this real heavyset guy. Now he runs like fucking... He, he runs crazy marathons. Like, he'll run, like, he, I think one time he ran, like, 100, what do they call them, super mega marathons? I don't know. They're, like, 100 miles or some shit. But he ran something like 100, he ran 100 of those in 100 weekends. Like, I think he ran 100 of those 100 weeks in a row. Does that make sense? He did one of those every weekend, or I should say, he did one of those every weekend for 100 weeks some crazy shit just destroyed his feet but fucking i don't know he did it and maybe that's not true but he does that type of shit but he talks about <clears throat> i forget i don't know I, I saw some interview with him where he was talking about like someone was saying you know when you do these things like how do you what does yourself talk like like when you feel a crisis or um a crisis of what am i saying a crisis or sorry a confidence crisis when you're out there running and you hit the wall or you're feeling tired, like, what do you tell yourself? And I didn't, he never really explained it, but he was talking about, like, cookie jar thinking is what he calls it. I don't know what the fuck that means. But um, he was talking about when you're out there sometimes and you're struggling, it's so you forget all the miles you ran before to get to where you are today. So you may be in the middle of your marathon and you could be on mile 24 and you feel tired and you just want to give up. But it can be motivating to think, I'm just in the middle of one, you know, marathon session that I'm doing, and I'm forgetting about all the miles I ran before to get to where I am now. All the times I got up and put in the work, and whether it was starting at one mile, you know, and just kept pushing it and kept going. And it's like, this is so small compared to all the work that I've done before that I can't let it stop me. It's not that fucking important. Do you know what I mean? And and in the in the grand scheme of things, it just can't mean I can't not only doesn't not only does it not mean that much in actual fact, I can't let it mean that much in this moment either. <clears throat> and so there's a part of me that's thinking like, Yeah, when you're sitting here, you're running out of things to say. It doesn't fucking matter. Dude, even if I just sat here in silence for the rest of the fucking hour and just didn't say shit, would it be a blight on the episode? Sure. But does it really fucking matter? No. 
And dude, it's funny how this stuff comes together. You think you're just talking about shit that's unrelated and it's all connected. But it's like sometimes good enough is good enough. Like sometimes I'm going to sit down and talk and I'm going to stutter. I'm going to run out of things to say. Maybe I'm not even fucking funny or maybe I'm dumb. Maybe I say shit that I regret. Dude, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. I mean, of course I want to be doing a good job. And over the course of all the episodes, I want to, uh, I want to be generally engaging Actually, I'm, the majority of the time I want to be engaging. The majority of the time I want to be great. But if I'm not 100% all the time, it's okay. You know? You got to look at it like a marathon. Like sometimes you get tired. Sometimes you need to stop and go to the bathroom. Sometimes you need to... And dude, we do that on the podcast. You know that. <clears throat> sometimes your boy has to go to the bathroom. Sometimes your boy has a sore throat like he does now. Sometimes he has to drink water. By the way, going to hydrate now. two sips for that ass <clears throat> um but that's part of the exercise you know that's and it actually is part of the discipline of just doing it like even though i'm sort of sitting here sometimes i run out of things to say i think dude just keep talking keep pushing through it because that's how that's how you forge something in yourself do you know what i mean like if i just stopped recording and walked away that's that's setting a dangerous precedent. So the next time it gets difficult, I think, oh, I can just stop. Whereas what you'd rather have, <clears throat> and I'm stealing this phrase from my therapist who themselves stole it from somebody else. Um, not in a malicious way, but like in a, you know, it's a good idea. So share it. But they, talk, they call it the cushion of experience, <clears throat> which is like when you're first doing something, it's difficult. And it's not that it's never not challenging after that. But what makes the future challenges more endurable is you already have the experience, the experience of having gone through it. Um, this is kind of a big topic to get into <clears throat> this late in the episode, but, but why the fuck not? For me, the primary example of, well, there's two. One, a very quick one would be like playing open mics. <clears throat> when you play an open mic for the first time or you get on stage to perform the first time, it's fucking terrifying. And for me, it used to be like, I don't know whether to vomit or shit my pants. I'm so nervous. And I would be like going through my day knowing I was planning to play an open mic that night. <clears throat> and I would get butterflies in my stomach. And I, and I, I would just, it would be fucking excruciating. And I remember how difficult it was to just grab my guitar and walk out the front door to go to the open mic. You know, just to tolerate the uncomfortableness of like walking there, being nervous, putting my name down, waiting for it to be called. And just the fear of walking to the stage. And it's like, dude, for the first like two years of performing, you're not even performing. You're just getting through it as best you can. And it's, you know, and if you're moderately talented, it's still going to go well. And you're going to have, it's, it's certainly peppered with moments where you feel accomplished. But when you look back on hindsight, you just realize, oh, dude, I was just fucking getting through it. I was, I, I didn't, I couldn't even begin to think about performing well because I just wasn't comfortable. And I still struggle with it, but um, but um, when I'm up there now, like when I tour with Matt Nathanson, because your boy's a fucking rock star now, but when I toured with Matt Nathanson, and you're playing a room that's bigger than anything you've ever played before, it's like a thousand people, and you, you get a uh-oh moment, where you start feeling the fucking cart start to shake, like I talk about, where you're getting fucking nervous, dude. What gets you through it is the cushion of experience, because you can tell yourself in that moment, hey, I've done this before. I've done this a million fucking times and I've never fucking crapped my pants once, you know, <laughs> like sometimes you think about before you go on stage, you think, oh, is this the day that I shit my pants on stage? 
I don't know why that seems to sum things up for me, but it just does. Like, on a long enough timeline, dude, if you're on stage all the time... Like, was I talking about this? I was saying, like, oh, you know Ariana Grande has shit her pants on stage at least once. Um, Justin Bieber has vomited on stage. Well, when you spend, spend as much time on stage as Justin Bieber, dude, on one time you're going to throw up. <clears throat> Especially if you're hungover. But, um... But what am I really saying? Yeah, you, you, you literally have the cushion of experience and you can't fake it. You just have to clock the hours. And when you have that cushion of experience, when it gets tough in the future, you can literally lean into your prior experience and say, hey, look, I know I can do it today because I've done it before. <laughs> um, what I didn't want to get into, or I, I was shying away from getting into, for me, the cushion of experience was, dude, anyone who has anxiety will be able to relate to this. But when I was in my... Uh, I guess it actually started probably in my late teens when I was about 17, 18, when I was living in Tucson, but I started having this growing social anxiety. And the only reason I don't like using that word is because I think it gets, I don't know, it kind of gets bandied around a lot. And um, I'm not saying that people don't have anxiety, but I think anxiety has just become this sort of placeholder word for a spectrum of feelings that just have to do with people's general uncomfortableness with like being in public or whatever. And a lot of people are saying they're having a panic attack when really it's... Look, when you have a panic attack, you think you're dying. Um, you being... You sort of being anxious and sort of chickening out is not necessarily a panic attack. But sometimes people call it that because they want to justify um, their shying away. Anyway, the point of the story is is I was having these increasing ang- ang- sort of social anxiety. And I was like, not, I was canceling performances at the last minute because I just wanted to spare myself the experience of having to go through it. I was becoming more reclusive. And a lot of it centered around, I was having these like gastrointestinal problems. So a lot of my fear was like going out in public and I would like have to use the bathroom. And uh, it was never like, you know, I never had like explosive diarrhea like some people do, but it was just like I had to use the bathroom. And because I was already anxious and dude, people are uncomfortable about going to the bathroom in public. You know, it's malodorous. You you know, you don't, it, it, can, it can be noisy. Um, it's just uncomfortable. I think a lot of people are, are not comfortable with uh, having to use the bathroom in public if it's not number one. And um, that became a sort of totem of my social anxiety. And because I couldn't, or I wasn't ready to address what was actually motivating my, look, anyone who goes and goes to therapy, they realize that they're this, the symptom that they're, or the, the thing that they're trying to treat the anxiety or whatever is really just a symptom of some underlying emotional issue. Oftentimes. Now, some people just have anxiety, but for most people who are dealing with these types of things, it's actually a symptom of some other type of underlying unaddressed emotional issue or something like that. And, uh, it's, it's literally like I've described it. Anytime you have some sort of symptom, that's like, um, an extension of like some, um, emotional disturbance, your life can feel like being in a theater and someone yelling fire and you telling them, and, and you're looking at them going, shh, I'm trying to watch the movie. And that's what my life was like. Like my anxiety, my gastrointestinal stuff was literally my body screaming out to me, hey, there's something that needs to be addressed here that you're not addressing. And me spending my all of my time going, shh, quiet, I'm trying to watch the movie. Um, and blaming myself, thinking there was something wrong with me. Anytime I would have these experiences, I would try to muscle through them. And when I couldn't, I blamed myself, thinking I was like too weak. But on a long enough timeline, like I eventually moved out of Tucson and I thought like moving to the Bay Area was going to be like the solution to all my problems. 
And of course, everywhere you go, there you are. And whenever you try to pull, I think they call it pulling a geographic where you try to like move somewhere to like fix yourself. The first thing you fucking pack is your problems, whether you realize it or not. The first thing you fucking pack along with you is your problems. And sure as shit, within like three months of moving out here, I completely fucking broke down. I like, I had a job, I was working, I was hanging out and literally I fucking crashed and it had become such a fucking strain on me every day just to like get to work and like, like getting through my day would, it felt like holding my breath, you know, is how I would think of it. And until I got home where I could sort of like exhale, like getting through my day was just like, I would like open the front door to start the day and I go, (gasps) and I'd hold my breath and I'd fucking get through my day. And then when I got home, I could just go, Oh, and just relax. And a lot of it meant like just getting a six pack and fucking breaking my brain so I could actually like unplug instead of being worried about having to do it all again tomorrow. But after a few months, I completely fucking, I just couldn't fucking keep it up anymore. And I completely broke down. I like took a leave of absence from work that was sort of indefinite. I basically just told them I needed to break and they needed to fucking cons- assume I was gone and then I would come back when I was fucking ready. But I literally didn't leave my apartment for, well, I say literally, but I, I, I effectively barely left my apartment for like six months. And uh, it was awful. It was, it, it was, you know, I, I, I want to say it was the worst period of my life. It, it certainly was the most isolated and lonely and it, it was, it was very challenging, obviously. Um, but I was in such a, you know, depleted place. I don't even know how to say it, but like for me, it was literally a challenge to walk across the street to Seven Eleven. It was literally a challenge for me. I had to like summon the courage to like, there was this uh, grocery store like two blocks away from me where I could do my grocery shopping. It was literally, I had to like summon the courage, to like walk two blocks to go to the grocery store. And it was like, every time I was out, I felt like this sort of tick, 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 like holding my breath. Like when can I get back to my fucking apartment? And my life after that, when I, when I finally was like, I was running out of money. I needed to tell somebody in my life that I needed help. You know, I needed to ask my parents to sort of help me get back on my feet. My life became this sort of, project this this project of like putting my shit putting my life back together and and setting these sort of these benchmarks or challenges to myself to like just like function in the world and originally it was like just walk around the block and that was all i was fucking capable of i would just walk around the block and get back to my apartment and if i did that that was something every day and then it became like well i'm gonna get in my car and i'm gonna drive to this parking lot and i'm gonna sit there and read for a couple hours and if i can do that that's something And I would even do this thing where I was like, I was going to church every, well, maybe five days a week. There was this church called, uh, well, I don't want to say it. Uh, I don't want people fucking checking it out. But there was this church in Oakland that does uh, Latin mass. And, um, you know, I've talked about your boy being interested in religion and all that sort of shit. And there's there's something about the Latin mass and Catholicism that I think is, the ceremony of it that I think is, is, is beautiful in its own way. I got plenty of problems with the Catholic church, but there's something about the Latin mass and... Um, that I find beautiful, that ceremony that I think is beautiful. So I, I, that would be like my event because it was free. I fucking, you know, I didn't want to spend any money. I couldn't go to the movie theater every day, but I was like, I can go to mass five times a week and that'll be my socializing. And that became me getting out, you know? So my day consisted of these little benchmarks that I would set for myself. And, um, uh, you know, I don't know. I'm sure all this stuff will come up again at another point, but all I'm trying to say is the cushion of experience. You know, at first it was really difficult. Like going to 7-Eleven was a fucking hassle. Going to the grocery store was a fucking hassle. And, uh, 
but it would shift. Do you know what I mean? Like it got to the point where, okay, I could go to work and it was fucking difficult. It was really fucking difficult. I mean, I would be watching the clock thinking, okay, oh, it's the start of my shift. Okay. It's an eight hour shift. Okay. Here we go. And it would be like, okay, it's just four hours left. And all right, fuck, we're all, we're going to be out of here in an hour. And I would just fucking go home. And I never fucking hung out with people. Or if I did, dude, it was a fucking commitment. Like if somebody like, oh, we got this shit going on on Saturday, dude, I would fucking, it would be the only thing I thought about all week. Do you know what I mean? And, uh, but you string enough of those little victories together and dude, you end up going places. Do you know what I mean? And it took going to therapy. It took a lot of shit, but it was like, I mean, it's, it's, it's insane to think like, you know, flying used to be out of the fucking question to me. Like the idea of just sitting on a plane and taller, and it wasn't a fear of it crashing. It had nothing to do with that. It was literally the fear of sitting in a airplane for X number of time and not being able to escape. Like riding BART, which is like the subway that we have here, was a fucking nightmare to me. And I would say it's... Uh, it, it's kind of funny. I mean, I would say that hasn't really been an issue for me for a long time. But even when I first started dating my girlfriend three years ago, I remember one time we were in the city. We had like gone to the museum, had something to eat. And I remember out of nowhere, you know, I thought I was fucking fixed. But I remember getting on the bar and like riding back to the East Bay from the city was like really fucking difficult for me. And it was it was really kind of embarrassing to like have her see me that way. But yeah, it's just, it's crazy now to think, um, you know, you go from not even being able to cross the street to go to 7-Eleven to, you know, getting up on stage performing and, um, you know, going on tour or, um, hell, even going to school. Shit. I mean, it's fucking, fucking crazy. But yeah, man, the cushion of experience. Um... Yeah. I mean, I think on another episode I was talking about, you know, there's a part of me that feels like so much of my life over the last, you know, really over a decade has been me like trying to literally run away from this person I was, I was for so many years and and was desperately trying to overcome and not be for so long. And I'm always scared that that person's like right behind me. You know, my therapist is trying to convince me that 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 person's really far away. And sometimes, I mean, I, I see that. You know, I see where my life is and it feels so different. And then other times it feels like if I just, if I stumble, that person's like right behind me. Like one time somebody was talking about addiction and they said, no matter how long you have sobriety for addiction is like, it's just doing one handed pushups in the corner of your brain waiting for you to slip up, you know? And if you take one drink or one hit, you're fucking back in that shit, you know? And I feel that way. You know, I feel this, this thing nipping at my heels and I'm worried that if I stumble, it's going to fucking grab me and I'm going to look up and I'll be right back where I started back in my apartment, not able to fucking go to Seven Eleven. <clears throat> anyway, but you know, I just tell myself, I just remind myself about the cushion of experience. I know that that's not going to happen. I start to stumble. I'm in the podcast. I have trouble talking. I'm on stage. I feel nervous. I'm about to go to work here. I feel like, oh, fuck, how am I going to get through my eight-hour shift? I know I'm going to do it because I've done it before. And I could tell myself all sorts of horror stories about what what could happen or what will happen, but they haven't happened yet. And until they do, until I'm actually faced with those fucking catastrophes or those horror stories, they don't exist. Until they do, they don't exist. And I'm not doing myself any favors by telling myself horror stories. 
So yeah, dude, did we have some hiccups on this episode for this hour? Sure we did. But we, dude, we're running a fucking marathon here, dude. This is part two of the fucking Super Mega, Mega Mix, Super Smash Marathon episode. And we're not going to let it fucking stop us, dude. So, uh, yeah, dude, if you're running the race with me, dope. Um, but, uh, yeah, so we're at the end of an hour here. We're going to take a break. Um, should I remind you to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts if you want to? Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher. Rate and review it, man. Give it a five-star review. Um, if you're enjoying it, dude, share it with somebody. Maybe not the fucking marathon episode, but <laughs> find a shorter episode that you like and share it with somebody that you know. And uh, and what else here? Oh, connect with my socials at this is MXOXO. Probably Instagram. Oh, there's my alarm going off. How cool is that? Um, yeah, find me online at this is MXOXO. And uh, otherwise, we're going to take a break here and come back uh, for part three as soon as we can. All right, thanks for listening. And uh, take a break yourself. You've earned it, okay? But uh, ciao for now. Ahoy! It's your boy, and welcome to part three of episode 16 of the podcast. This is M. Thanks for pushing through and sitting through the first uh, two hours we have here of this Super Mega Mix Marathon episode. Um, I know we named Matt Evans MVP of 2019 in the last hour, but hey, we're already scouting for 2020. So the fact that you're pushing through um, and sitting here with us uh, lets, lets us know that you're willing to go the extra mile. So thanks for being here. Uh, dude, your boy has done absolutely nothing since the, sem- since the semester ended. Um, I mean, other than working. I've worked, but I've spent the rest of my time just sort of laying around and reading. Um, um, I may have mentioned I started reading Notes from Underground at the beginning of the semester and put it down right when uh, things started picking up. and haven't I haven't read for pleasure since. So I basically have gone like three months without reading a book for my own pleasure, uh, which is strange. Because uh, usually I'm a voracious reader. And um, picked up Notes from Underground, finished it. Um, it was great. I don't know, what, you know, the, I mean, I read Notes from Underground probably for the first time when I was like 17. And, um, you know, I'm doing this whole Russian literature kick. Or I should say at least for the last year and a half, I've been on this whole Russian liter- literature kick. And uh, for me, it's just one of a one of a few things that I do like that, which is I mentioned reading the Bible. I think, I don't know. Dude, I mean, I, I, you know, I don't know what the fuck I say in what episode or whenever, but I know, dude, it may even have been in one of the last two hours I was talking about, um, uh, reading the Bible. Uh, I, it took me a little over a year. I think it took like a year and three months. Um, but like, uh, you know, I set a project for myself at some point I decide, oh, I'm going to read the Bible cover to cover. So, you know, I decide how many pages I have to read in each day to get it done in X amount of time. And I, I, I you know, I broke it down into, um, uh, you know, I broke it. F- fuck man, dude, this is going to be a rough hour. I'm telling you right now, I, I'm already stumbling over my, over my words and my thoughts. Um, but yeah, I broke it down into manageable chunks. That's all I'm trying to say. I broke it down into manageable chunks um, into daily reading and finished it in like a year and three months. And uh, I don't know, I was going to say, I don't know how he stumbled on Russian literature. I think it was actually after reading, I read a short story by Tolstoy called The Death of Ivan Ilyich. 
And um, I think even that, because it was referenced in a Stephen Jenkinson book, Die Wise, probably. And I thought, oh, I've never read that. And so um, um, I read The Death of Ivan Ilyich, and I think it just triggered this whole interest in Russian literature. And um, and anyway, so I don't know. I, you know, it's like I, I create my own... I mean, I guess, actually, I never really thought about this, but, you know, I just finished my first semester back at school, and uh, I never finished my undergraduate degree. Um, and I guess even, I mean, even for the last 15 years or so, I basically considered myself, um, you know, not uneducated, but I've sort of described myself that way. You know, I don't have, you know, I languished at a, at a junior college for years, never got a real college education. Um, but, you know, I was sort of self-educated in a lot of ways. Um, you know, I never lost... Yeah, I mean, I guess I was motivated to, like, read the books I wanted to read or, or quote, study the subjects that I wanted to study. You know, I mean, when I was reading chi- Chinese philosophy for, like, uh, three years, I basically created my own, you know, Chinese philosophy curriculum. I mean, I even looked up syllabi <laughs> from other schools, you know, and what, what do they teach for Chinese philosophy? Um, and basically just, like, designed my own course and just sort of ran it. Do you know what I mean? And uh, I think I did the same thing for Russian literature. You know, I... Um, you know, I just, I was like, all right, who are the major authors and, you know, what are their major works or what are the, what are the, what are the books that I even want to read? You know, and I'll create my own, um, syllabus and, uh, just start chipping away. And so you start with people like Pushkin and Lermontov and Gonkarov and, uh, Leskov and Dostoevsky and Tolstoy and, uh, uh Gogol, Chekhov, all that sort of stuff. And you just, and you just start pushing through it. Um, but I think, uh, you know, I, it, and you lose steam with some of this stuff. You know, I was chipping away, getting through it. And then when I hit Dostoevsky, uh, you know, the first thing I was going to read was Notes from Underground. And when I started reading it, I just wasn't getting swept up in it. And I, I just, I, I don't know, I kind of remember feeling the same way about it when I read it when I was like 17. I remember reading it and kind of just going, okay, well, there you go. And uh, And I don't know, I remember really wanting to like it. You know, I think at the time I was probably reading things like The Stranger. Uh, I mean, it may have, I may, I may have even read notes from underground because I was thinking about like nihilism and existentialism and all that sort of stuff you do when you're a, I don't know, a teenager. And so I think I really wanted to like notes from underground, but I don't think I really under, I, I don't think I really understood it, honestly. And I think I liked the characterization. I liked the... You know, I liked the narrator. I like sort of probing his psyche. But the the whole romantic interest for me was always sort of a little strange. And even, you know, coming back to it when I was older, that's, I don't know, it feels sort of Dickensian or something. Do you know what I mean by that? Like there's certain, sometimes you're reading a book and you feel the, uh, oh shit, we got these sirens going by. I don't know if you guys can hear that. Um you know, sometimes there's these weird, like, novel conventions or storytelling conventions, and sometimes you're sort of reading something that's really exciting and interesting and new, and all of a sudden you feel the scenery. You know what I mean? You sort of bump up against the, I don't know, the structure of the novel, and you feel it. You know, it feels a little formulaic, and kind of, I don't know, I don't know if it's opera or melodrama or something, but there's just, I don't know, there's something about the romantic relationship or, I don't even know, maybe failed romantic relationship of Notes from Underground that feels a little... I don't know, forced or, um, yeah, I don't know the word for it. But anyway, the point is, is that, you know, when the semester started and I wasn't being swept away by notes from underground, I said, all right, fuck it. I'll just put it down and went the whole semester without reading, picked it up and, uh, actually enjoyed it quite a bit. Um, 
but again, my favorite part was, you know, the narrator and, um, I'm not going to recount the whole thing here, but basically there's this, uh, you know, he's this sort of, I don't know. I, I keep on back to this idea of incels, but, <laughs> but he's basically this sort of, uh, disgruntled, um, almost self-tortured, nihilistic, uh, you know, um, lonely, sad type of character who just can't function. And, uh, I mean, he's antisocial, not that he's like proactively antisocial, he just can't get out of his own way. And, um, you know, the scenes where he's, you know, sort of embarrassing himself in this, um, going out to dinner with three acquaintances, uh, it's probably the best part of the story. And then it follows this sort of romantic interest with a prostitute. And I don't know, dude, it it feels too operatic. You know what I mean? A little too la boheme, if you know what I mean by that. Um, but anyway... Yeah, so uh, I, I, I guess right after that I read... Uh, this is the fucking point of what I'm trying to say, folks. Oh my gosh, man, dude. I don't know what's wrong with me. You know, I'd say we're three hours into this thing, but I'm, it's not like I'm recording these hours back to back. You know, I'm just sort of uh, recording them like I would any other podcast episode and pacing them together. But um, but jeez, man, my, my brain feels fried. Um. But, uh, you know what? I think, I think part of it is that I'm not running, you know, here we are in the dead of winter and, uh, I ran my half marathon. I ran for like two weeks after that, you know, cause I think I was flirting with the idea of doing a marathon and, uh, but I have not run for like maybe two weeks, maybe even three weeks. I'm, I'm not quite sure at this point, but every time I'm feeling like foggy or depressed or irritable, um, for any length of time, I think part of it is the weather. You know, I mentioned having that seasonal affective stuff, but I'm also, I also forget that I'm not being active. And so, uh, you know, it's, yeah, it's funny you get in these places in life where you work so hard to, I mean, I remember when I wasn't running, I was really kind of despondent about it. I didn't run for like two and a half years or something like that. And preparing for the, for the half marathon, I was really happy to see myself running, you know, and when you're running like nine or 10 miles, you think, wow, only a few months ago, this felt so far away. And here I am putting in the hard work, um, or look how hard I'm working to, to get to this place that felt so far away just a short time ago. And now here I am. And now that I'm here, I'm never going back. And, uh, but you, you know, you do sometimes, I mean, when I was running all the time before two and a half years ago, I thought I was never going to stop running and lo and behold, two and a half years went by and, uh, I was right back in it. And uh, I know it's only been a couple of weeks, and I know your boy is prone to catastrophizing, but it, I don't know. I, I, it's just, it's silly to see yourself feeling sad and wondering why and going, oh yeah, you're not being active, as if you haven't, you haven't had this realization hundreds of times in the past. Um, yeah, I think I closed the last hour talking about, you know, running from yourself, or, or at least for me, a lot of my my, uh, you know, my quote work over the last 15 years has been running away from this person. I, uh, you know, I thought I was for so long and, um, you know, part of that is being inactive, you know, and to sort of see myself sort of almost like a sine wave or something to sort of dipping in and out of, out of these sort of behaviors that I think are like indicative of the, you know, the hide to my Jekyll or, you know, this alter ego, this person who I'm, you know, constantly, the, the werewolf, you know, we were talking about lycanthropy in another episode, this person that I'm, that I'm trying not to be all the time is like right behind me, you know, that I still dip into these behaviors that I feel like are like indicative of being that person. It scares me. You know, one of that is being inactive. 
and uh, so when I'm running and I'm being active, I feel good. I mean, I I, I I don't know if it's physiologically or biologically, I don't know the word for it, but it obviously affects my mood in a great way. My spirits are up. I feel better. There's that aspect of it. But it's it's also just like observing myself and being like, yeah, man, you're doing a good job. You're doing the thing. You know, you're doing the thing you wanted to be doing, and here you are doing it. I don't know if you call it self-actualizing or whatever, but when I'm not doing the thing, I go, man, you're not doing the thing. And not doing the thing is what he does. Do you know? <clears throat> That's what the hide aspect of your personality is. He, he doesn't do the thing. Do you know? Um, and it's not just, uh, I mean, it's not just inactivity. You know, I guess drinking or something was that for a while. I mean, I've only like, um, what's the word? I guess I've only, quote, relapsed. I mean, that sounds like a heavy-handed word, but I mean, I didn't drink for three years, and then I did drink again for a year and a half, and now it's been a few years since I um, quit drinking again. But I think if I ever looked up in my life and saw myself drinking again, that would be another, like, oh, shit, here we are. How are we back to this? Smoking cigarettes, man. I quit smoking for eight years, and I started smoking cigarettes when I started drinking again. I mean, that was unbelievable. I couldn't believe it. I remember the moment too. I mean, I guess I kind of remember, I'm trying to think if I remember the moment when I started drinking again. I think I do. I think I was, I mean, I mentioned saying that I was like recently broken up with a girlfriend and I remember going to this bar. I think it was this bar called Acme on San Pablo. I think that was where I ordered my first beer. I ordered a pint of something like Stella or something like that. That was strange. You know, it's funny. I also have a vivid memory of the first time I bought N.A. beer of non-alcoholic beer because I still drink that, Um, which I think like if I was an AA, they'd like frown upon. But it's something I talk about in therapy. Or I remember when I first brought it up in therapy, I was really apologetic, you know, as like a non-drinker. I sort of felt like on principle, um, if I was drinking non-alcoholic beer, that I was still not free of of drinking. And my therapist was like, nah, it's fine. (laughs) Why is it a problem? And I was like, Oh, yeah, I guess you're kind of right. I mean, if you're like part of a cult or a religion, which I think AA can be sometimes. And I'm not saying that to discourage anybody from going to AA. It can also save people's lives. You know, AA can be a life-saving intervention. But I, I'm also, just in my very limited experience, I, I think there's there's a growing, um, uh, what's the word? Uh, people are increasingly uh, unhappy with it. You know, I think, I, I don't know. I, I think other people's sense is that it's sort of dogmatic and, and maybe sort of rooted in the past or 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 something about it. So, something about it that had maybe formerly worked for a lot of people just doesn't seem to fit with the times. And there's plenty of other options. And there's things like life, what are they called? Life ring, um, uh, refuge recovery, which is like a sort of Buddhist um, perspective on recovery or whatever but 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 anyway the point is that there's other options out of there um out there for for folks who want to look into it but um yeah if i was part of a religion or a cult then i think there'd probably wouldn't be any room for drinking non-alcoholic beer but thankfully i'm not and um you know sure is it empty calories yeah (laughs) you know so uh but yeah it's like any other vice you know some people like eating a piece of chocolate every day or something so if you have an NA beer every once in a while, as long as it's not affecting your, your, your life, why does it really matter? But, um, but the one I have no room for is smoking. Um, 
uh, I mean, I, dude, I started smoking, dude, your boy started smoking cigarettes when he was like 11 years old. I mean, I, I used to like steal cigarette butts out of ashtrays. You know what I'm saying? We would smoke these like, yeah, half smoked cigarettes out of ashtrays that sometimes, sometimes they had like lipstick stains on them. You know what I'm saying? And, um, yeah, I just started smoking at like 11 years old, like a fucking little like street urchin. But, um, but I think, uh, yeah, dude, people are surprised here. I smoked like a pack a day by my freshman year of high school. Like when I went to boarding school, I remember like, uh, I wonder, I, I think I may not have smoked for like the first semester <clears throat> of being at boarding school. Um, I was smoking before, but, uh, when I would go home on breaks too, I would smoke while I was home. But, um, uh, I was a freshman in fucking high school. Isn't that crazy? And when, as soon as I got back, I started having some other kids like buy me cigarettes and stuff. So I was like smoking, I was back to like smoking, you know, like a pack a day, which is insane. Um, and having to sneak it, sneak around too. Like we would go out into the woods and smoke cigarettes or I would smoke in the, um, I would smoke in the vent in my bathroom. You know, I'd have one of those like suction things, you know, you'd flip that on and just sort of stand on the toilet and smoke into the vent. <laughs> Man, it's fucking crazy. Dude, I remember, um, I did get caught though. I remember one time, uh, well, I think, uh, I'm trying to think how this works. I think the rules were if you got, if you got caught smoking, I'm trying to think how this worked. There was a gradation of, of like, if you got caught, I don't think you'd ever get expelled for smoking, but I think if they, I think if they caught you smoking outside, you had like a week suspension on campus. But I think if they had caught me smoking in the room, even though that's exactly what I was doing, if they had actually caught me doing it in the room, I would have been, I would have had to like go home. I would have been suspended off campus. So I, I would have had to like fly back across the country to go home. But, um, but I got caught. I was literally smoking in my bathroom and I apparently I had left some trash down in the lobby or something. So the, the counselors were like coming up to like say, Hey, Hey man, throw your fucking trash away. And they knock on the door and I'm like, Oh shit. Like throw the cigarette down the toilet, flush a toilet spray or whatever. And, uh, you know, I'm obviously taking way too long to come to the door. And, uh, when I finally do, I just say, Oh yeah, I was, I don't know. I had some earplugs in or something like that. And they go, oh, you left this trash. Oh, okay. They hand it to me. And as I'm closing the door, dude, it's like out of a fucking movie. Like right before it closes, the fucking hand comes up and they go, hey, wait a minute. And I was like, oh, uh, yeah. And like, it smells like cigarettes. And I sort of knew the fucking game was up. And, uh, and, uh, and actually I didn't want to rope him into it. But the reason I, I mean, I took the fall right away. I just sort of copped to it because, uh, my, uh, my, uh, my roommate at the time was in the bathroom with me. And now he never smoked, but he was in there with me. And, uh, when I was smoking on the toilet, he would just sort of hang out with me. You know, I think he got a kick out of like, maybe not smoking himself, but kind of being privy to the fucking rebellious part of it. You know what I'm saying? And, uh, I didn't want him to get in trouble at all. So I just basically copped to it. I said, yeah, you know, I'm sorry. I was like, you know, I was smoking out in the woods, like before, before curfew or whatever. So, uh, I sort of knew I was like fucked, <clears throat> but it wasn't going to be, you know, if I could get them to believe that at least I was smoking out in the woods and not in the bathroom, um, it would just be a on-campus suspension. So anyway, that happened. I think I had to like watch a video about the dangers of smoking and I had, a, I had to write like a one page apology or something for my behavior, which is fucking dude. <laughs> it's so funny. Like when you're a teenager, the fucking Hills you choose to fucking die on and like the, the stands that you take. And dude, I, I remember, I remember I wrote this, like, I don't remember what it was, but I remember, I remember it was like this very snarky sort of combative, like non, um, I was going to say non-concessional. I don't even know if that's a goddamn word, but like, you know, I was, I was very, 
Yeah, it was snarky and combative and like, you know, it was like a, a, a non-apology apology type of letter, you know? And um, I don't know, I think I called like, the, you know, the counselors like hypocrites or whatever for like trying to enforce rules when they themselves don't follow it. Like one of those fucking things, you know? Oh, yeah, yeah. And I don't think it deterred. I don't think I stopped smoking on campus. I think I still did. So I don't even know if it taught me a lesson, but, um, but, uh, yeah, dude. And then I smoked for years, dude. I remember, yeah, I mean, I think at my worst, I got up to like two and a half packs a day, which is insane. I mean, dude, I literally remember, dude, I remember being like 17. Oh man. Oh good. I didn't yawn. I thought I was going to yawn, dude. I think we've been pretty good about not yawning. Frankly, we haven't had too many of those on the podcast, but, um, I mean, I remember, you know, I remember like before I turned 18 thinking, hey man, dude, you got to quit. Because right now, you know, I don't want to throw anyone under the bus, but like I had other people buying cigarettes for me, you know, people who definitely shouldn't, shouldn't have been buying me cigarettes. But, um, so it was never a problem for me and it was allowed, you know, in my, in my house, I could smoke cigarettes. It was never like we had fucking ashtrays outside for us and. I'm just saying there wasn't a lot of structure growing up. You know what I'm saying? Like I could smoke cigarettes, I could smoke weed, I could drink, it was, you know, but, um, uh, but yeah, I remember telling myself before I turned 18, dude, I was like, dude, you have to quit. Cause you think it, you think it's bad now, dude? What happens when you're actually able to buy cigarettes yourself, man? Jesus Christ. It's going to be fucking crazy. And yeah, dude, I still, I didn't quit smoking till I was 22, maybe. And I think when I finally quit, I was just ready to quit. You know what I'm saying? Um, I just, uh, yeah, I think I just stopped. And, uh, dude, didn't smoke for like eight years. And, uh, I mean, in the same way I remember the moment I fucking started drinking again, I remember when I started smoking again. I had this buddy, and I, I hope we dedicate like a whole episode to this guy, but like around the time I broke up with my girlfriend too, when I was, and I was probably drinking, I probably had started drinking at the time. So, I, I mean, I think these things are all fucking connected. And this goes back to like the I Ching and all that sort of stuff, but around that t- that um, time period of my life. But there was one person in my life at the time who was kind of, um, I don't know, he was kind of a, almost a spiritual figure. Um, um, I live in Berkeley, California, and it's sort of home to a lot of hippy-dippy types of people. And there was this dude living on my street who lived in a school bus. And he was like a holdover from like the whole Grateful Dead era. Uh, of the Bay Area, and he was a part of that whole scene, like, he knew all those guys, um, but he was living on a school bus now, uh, I mean, he had shelter, but he was, a, you know, he was homeless, you know, uh, his name is Dr. Bob, and Dr. Bob was living on this school bus, and uh, I was uh, spending a lot of my time uh, those days, just sort of going around taking pictures, and I, I never fancied myself a, a photographer, but for some reason, I was on this photography kick, you know, I had this sort of um, Instax, uh, Polaroid type camera, you know, that took these sort of analog Polaroid, Polaroid type photos. And I would just sort of spend, dude, I would like smoke weed and just go for these super long walks. You know, I'd walk like nine miles a day, just walking around Berkeley, taking photos, being high, um, just chilling, you know what I'm saying? And, um, and I just sort of saw his bus one day and it was like super groovy, bro. And, uh, I think he, well, I I came to learn he got that a lot. So he was kind of skeptical seeing me, but I just sort of struck up a conversation with him and, I'm sure it just sort of started us just sort of waving to each other. And I, I don't remember the first time I stepped onto the bus, but he started just inviting me onto the bus and we would just sort of sit down and talk and I would share some weed with him and, and, uh, you know, he tried to get a dollar or two off me or something like that. But over time, our, our conversations, like they got more and more deep. Do you know what I'm saying? 
and um, sometimes they orbited the spiritual. I mean, he, he he knew about the I Ching. We would talk about the I Ching, and um, you know. But he and I met at a very strange crossroads in his life. You know, he was older, much older. He was probably in his late sixties, but after living on the streets for so long, I mean, his health was really deteriorating. Um, I mean, I remember one time. I mean, I remember one time just being on the bus and he pulled a tooth out of his mouth because it was falling out. Do you know what I'm saying? And he was like, yeah, I think this tooth is ready to go. He just reached in his mouth and fucking plucked it out. <laughs> and um, also this bizarre moment where one time we were talking and he just sort of stooled, stood up and dr- dragged this big ass like like water jug out from under this place. I didn't even know it was there. He just pulled out of hiding, unscrewed the cap, like turned his back to me and just pissed in it. The fucking smell was unbelievable. I realized, oh, this is his toilet on his bus, and uh, and uh, it was just bizarre. Um, and I'm I'm not I'm not trying to highlight the um, you know the harder ele- the, or, or how do I say it the uh, the grosser or the you know the harder elements of his life because that's how I experienced him. I mean, he is one of the smartest guys I ever met. I mean, he called himself Doctor Bob. I'm I think he may have had his doctorate, but this guy, I mean, he could read Hebrew. He knew everything about the you know biblical history. He was super, you know, he was one of these guys like, of course, he like knew science and math and physics and all that sort of stuff. And um, just very, very smart. And unfortunately, he was also, you know, he had some mental health diagnoses and stuff like that. And, you know, was just struggling with living on the street the way a lot of people who end up there do. And, um, but yeah, I remember I used to buy him tobacco. You know, a lot of times he would roll his own cigarettes and stuff and I would buy him tobacco. And I remember, I remember a couple of times as, as just like as a treat, I would get him like a pack of Marlboro Reds or something like that, you know, just like a, like a proper cigarette, you know what I'm saying? And I remember one time buying him a pack of Marlboro Reds and, uh, and I remember just taking one for myself, you know? And I, and even at the time that I did it, I just took one. I said, you know what? I'm going to smoke this later. And it was like, what's the fucking line in Camus Stranger where he like shoots the guy and he says like, I shot him three times and it was like three doors knocking on the, or three doors rapping at the door of my undoing or something like that, dude. So poetic, dude, you're, and you're, dude, your boy's so literate, but yeah, there's like at the end of like, I don't know, part one of the stranger or something like that. He shoots the Arab on the beach and, and he's like, and I, I shot three times into his body and it was like three knocks at the door of my undoing or some shit like that. But that's like what it was. Like I literally pulled that cigarette out and put it behind my ear and was like, oh yeah, I'm going to save this for later. And dude, I would always joke about it when I talked to people about smoking. Like I would say, oh no, I quit smoking. And I don't know how you would say these things, but I, I remember saying a few times, like, oh yeah, if I smoked a cigarette today, I'd be up to a pack and a I'd be, I'd be back up to a pack a day within a couple of weeks. And that's exactly what happened. I fucking went home, smoked the cigarette, like probably later that night or who the fuck knows when I smoked it. I don't remember. But dude, before I knew it, I was back up to a pack a day at least. And I did that for a year and a half and it was fucking awful. And, uh, that was one of those times in my life, both drinking and smoking. Um, I was just like, how the fuck did we end up back here? You know, how do we, how did we backslide to that point? And, um, so yeah, I don't, I don't really know how to look back on that time of my life. I mean, it was both like, it was both scary and like sad, you know? And like when I, when I, when I talk about it objectively, I just have to, yeah, it sucks. Dude, I was smoking, I was drinking, I was back to this place I had worked so hard to get away from, but it was also one of the most magical times of my life. You know, I talk about stumbling on the I Ching and, and it's just, uh, I mean, in a way, it's a very 
I mean, there's a part of me that wishes I was having that eating experience without concurrently also being drinking and smoking again. Cause I feel like it's hard, like, I, I want the two to, to be separate, you know, like, because it was such a magical slash spiritual time in my life, I wish it didn't have this accompanying element of like sadness and substance use, because I feel like that invalidates the sort of more, I don't know, mystical underpinning of it. You know what I'm saying? It's like having, it's like saying that you saw an alien sighting and that while you were on LSD and because you're on LSD, no one will believe you, but you want to say, oh wait, no, no, no. I know I was on LSD, but seriously at the same time, it's something like that. You know, I feel like the drinking and the smoking and the misery and the recent breakup and, you know, the fucking going out and, and like, I don't know. I was doing a lot of dating at the time (laughs) and, um, all that stuff. Like, I, I feel like it takes away from that time period. But, um, but in a way, like, I don't know. Have you ever seen the movie contact where Jodie Foster has this experience where like she, you know, she, her experience is that she goes off to some, uh, I think like some star or some fucking thing in some other galaxy where she has this sort of interaction with the alien life. And, on earth, it looks like nothing happened. So she has this very deep personal private experience that she just can't communicate to other people and nobody believes her. But that's sort of the way it goes, huh? You know, our most cherished experiences, like a lot of times they sound like nonsense to other people. And maybe that's part of it, you know, and I'm I'm not, I'm not arguing for faith. Uh, Like I said, I'm still an atheist skeptic. You know, I still value all those things, but it just, it doesn't change the fact that some of the deepest, most personal um, valuable experiences of my life. Like, I, I just don't think I can communicate them to other people. And it's not, not because they defy, um, those things. It's probably more of a capacity issue. You know, I don't have the language or the ability to, to talk about them, but, um, but, uh, yeah, that's just the way life goes, I guess. That's what, maybe that's what art is for, right? To communicate the things that, uh, defy our common experience or, or language or whatever it is. Um, but yeah, yeah. So it wasn't for like a year and a half that I quit drinking and smoking again. And uh, I think I did both at the same time. Actually, no, I take that back. I did this like eight week program at Kaiser, this chemical dependency recovery program where I I quit drinking right away, but I um, I let myself smoke, <laughs> you know? So I kept that vice going. But I remember at the end of the program, I went to New York City to meet my girlfriend's, uh, some of her family for the first time. And I remember since we're going to be in New York for a week, that'll be... You know, anyone who's ever quit nicotine or anything, it's like the first week or two is really the first big hump. And once you get through there, it's really just about sustaining that momentum. <clears throat> so I said, I'm not going to smoke in New York. And that'll be that'll be the momentum I need to, to quit altogether. And so that's when I did. And I think it's been maybe almost three years, maybe two and a half years or something like that since then. In a way, I kind of enjoy the fact that I haven't like, um, um, what's the word? I was going to say deified or, you know, I don't know. I'm glad I, I'm not like treating the actual date that I was sober so preciously. You know, like I had this experience like, you know, if I, my, you know, my concern about, you know, having a drink of alcohol or smoking a cigarette is not that it would shatter the the, the time of my sobriety. Do you know what I mean? It would just be the biological aspect. Like I, I would just be concerned that... Um, you know, I would just be concerned that I would pick it up again, you know, and I'm not saying the time is nothing, you know, like some people want to say I've had 18 years without a drink, but they know like if they, if they had a drink tomorrow, 
I mean, in the same way, when I talk about like uh, the time I spent with the Mormons and like wanting to take them at their word and like pray, because it's like if I sat down and really prayed as hard as I could and had an actual like spiritual slash religious experience, you know, I could choose to ignore it, but then I'd have to live with the feeling, you know, uh, I th- uh, of of uh, hearing the call and not following it. I think uh, I think people experience like alcohol and drug use the same way, which is like. There's so much emphasis and importance placed on the the, t- the length of your sobriety that you know if you if you stumble you know you feel like I had 18 years of sobriety but um, you know I was choking at dinner one time and grabbed the first drink I could and it happened to be the fucking vodka soda that was my friend was having you know and they know that they have to fucking do they have to fucking start the program over again dude I don't know that's something you have to fucking decide for yourself you know what I'm saying. But it's like, um, yeah, I don't know. Maybe, maybe there's too much importance placed on that sort of stuff. Like I remember when I was working in, uh, when I was working in restaurants, I remember one time this girl ordered soup and, uh, she ordered, I think, I don't know if she ordered the vegetarian soup or she just ordered soup that she thought was vegetarian. I can't remember. But as she's eating it, she calls me up and she goes, is there sausage in this? And I was like, I don't know. And I look and what she, she, she's showing me sausage. And I go back to the kitchen and I was like, is there sausage in that? And he's like, yeah. And she was so fucking, I don't want to say she was upset, actually. She wasn't angry upset. But you could just feel this deep disappointment, almost in herself. And she was like, I just, I can't believe it. I mean, I've gone, I don't, I don't know what she said, maybe like four years or so. I've gone four years without eating meat. And I had never really thought about it before, but, and I'm sort of surprised it came to me then, but I just sort of told her, I said, you know, you know, I certainly understand your disappointment. Like, it sounds like you've gone a long time without eating meat in this moment. Yeah, it feels like it destroys that, but it was an accident, you know? And, um, you know, it doesn't under, you know, it doesn't take away from the time that you've gone without eating meat or something like that. Like, I was trying to emphasize the fact that it doesn't really take anything away and, I don't know, in a way, I almost enjoy the vegetarians or even the vegans who are like, yeah, I'm a vegetarian vegan. You know, look, like maybe once a year, I'll have a piece of fish, you know, or if I'm home for Christmas dinner, I'll have some ham. I I know that sounds, I think to a lot of people, that would sound like a betrayal, you know, or that would make them like a hypocrite. But for me, that just kind of makes sense. You know, that makes, like, to me, that makes you sound like a reasonable person. You know, anybody who has two, like their thinking is too black and white. I don't know. Excuse me. Like, I would feel like it's like when you're working out, like you got to have a cheat day. You know, excuse me. Sorry. It's like, you know, if you're working out all the time and you're eating well all the time, like you got to have a cheat day. You know, you can't be perfect. You know, I think that's why people who posture themselves as too virtuous, we just don't fucking believe them. Like, we know what people are capable of. We know what they crave. We know what they want. And in a way, we kind of know what's good for them. You know, I think in, on some level, we... I mean, whether we're... I don't know who, what's right or wrong, but on some level, we... Like, people who are too ascetic or people who are too... Self-denying, or I don't, I don't know the word for it, but... Um, we kind of know that they're kind of, it's sort of needless, right? And I'm, I'm not against standing up for a principle, but at the same time, it's like, also I think having the wherewithal or the, the sanity or the being reasonable enough to realize like you can see, you can be a vegetarian uh, and a vegan and still ingest meat every once in a while. 
I mean, look, I don't want to fucking get into the whole fucking debate about it, but my thought is, is it's fine if you say you, you choose not to eat meat, right? It's fine to say that you're choosing not to support the, you know, the meat industry, which is contributing to pollution or whatever. But I, I don't know what argue, argument you can make to say that it's, you know, cosmically unethical or immoral to eat animals. Um, you know, if you choose to do that, you're certainly welcome to. And maybe it is a higher ideal. I mean, I think there's so many impulses and things that we have that are just biologically based, you know, that we that are not good for society. I mean, I think the roots of xenophobia and racism and prejudice, I think those are all biologically based, you know, fear of the other. And I'm not saying that we should succumb to them, <clears throat> but any, like in the same way that any religious guru or whatever who tells you that their mind is pure and they have they don't have impure thoughts, we go, "You're full of shit." It's not about it's not about not having those thoughts. It's about not acting on them. I think the same thing goes for racism, prejudice, all those sorts of things. Um, a lot of these things are, are hardwired into our brain. Like you may choose not to eat meat. You have an appetite for it, though. It's why people salivate when they smell meat cooking. You know, those are some good calories, man. There's good energy in there, you know, and your body knows that on a level that your brain can't talk it, you know, your your brain can't talk your body out of that biological imperative to get those good calories and energy out of meat, you know, and it's delicious. It's delicious and nutritious. <clears throat> you know, if you're choosing not to eat meat or whatever, I mean, you're extending, um, you're extending a luxury to that creature that's just not afforded to them by nature. You know, I mean, I think we were talking about this in the, uh, I think it was episode nine. Oh, really? About death, that moment of incredulousness, like when your plane is starting to crash, like, holy shit, is this really happening? Can you imagine that the overwhelmingly vast majority of life on this planet, their life ends in terror and suffering and pain? Like, I showed my girlfriend that video. I forget, I forget what it's called. It's like Battle at Serengeti or some shit. It's the name of some park. I forget what it's called. But this family happened to catch probably one of the coolest videos ever. It was like one of the first viral videos that ever, like, I think made the rounds on the internet when, like, YouTube was big. Or first starting, to, when first you when sorry, when YouTube first hit. Which is this family's, like, on this safari or whatever, and they catch, like, this herd of, like, buffalo. And they're not buffalo. They're, like water like bison or something like that these these bison and these fucking uh lions like like grab one of the one of the uh one of the baby bison and like drag it near the edge of the water and then this fucking alligator grabs the leg of the baby bison tries to steal it from the lions and then the fucking bison come back in a huge fucking pack and like you know, scare the lions enough that the, they fucking take the baby bison back and then they fucking chase the lions off. Dude, it's one of the best videos you can ever fucking find. Um, but you have to think, or dude, or watch any nature show when you see like the, the kill, right? The hunt and the kill. Dude, that's how most, most living things die. They get eaten. Their life ends in the jaws of another fucking animal. You know what I'm saying? The fucking boa constrictor fucking grabs you. You know what I'm saying? Dude, look at, just look at your, your own experience. Like when you kill bugs and insects in your apartment, you're just in the shower and a, and a spider is just fucking chilling. And one moment it's completely conscious and the next it's fucking crushed. And it doesn't know what hit him. Do you know what I'm saying? Like the bugs you step on and then you see their legs still fucking twitching. Do you know what I'm saying? 
that's death for most living beings. And if you're choosing to spare animals, you know, that is a courtesy that you're extending to them that's not afforded to them by nature. You know, nobody, nobody watches the nature channel. Anyway, dude, I, yeah, uh, this is not, you, say, you know, sometimes when you start talking about these things, like, like religion or whatever, you just sound like a stone college student. Like, you know, I'm over here pontificating as if the stuff that I'm saying is fucking new and novel, as if it hasn't been said a thousand fucking times before. And dude, if you are a vegan or vegetarian, you probably have a whole defense mounted against everything I'm saying. Like you have some, like, you know how our quarterback has like the fucking, the wrist thing that they snap open and see the plays. That's like exactly what fucking people have when they fight for a cause. Like they have the shit all figured out. You know what I'm saying? It's called apologetics. <laughs> it's the same thing religious people have, you know, they have like apologetics course for religious evangelists. They're like, dude, when you're out there being a fucking soldier for Christ, you're going to be asked certain questions and you need to have the, you need to have the fucking answers prepared. It's called politicking, man. It's what politicians do. And I'm not saying it's categorically a bad thing, but that's what you do. You anticipate your enemy's questions and you fucking uh, prepare for them. It's smart. Sun Tzu in Art of War would have fucking loved it. There probably is a whole chapter in Art of War about that sort of shit. Anyway, dude, what the fuck was I talking about, dude? We, we basically spent like the last like 45 minutes talking about nonsense and I think I originally was talking about like doing nothing, reading, crime and punishment, Dostoevsky, Russian literature. Jesus, man. I tell you, we never fucking know where we're going to end up on this fucking podcast. But yeah, dude. Uh, yeah, so the semester ended, and uh, it's funny. I remember at the end of the, uh, at some point in the last hour, I was talking about, you know, when I get an A in chemistry, if I get that, I'm really going to know that I've earned it. You know, I, I was saying that I, when I knew I had the A for psychology and I knew I had the A in math, I felt like I was getting away with an A. You know, I hadn't really earned those A's. I was getting away with an A. And dude, for math, I still feel that way. I mean, that teacher was fucking, I mean, a really nice guy. You know, I wouldn't want to, I wouldn't want him, I wouldn't want to, you know, hurt his feelings. Not that he's ever going to fucking hear this, but I still don't, you know, I'm not saying he's a bad guy, but he, as a teacher, he was out to fucking lunch, dude. That dude is in outer space. He's on a whole nother fucking planet. You know what I'm saying? So yes, I did get away with an A in math. Psychology, I'm, you know, your boy's smart, man. Your boy's smart. But it's an easy class for me. Psychology is fairly intuitive. Um, great teacher, though. God, what a cool teacher. Really smart, well-prepared, passionate about the topic. But uh, easy A. So maybe I didn't get away with an A as much as it was just an easy A for me. Dude, chemistry was hard. And guess what, dude? Guess what, dude? Your boy got an A in chemistry. Yay! A in chemistry. Yay! Dude, mmm, scholar, dude. <laughs> mmm, scholar. Fuck yeah, dude. Straight A's. First semester back at school, I got straight A's, dude. As cool as that is, though, the reason I bring it up is because the minute that happened, the minute I, I log in, it's, it's actually the only grade that's been posted yet. I just know I have an A in the other classes because of, you know, I've, I've, it's, I, I've done the math and I've seen it and I've talked to my teachers and shit, but um, uh, I should check it after this, honestly, to see if the other grades are posted, but... Um, to make it truly official. But the only grade that's been posted so far is my chemistry grade, and it was an A, which was unbelievable. I saw it, and for five seconds, I was thrilled. 
but the, but and again, the reason I bring it up though is the minute I the minute that passed, I began to explain it away, and I said, you know what, I don't know. The final was quite a bit easier than I anticipated, which is true. But I also, you know, I was like, it was like my psych final. I was the last one out of there, and I spent like the last ten minutes around the time that everybody else left, like just grading it for myself to kind of get a try to get a sense of you know, if, if, if I was being super strict with myself, you know, the broad strokes of the test, I knew I got it. The big, the big concept stuff, stuff, I knew, I knew I nailed it. But the, you know, the final was only out of 50 points. And I was like, that's not a lot of wiggle room, dude. If you miss more than five, I'm going to be embarrassed if this is wrong, but I think 45 out of 50 is 90%. If you miss six and dude, it could be something small. Like maybe you gave the right answer, but it was the wrong number of significant figures, you know? Or, you know, you memorize all these formulas and you do all the math, but, you know, there's a whole section on, like, you know, name, you know, you get the chemical, I don't even fucking know what you call it, dude. This is how dumb your boy is. But, um, you know, you get the fucking, I don't know. I don't know. You have to, like, know the fucking chemical name of some shit. You know what I'm saying? And is, and is it, like, um, calcium dichloride or some shit like that. And the, the naming conventions are fucking crazy. And I never really internalize those. And you're like, dude, if you miss like five of those, you're fucked. You're already in B territory. So anyway, the point is, is that, you know, I self graded the test and said, if, if assuming the worst, I, I definitely got a B. Uh, if I got a C, I'd be incredulous, but there's also a chance you know, if some of the questions I'm a little more iffy on and not certain I got wrong, if I get those right, dude, your boy might get an A. And if I get an A in the final, I knew I'd get an A in the class. But what I really think happened, what I really, really, really think happened is I think your boy did get a B on the final. But I think the instructor, it may have even put me at like the precipice. Like maybe I got an 88 or 89 in the class and the instructor just was like, eh, fuck it, I'll give him an A. Or he graded on the curve and, you know... You know, the saying, all ships rise with the tide. I may have gotten pushed up to an A. And I know that means I got it, but I still can't, dude, I still can't give it up to myself. Do you know what I mean? <clears throat> and that's not like, you know, I'm not feigning humility here. I just, I, I really think that's like an important part of my psyche. You know, when I have the A, I think I'm getting away with it. And so I tell myself, I tell myself, oh, dude, when you get the A, you're going to fucking know that you earned it, you know, and then you can be real proud. And then when I do, it doesn't mean anything. You know, I was talking to this, uh, one of my coworkers, completely unsolicited, apropos of nothing. She just starts telling me about how, you know, she's doing something else with her life. She's becoming a psychologist. But she told me, she said, in her mind, at some point, she had decided that becoming a surgeon would be like her fulfilling her, 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 her potential or realizing her full potential as a human being was at some point was going to be her becoming a surgeon. And I think like most people who think, who assume they're going to be a doctor, you know, they go to college and then they start taking organic chemistry and they're like, uh, mm, nope, dude, it's actually, it's like someone who wants to be a professional athlete. Like, yeah, maybe you're the star quarterback of your high school team. Maybe you get a scholarship to play for college, but once you just, you feel the ceiling of your capacity, you know what I'm saying? And uh, I think for some people, they finally get to college and they start taking the coursework and they go, actually, you know what? I'm, I'm not dumb. I'm not dumb. I'm very, very smart. But this, this actually doesn't play to my strengths, you know? And may, maybe I would be happy, happier doing something else. So anyway, this girl's going into psychology and she's going to be great at it. But um, I was trying, without being dismissive, I was trying to articulate something like, 
you know, it's easy when we look at another course our life could have taken and assume that that would have made us happy. But if you're anything like me, you know, there's every time I put some benchmark in front of myself, you know, I kick the can down the road and say, oh, when I get there, I'm going to be happy. You know, like for music, it's like, oh, when I have this many Facebook page likes or when I have this many Instagram followers or when I get this many streams on Spotify, like that's, that's like from where I'm sitting now, that feels like a certain type of success, you know, that maybe even though, even, even if I don't make a living at it, you know, if I have that many streams, I'll know that I'm a real musician, you know? And of course, dude, whenever you get there, it never makes you happy. Never. And I'm not saying that it's not an accomplishment. I'm just saying it never brings you the type of satisfaction that you assumed that it would. One, because you've already acclimated. You know, like somebody else used this analogy, but I think it fits for myself too. But it's like, dude, if you put me into space and let me orbit the Earth and I saw the Earth like from the fucking space station window, for 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 five minutes I'd be crying and, oh, it's so glorious and I'd have this consciousness-raising experience about my... my uh, you know, my place in the cosmos and this, my, my cosmic perspective and, and all that sort of shit. And then after about five minutes, I'd be like, okay, yeah, yeah, I pretty much seen it. Like, I remember we were down in Mexico one time and we did, um, what do you call it? Is, is it parasailing? I don't know. It's like, you're basically strapped to a fucking, um, parachute and then the boat takes off and they sort of reel you out and you sort of go up in the air and you're, I don't know, you're high up in the sky, but you're also tethered to the boat. Like, I remember being up there and just being, like, after, like, 30 seconds, I think I was up there with my mom, and we were both just like, yeah, yeah, well, we're kind of over this, right? She was like, yeah. And so you just kind of, like, twirl your thumbs, like, looking at the fucking view. And I don't know, you feel like you, sh- you should be more impressed, but you're just not. Anyway, I'm trying to say that I think when you when one sets these types of benchmarks for themselves, they often find them when, when, they, when they actually get there. <clears throat> it doesn't bring them the type of happiness that they thought it would. Um, you know, I think part of that is just part of the human condition of living in our, in our current society. You know, we're never happy with what's in front of us. We always think there, there's, there's more out there. Dude, it's why people, you ever have the same th- feeling as me? It's hard to commit to watching something on Netflix. One, you're either scrolling forever because you're looking for the perfect thing out of so many options. You're looking, you're convinced that there's something better that you're supposed to be watching. And you start watching something and you go, I want to keep browsing. And you start browsing because you think, you know, you want to land on the perfect thing. Dude, it's, it's, you're spoiled by options. And I I think that carries over into our life. You know, we're always wondering if we're not doing the thing. We're not doing the thing we're supposed to be doing. Instead of just giving ourselves to the thing that's in front of us. You know I mean? Like when I was a kid, you would go to the video store and yeah, there was a lot of options, but it was finite. You know what I'm saying? And you would, you know, maybe get one or two or three movies or something. And you took those home and that's what you fucking watched, you know, maybe even more than once before you returned it, you know, but there was no like, you know, you start watching a movie and you don't like it, but you fucking finish it. You know what I'm saying? Cause that's what you're doing. You go, Oh, this sucks. And you're, but you watch it. Cause what the fuck else are you going to do? You know what I'm saying? <clears throat> But anyway, yeah, I was trying to say, you know, when you when you try to imagine some alternate course your life could have taken, of course, it's easy to think, oh, I would have been happier or that would have made me happy. But it, it, it wouldn't have. You just have to look to your own experience today to validate that. Not that it wouldn't have been an accomplishment, not that it wouldn't have been fine. It would have been fine. But it, But emotionally, it would have been a lateral move. You know, even if it was objectively better, 
you know, maybe you would have made more money, you know. Um, it wouldn't have felt any different, I think is what I'm trying to say. Like, you know, people who have these, like, near-death experiences, they have these, I don't know, I keep coming back to the word consciousness raising, but people who have these sorts of near-death experiences, I think they often recount, like, oh, it really you know, for this one time, or, you know, they say, uh, nothing will be the same after this. You know, I have this newfound appreciation for life, and I realize that every moment is precious, and, and, and we have to uh, enjoy the moment as it passes, and not live in the past or the present, but in, and, you know, not get uh, distracted by the, the, uh, the hustle and bustle, and the, you know, the, the daily struggle, and, and realize that these things don't matter, and appreciate the look in our child's eyes, and the taste of a bit of chocolate, and all that sort of fucking shit, but on a long enough timeline, everybody returns to a certain base state, you know, and the person who dodged a bullet six months before is once again screaming at the person who cut them off in traffic, you know what I'm saying? They return to this base state of just what, what life is, and uh, I think the same is true for, um, for anything, you know, whether or not you're a psychologist or a psychiatrist or even a surgeon, you know, yeah, you're very happy for a moment and then you just sort of return to your base state. That is your new normal. And I think it's the, I think it's the end, I think it's the undoing of many a celebrity, of many a politician, you know. They think there has to be more. And so they strive for more and more. It's, a, it's the whole Icarus thing, flying too close to the sun, you know? Or uh, Phaeton, I think is the other one. Phaeton, or whatever the, the, uh, whatever the uh, Ovid metamorphosis um, Greco-Roman equivalent to Icarus is. You know, Phaeton is the son of the, or the, literally the son of the sun god and rides his chariot across the sky and crashes it because he doesn't have the power to control it. Anyway, dude, mm, scholar, dude, so literate your boy is. So literature, boys. Dude, what's this thing that everyone's watching now that I don't give a fuck about? The Mandalorian? I keep seeing these memes with Baby Yoda, and I just go, oh, I don't give a fuck about that, dude. Yeah, I, dude, I don't understand people get swept up in that shit. Star Wars. It's, I don't know. I know it's, um, you know, comic books, whatever. I know it's kind of cliche to fucking, you know, call it... In, to, you know, I just don't understand. It's it's to me. It's sort of infantilizing. I, I I'm just surprised that so many adult males around me are fucking. So, they care so much about comic books and the fucking Avengers. It's like, please come on. <clears throat> but uh, but anyway. Yeah, I don't know. It actually, I mean, it reminds me, I think, uh, when were we talking about Jesse Smollett? I think it was probably the end of the first hour of this thing. We were talking about Jesse Smollett. You know, and I was, I really sort of stole the idea from, <clears throat> I was talking about, oh, actually, I mentioned this YouTube video that sort of breaks down his psychology, and I couldn't remember the title of it, but it's, I think it's called I Fought Back. And it's sort of like, you know, he has this moment when he's in the full wake of being, um, you know, supported and, um, he's in full victim. Uh, I'm trying to think of a good word for it. He's being championed as a victim. You know, I was saying that there's currency in, in victimhood and he totally fucking cashed in on that. Um, when he was in the full wake of that, he had this speech from a, you know, he was a musician at the same time. And, uh, 
and uh, he was on stage and he said something like, oh, and I, and most importantly, I fought back. First of all, it didn't fucking happen at all, but the idea that he can bloviate and sit on his moral high horse and, and take so much pride in saying, I fought back, you know, and a crowd of people are just fucking cheering him on. It's just fucking crazy. But, um, but yeah, I think the video, I fought back, that sort of, art, it tries to articulate like the psychology of a person who does something like this is, dude, when you're like, a, you know, when you acclimate to the, your level of celebrity and you're looking for an opportunity to advance and you're not seeing what it is, you know, you just take a look at the cultural climate and say, what's it going to take for me to advance? And, and I, I mean, it's like, you know, I talk about cheating athletes or doping athletes, you know, they just have to keep going. You know, so I, I mean, sometimes you could argue it's out of necessity. Like if you got a family to support and you're falling behind in, you know, you've done everything you can with uh, diet and exercise and, and uh, practice and all that sort of shit. And you're realizing, oh, to get to the next level, like everyone's cheating. Well, I have to cheat too. I, I, think, th- I think that happens in every discipline, entertainment, politics. People just assume, oh, this is how the game is played. You know, to enter into this echelon of society, the rules don't apply. And the people who have the will, dude, I was telling you, I just, I, I assume I mentioned it. I don't know what the fuck we're talking about this hour, but I read Crime and Punishment. And it's sort of funny when, you know, I've mentioned this before, like sometimes you'll have like Dickens or you'll have Don Quixote or you'll, you'll have some book on your bookshelf that you that you think, uh, you try to read it like a hundred times and you always read the first five pages and you fucking put it down. But when you actually sit down to read it, you you feel like, oh my God, I'm reading it exactly when I'm supposed, like I couldn't read it those times because the cosmos didn't want me to read it then. The cosmos wants me to, to read this book right now. I mean, I told you, I've been spending all this time, you know, for whatever reason, watching all these interrogation videos and these uh, police interview videos and interviews with serial killers and... um you know, talking about the Jussie Smollett case and, you know, what's the psychology of a person who does something like this. And then your boy sits down and reads Crime and Punishment for what feels like no reason at all. And then he realizes, oh, of course, it should be more obvious, but it's not to me for some reason. Everything I've been thinking about for the last few months is summarized in this novel or was like preparation for understanding or really valuing like what's taking place in Crime and Punishment. And uh, I don't want to go on a fucking book report or whatever, but the idea, you know, spoiler alert, I guess, but like you're supposed to know what happens in Crime and Punishment. But basically it's about a young guy. He's poor. He's sort of destitute living in um, Petersburg, um, St. Petersburg in Russia. And um, and uh, he kills a pawnbroker and her sister, you know, and, and supposedly it's to like get enough money to sort of venture off into the next chapter of his life. But he doesn't really steal anything. He gets so wrapped up in the experience and i mean it's sort of funny he prepares himself he tries to steal his nerves beforehand to say oh the reason people get caught is because they don't have the fortitude you know they get freaked out they don't plan well enough and they you know at, at the moment where they're supposed to be the most rational and conscious they they lose track of that but I, I i know i have the constitution and the wherewithal to 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 do the crime well and to get away with it and you know i'll i'll get x number of dollars from the robbery and that'll launch you know i'll be able to help my family and that'll help launch me into the next you know part of my life the minute he commits the crime though he gets you know he succumbs to what everybody else does is they, fr- they they're frantic they panic and he doesn't even get anything of value from the uh, from the murder, from the theft. You know, he makes off with some baubles, essentially, do you know? Some trifles, which he buries. 
you know, there's a point where he steals a purse and he never even opens it up to look at how much money is inside of it. But the psych, but the point of the novel is that the drama of the novel is the murder happens and it's someone wrestling with the fact that they, they could not have prepared themselves for the consequences of this crime. They fancied themselves above the law, not just the letter of the law of society, but the cosmic law of what's allowed. You know, there's a minor footnote in the character list. You know, I have, I, I usually, if I can, I usually try to read the Norton critical edition of these, of, of the classic books. One, cause it's like a, a you know, you know, it's going to be a definitive text, but it's also has a bunch of supplementary essays and articles and, um, just helps you understand. I don't know. It helps you understand the novel more, right? Like I like reading the books, but I also, you know, mm, scholar, you know, I like reading, I like reading about the text also and understanding its place in society or culture or how other people interpret it, et cetera. But there's a minor footnote in the character list that says something like the word that we translate as crime, you know, the conventional translation of the title crime and punishment, the word that they use, it actually has like an implication of like stepping over a barrier, stepping over a, uh, um, yeah, stepping over a barrier. And so there's this implication and it's it sort of stated in the text a couple times, this phrase like stepping over, I stepped over the barrier. And I don't know, I mean, maybe when I read these articles, I'll I'll realize that other people are picking up on this too. But in that one little footnote, it seemed to me like the thrust of the novel, it's not just, oh, I committed a legal crime and now I have to deal with the consequences of guilt. It's someone who literally transgresses a cosmic law. They attribute some moral authority to themselves, that somehow the rules don't apply to them that they dare to assume that the rules don't apply to them in the same way they apply to other people. So they create this, they do this, they do this deed. And the punishment is not get it, you know, it's not getting arrested. It's not the fear of getting caught. It's living with the sort of psycho spiritual torment of knowing that you crossed a barrier that you weren't supposed to, that you sort of shattered, you, you, you rebelled against the, you, the cosmic law that no one is supposed to, and you're living with the psychological torment of knowing that you did that, that you acted in a way that's counter to your nature. You, you've betrayed your own nature. And in a way, you betrayed nature itself. I mean, I think I was saying, you know, I told a story about the, uh, the woman who was a, was a fucking detective herself and had gotten away with murder for 25 years. You know, unless you're truly a sociopath. I mean, you even hear interviews with Ed Kemper and these people talk about how fucking tortured they were. Do you know what I mean? Um, to, the, the, the scariest prospect is not getting caught for murder. It's getting away with it. Living with yourself for the next 25 years or the rest of your life. Do you know what I mean? But there's something to this idea and even there's a monologue. You know, the best scenes in Crime is Punishment for me are, um, I guess you call them an investigator for lack of a better word, but there's basically three, co- three um, confrontations between Raskolnikov, the protagonist who, who is guilty, and the uh, investigator. And it's never fully revealed if the investigator is fully aware that Raskolnikov is guilty or if it's just in the, in the mind of Raskolnikov because he knows he's guilty, if he's projecting this experience. But they have these great banters back and forth and those scenes are the fucking best parts in the novel. But even in that moment, um, the, uh, you know, fucking Russian names are fucking crazy. Like there's like three characters whose names sound exactly the same, like Porfiry Petrovich or some shit like that. But the inquisitor brings up this article that Raskolnikov had authored and had published and, and, uh, it talked about crime. 
And uh, on the one hand, he says, with every, cr- every, every crime is accompanied by illness, which is exactly what he's experiencing. You know, the minute he kills the person, he succumbs to delirium and, and uh, psychological torment, et cetera, et cetera. But he articulates this idea that he believes the great figures in history, the rules don't apply to them. You know, the rest of us so go... Like, I was talking about Marlon Brando's monologue in Apocalypse Now, where he talks about he knew we were going to lose the war because these people had the will to do what the other guy wouldn't. And I think whether you look at people like Donald Trump is a perfect example, who's getting fucking impeached, by the way, which is awesome. But Donald Trump is the type of person who thinks the rules don't apply to him. And on one level, he's kind of fucking correct. Like, he is successful. I'm not saying he has the type of success that would make any of us happy, you know? And I'm not not even saying he's a success the way he describes himself as a a success. He could be a failed businessman. Every business venture he, he entered into could have failed. He's still the president of the United States. And yes, he's getting impeached. But the point is, is he has a type of success. He has a type of power. And, uh, it's because he doesn't play by the rules. He's not hung up, you know, on things like truth, you know what I'm saying? He just says whatever he wants and he knows people will believe him. You know, he's not like most of us, like you and me, who care whether or not what we're saying is the truth. Like for people like you and me, it wouldn't make us happy if other people thought we had a million dollars if we knew we were broke. Donald Trump doesn't fucking care about that. He sort of transcends the moral or ethical code that we live by. Most of us live by. And you look at great figures in history, and, and, and you know, this is not just my idea, I'm, I'm taking this from Crime and Punishment also, but, you know, in any other context, Napoleon would be considered a fucking uh, a mass murderer, or Julius Caesar would be considered a mass murderer. But we apply import to these people, or we, we attribute a value to them to where the rules don't really apply to them, you know, and I think they saw the same thing. They said, look, if you just discard what everybody else is inhibited by, you can achieve whatever you want. And so, the, so basically, the, the drama of crime and punishment is someone who dared to believe that the rules didn't apply to them. And not arbitrarily. They, maybe they saw it around it. They looked at concrete examples in their own life that said, look, that person doesn't play by the rules, and look how, look how where they're doing. Like, you know how many people probably doped because they saw Lance Armstrong doing it? Not just the rumor of him doing it, fucking knew that he did it. And said, well, that's what it takes to play the game. And then they did it, and it was their fucking ruin. Psychological undoing. I think there's probably a case that Justice Smollett was the same way. He said, look, if I want to advance, this is what I got to do. And you know what? I'm, I'm going to get away with it. I'm, gonna th- I'm not going to succumb the way other people do. I'm going to think this through. I'm going to fucking figure it out. I'm going to pay these guys off, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, and it's going to fucking work for me. And for a while, he thought he was fucking getting away with it. But it all came crashing down around him. And if he's a sensible person, he'll realize that his redemption, retribution, I'm not sure the word for it, but his, really his redemption is going to be an understanding that, you know, he, of course he lied, you know, but the reason that that bothers us is not because we care about lying as much. It's because he dared to believe that the rules didn't apply to him. Anyway, fuck, man. Woo, 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 woo. Damn, dude, your boy is... Dude, this is practically a fucking sermon over here. 
anyway, there's definitely more I want to fucking say about it, but Crime and Punishment was phenomenal. And um, just to sort of put a button on all this stuff, I mean, I was talking about Notes from Underground. You read these things when you were younger. And I read three quarters of Crime and Punishment when I was probably like, probably 17. And I uh, didn't finish it. And I think there's just some things that you just can't understand until you're older. And I think Crime and Punishment might be one of those novels. But uh, so glad I read it. And, and again, you know, you're reading it at a time where you really feel like I'm supposed to be reading it. You know, so anyway, I'm sure we'll have more to say about it. But dude, man, whoo, what a wall to wall hour of conversation here. It almost, dude, it's, and I, I really enjoyed that. It almost, um, I don't know, I almost regret having a sandwich this hour sort of in the middle of this uh, marathon that we're running here. But uh, that's what it is. And it doesn't mean, and dude, look, this is a fucking thought factory here. This is a stream of consciousness thing, man. We're going to have good, even better hours ahead of us. So, no reason to get hung up on this one. And actually, I got to be honest, of, of all the, you know, the fact that we're stringing all these hours together, I, got, I think they're all pretty good. You know, I've listened back to, you know, I usually record and listen back to these things pretty quickly. And I got to say, we've done, uh, we've hit quite a stride, I think, with the podcast. And uh, it means a lot that you guys listen, and thanks for pushing through on this other episode. And, uh, you know, I'm sure I'll find time to record one more, one more hour before the episode goes live. So, uh so I'm not going to say goodbye. I'm going to say let's take another break here and uh, take a break yourself. You've earned it. Um, and thanks for listening. I guess I should remind you, if you want to subscribe to the podcast, you can at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh, share it with a friend. Think of one person in your life you think would like it and shoot them an episode. Shoot them this episode if you want to. And uh, read and review it wherever you listen to podcasts. Give it five stars. And uh, you can connect with my socials at thisismxoxo. And yeah, let's take a break here. Thanks for listening. Ciao for now. It's your boy, and welcome to the fourth and final part of this uh, Super Mega Mix episode we're doing here of the podcast, episode 16. Did I say everything right? Jesus. I feel like I have a fucking brain tumor. Hold on, let's start this again. Ahoy! It's your boy, and welcome to part four of episode 16 of the podcast. Um... Thanks for tuning in. Uh, if I sound strange, it's because your boy is super sick. Uh, spent some time in the Pacific Northwest uh, for Christmas and New Year's uh, with my girlfriend and her family. And um, I'll probably... Oh, sorry, I dropped my phone. Uh, I'll probably... Uh, oh, man. Dude, and it's like it's hard for me to talk. It's like hard for me to summon breath enough to speak. But um, And uh, so sorry, I'll be sniffing into the into the microphone, I'm sure. Um, and even as I'm talking now, if you can hear some, uh, extra noise in the background, that's my heater going. Cause it's cold, baby. And, uh, and I'm all bundled up here. I'm doing the podcast here with my, the hoodie, the hood of my hoodie over my head. So I probably, if anyone, I probably look horrible, but, um, but that's okay, man. We're doing it. <clears throat> we're back here wrapping up this super long episode of the podcast that we're doing. You're a trooper for sitting through all of it. And, uh, I know most people won't, so... 
I'm sure there's only a few of you listening, but for those of you that did, thank you. And, um, and, uh, this is our first recording here in the year 2020. And, um, now that I'm, I don't know why I just didn't end the last, uh, I don't know why I just didn't start a new episode. Um, but, uh, but we're going to wrap, um, this super long episode up with our first recording in the year 2020. And then, uh, uh, later this week, we'll come back and start the year fresh with episode 17. Um, but, uh, yes, if you want to subscribe to the podcast, you can, uh, you know how to do that stuff. You're smart. Uh, find it anywhere you listen to podcasts, Apple podcasts, Spotify, uh, Google play, Stitcher, uh, YouTube, subscribe to the YouTube channel. Um, Maybe by the end uh, of 2020, we'll start the video podcast element. Um, or maybe we'll start it sooner. I don't know why I feel the need to put it off so much, but uh, but uh, hopefully we'll do that pretty soon. And uh, otherwise, you can connect with my socials at thisismxoxo. And if you want to share the podcast, please do. Think of one person in your life you think would like it. And uh, and share your favorite episode with them and encourage them to sub- to subscribe to the podcast as well. Oh, I hope everyone had a good Christmas and Hanukkah and a happy new year. Um, I spent mine on, uh, my girlfriend flew out a couple days uh, before me. She flew out to Seattle, spent some time with uh, one half of her family. And uh, so I had a couple days here just kind of doing nothing. I think I did work though. Um, Ended up flying out on Christmas day. And uh, if you hate traveling during the holidays, I highly recommend you travel on Christmas Day because it's probably the slowest I've ever seen the airport, um, which is surprising. I figure most, you know, sometimes I think I'm smart, and so I think, oh, you know what, I'll dodge a bullet and fly on Christmas Day. And of course, you know, I'm not that intelligent. Everybody else has the same idea. So I half expected traveling to actually be crazy. But uh, I I literally marched right through security. I think there was maybe 10 other people in line. And... um, and uh, had an easy flight out to Seattle. Uh, spent the first night there uh, eating a lot of food. I always, it's such a cliche, but I literally gained like 10 to 15 pounds over the holidays because uh, I usually spend it with my girlfriend's family and they eat so much. And, uh, and uh, I don't know where they hide it all. They're all super petite, tiny people. But they'll, I'll joke with my girlfriend, I'll say, you know, we'll literally have a full meal and then they'll come out with like a second course or something. Um, so yeah, so, uh, ate a bunch of food in Seattle. Then the next day we drove down to Portland with some of her other family members and we ended up spending about four or five nights there. Um, and, uh, she and I had actually planned to spend New Year's Eve back in Seattle where we were flying out of. And, uh, so we had a couple days that we spent in the interim in Hood River, which is, um, an area just on the border of Oregon and Washington secluded is probably not the right word for it but it's uh it's kind of remote it's a small town kind of vibe and uh, there's tons of hiking out there uh i'm sure in the summer there's a lot of water sport activities and um a lot of breweries and stuff so it's pretty chill and uh, i think especially in the winter it's pretty uh pretty slow i'm sure it's crazy during the summer but uh during the winter it's pretty quiet so uh did some hiking uh, beautiful area. Really, really, really lovely. Um, my girlfriend is a super light, I, I don't drink and my girlfriend's a super lightweight. So the first night we did go to this brewery and she ended up having a flight of beer, which I think we did the math and it was only like two bottles worth of beer. It was like 24 ounces of beer. 
<clears throat> and she was still so hungover the next day. We went for this hike. She ended up getting sick on the hike. And um, so uh, we had a sort of a light lunch and ended up spending the rest of the day back at the hotel. Uh, I did some reading. I've been reading a lot of Dostoevsky. And uh, I've been really enjoying it, actually. I remember uh, I said right when the, the school semester ended, I went back to Notes from Underground. I finished reading that. And uh, I think my plan after that was to read... Oh, I read Crime and Punishment. That's right. I almost completely forgot about that. <laughs> uh, I read Crime and Punishment. And then uh, I think my plan was to read uh, The Idiot. But um, as I was at the bookstore looking for something, you know, the next sort of Dostoevsky book to write... to. Um, uh, to read, I got this huge collection of his short fiction, um, and so I ended up reading all of that over the the vacation uh, while we were out of town, and uh, reread Notes from Underground, um, a different translation that was included in there. Uh, read The Double twice. Uh, read The Gambler, uh, which is a novella that I actually it was actually the first book years ago. My mom had gotten me a e reader, like a Sony e reader. This is like before the Kindle or or whatever. Um, even the iPad probably. And the gambler was the first piece of writing or fiction or whatever that I I had ever read on a digital, I don't know, digital reader. Um, I had gotten like a PDF or something of it off like Guten, what is it? Project Gutenberg. Cause it was like in the public domain or whatever. I'm, I'm not sure how I landed on that story, but, um, that's what I ended up reading, read that. And uh, there was some other stuff in there I didn't really like, but uh, the stuff that did stand out to me was a, a short story called A Disgraceful Affair. And it's sort of surprising to me about Dostoevsky because, you know, you know he's obviously a, a wildly popular writer, but he's also somebody that you would imagine a lot of sort of hipster intellectuals would like to read. You know, he's obviously one of those writers that you're supposed to read if you, if you, you know, want to be considered well-read. You have to have read Dostoevsky, you know what I mean? And um, I'm actually sort of surprised, and I'm not a scholar, so don't, uh, there's a good chance I actually don't know what I'm talking about. But at least when you read Dostoevsky, he seems to hate liberals. And, uh, it, you know, it's not that he's, uh, I mean, he's not a socially conservative person. I mean, most of his stories deal with sort of the plight of the under of the underclasses and the plight of the, the poor and... Um, you know, he's certainly a social critic. Uh, he's not a conservative in, in the sense that we think of them uh, here in the United States these days. But he certainly ha- hates, he seems to hate the the liberal left and progressivism. And uh, he's, he's a certain type of conservative. And maybe it's Christianity. It's, it's certainly quasi-mystic or something. I'm not sure what you call it exactly. There is a sort of religious conservatism to him. Um, but... Uh, you know, when you read a lot of his stories, he certainly makes fun of the the progressives of his time period. You know, the nihilists and the the free thinkers, and um, he does a great job of just sort of lampooning. And and again, maybe I'm just sort of seeing him through my own my own um, um, you know from my own perspective or my own prism or whatever you want to call it. But you know, I've said in the past, my problem at le- at least today with the sort of the social justice warriors and and uh, the liberal left that we have here in the United States today is not the cause. You know, it's not their, it's not what they're saying that I necessarily object to. It's the way it's presented. It's this sort of, I mean, we call it virtue signaling, right? But I, it's this sort of, um, it's like cheap virtue. It's like, um, 
it's like this cheap path to virtue. And the reason I'm thinking about it is there's this short story called A Disgraceful Affair. And it's about this, I don't know if he's like a government clerk or, or what you call it. And all of Russian literature takes place in like these government offices and everybody's like a, a government clerk. And everybody's, it's sort of like in Bartleby the Scrivener by Herman Melville. Everyone's just sort of copying papers and shit. Um, but, uh, uh, but, but the, the story starts with these two sort of government officials, um, sort of higher ups, and they're sort of in, enjoying their evening, having a, cu- a couple of drinks at a friend's house or whatever. And they're, and one of them is this sort of bloviating kind of liberal progressive who's talking about how, um, you know, things need to change in Russian society and people need to be concerned with the the poor and to care about their needs and to condescend to, um, you know, break the, you know, the the um, excuse me, sorry, I'm trying to suppress a burp here. <clears throat> to uh you know the 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 wealthy need to extend themselves to the lower classes and and to change the way that they interact with them and all that sort of stuff and and uh you can tell uh he's really getting a kick out of hearing himself talk you know he's probably less concerned with his ideals as much as he is sort of in love with the sound of his own voice and um you know, his friends sort of make fun of him for it, or say he's too idealistic. And, and one person even says, you know, we can't live up to those types of ideals. And, um, and that sort of is ringing in, the, in this counselor's head as he's sort of like walking home by himself in the snow, kind of drunk. And he ends up stumbling on the wedding party of one of his uh, underlings. And so you hear his whole internal monologue of how he's going to go in there and he's going to surprise them with how affable he is and he's going to condescend to share their company. And he has it all played out in his head that he's going to, uh, you know, how they're going to... Uh, uh, he's going to endear himself to them by demonstrating to them that he's not like his other peers. You know, he's not like the other higher ups that he's a man of humility and a man of character and a man of virtue. And he has this whole scenario in his head about how the, how it's going to be played out where he's going to be welcomed and he's going to be loved and he's going to be celebrated for being a, a virtuous man. And of course he goes in there, he completely makes a fool out of himself. He's completely misread or, um, uh, miscalculated the, um, you know, that these people are going to see right through him, you know, that they're not going to experience his charity, his virtue. It's going to be patronizing to them. And if there is any tension between these two social classes, it's probably for good reason. And, uh, they're going to, you know, they resent his presence there. Um, and, uh, they've properly, um, you know, calculated that he's there for his own, self-gratification. And if anything, they're even more resentful um, for continuing to have to play along in this power dynamic, you know, and to play a role to sort of, you know, cater to this person's desire. And uh, he ends up creating a scandal. I mean, he ends up embarrassing himself and getting too drunk to even speak. And um, and uh, yeah, there's something about that that felt particularly timeless. It's the type of story I wish a lot of the, uh, sh- uh, you know, the sort of social justice warriors that I... <laughs> Tend to, inter- tend to interact with in my life this sort of this sort of patronizing um uh the the heroism of most people that i sort of experience when they when they talk about what uh the world needs the, the sort of self-certainty that people speak with when they talk about social issues i thought uh people should read a disgraceful affair by dostoevsky and see if they see themselves in these uh in this character um but uh yeah, man, even talking about it, I'm out of breath. <clears throat> really, dude, I have not been this sick in a long time. Um, it was sort of funny. I 
I said to my girlfriend, um, I think literally the day before she got sick, I mean, I, I wasn't even starting to feel bad. I just said, you know, I've never really seen you sick since we've been together. Um, you know, I think one time she and I both went out to dinner one time and got sick from something that we ate, but like, I've never seen her in the, you know, over three years that we've been together. I've never seen her just like in bed, curled up, coughing, sneezing, you know, with a cold or anything like that. And she said the same thing about me. Oh, I've never seen you that way. And literally the next day she's throwing up to be fair. Cause she's just a little hungover and not cause she's, uh, not cause she uh, got wasted or anything. She's just a lightweight. She drank two beers and was sick from it. And then literally the next day we're driving back up to uh, Seattle from hood river. And I start feeling awful, man. I start coughing or not really coughing. I had this horrible headache. And I remember telling her, you know, it's funny when you're an adult, you can literally feel the moment that you get sick. You know, I think when you're younger, it just sort of hits you and and I don't know, but literally when you're an adult, you literally feel the tickle in the back of your throat. You know, you swallow, like you'll just be like sort of going through life and all of a sudden you swallow and it's a little strange and you just go, "Uh uh-oh, I'm getting sick. And literally as we're driving up from Seattle, I just swallow and feel, uh, that feels strange. And then the headache starts to come on. And literally by that night, you know, we were supposed to go out and do karaoke with some friends of hers. <sighs> Excuse me. Do some karaoke with some friends of hers for the new year. And, uh, and yeah, I just couldn't do it. I, I was like, I just need to go to bed. So she went out and celebrated the new year uh, properly. And I was just sleeping back at the, uh, at the Airbnb. So got back into town and uh, I'm only getting back to work tonight. I'm supposed to be working tonight starting at midnight. I'm working the overnight from midnight to eight in the morning, which is crazy considering how I feel. But, uh, but, uh, I also just came back from vacation and, and need to make some money. So, uh, so there you go. I'm a warrior and here I am sitting down doing the podcast Maybe And who knows, maybe we won't even go for the full hour. Maybe we'll just go for a little bit until I run out of steam. But um, but yeah, what am I thinking about? I think I'm still thinking about Dostoevsky. <clears throat> I think I was trying to equate these two thoughts, and I, I think I only just landed on it. But I was saying, you know, there's something about this cheap path to virtue. This sort of, I was thinking of, have you ever heard of the theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer? I'm pretty sure he was German. He's a Catholic theologian, and he wrote uh, around the time of World War II. And I don't think he was put in a concentration camp necessarily, but I think he was arrested and imprisoned. And I think I don't know if he was executed, but I think he died in prison um, because he was ca- because he was Catholic uh, by the Nazis. And uh, he wrote this book called The Cost of Discipleship. And I probably read it about maybe like I don't know, probably like 15 years ago or something like that. And so I don't remember all of it, but I do remember this concept of cheap grace, he termed it. And uh, I think it's probably more prevalent in like sort of evangelical. I think for him, it was it was basically the case against Protestantism. Pro- Protestantism. Did I say that right? Prote- protest- pro- Protestantism. Yeah. Ev- evangelical pro- Protestantism. But it's basically this sort of liberal form of Christianity that was just non, non-Catholic. And... Um, and uh, I think at least in his eyes, it seemed like their stance was, well, you just have to say the right words or say the right prayers or, or be, repentant, be repentant and, and uh, you'll be forgiven. And, 
and I think Dietrich Bonhoeffer stance was that it was actually much more difficult. You know that uh, you know living a good Christian life or living, you know, according to the will of God was not just something that you could do. It was a lifestyle. It was something that you had to spend your whole life working on. And um, I think that's sort of how I feel about you know when I when I I feel like when I hear a lot of you know sort of social progressives or liberals or social justice warriors they speak as if they have everything figured out you know and whether they're and there's it's there's something there's something just so self-congratulatory about the way that they're speaking and the self-certainty that they speak with that it really seems to me like they think they have it figured out i mean a lot of their tone is it's so simple to be good why don't more people do it and actually it's not that 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 is a sentiment that a sentiment that I disagree with necessarily, but they seem so certain that they're good people. And for me, there's something, there's something odious about the way that they act. You know, I've talked about the time that I spent with the Mormons in the past where they're just sort of walking down the hallway, pointing at each other, saying the church is true. The church is true. The church is true. <clears throat> you know, and they're just sort of saying the right things to sort of, to sort of posture themselves as sort of good Mormons to each other, you know? And every time they give their testimony, they weep and they cry and they say all the right things, but there's something so performative about all of it, you know? I feel the same way when I hear a lot of people on the left talk, you know, when they talk about social issues or whatever. I go, you're saying the right words, but it's, it's not, it just feels fucking false to me. It's like hearing a politician talk. You know, they're saying all the right things, but it's like, you know, when you watch a politician speak, I'm just fucking incredulous that there's an arena full of people who are clapping at these statements. You know, and it's not that they don't, it's not that they, maybe they necessarily don't, don't believe in what they're saying, but it's certainly, they're not, you know, everything, they're just reading off a fucking teleprompter, you know, and the fucking just sea of, uh, they're like seals just, or, 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 just clapping in the audience. I don't know. I'm embarrassed for these people and I don't know why I feel that way. <clears throat> I'm embarrassed for the person speaking and I'm, and I'm embarrassed for the people just sort of clapping along. You know, I feel like they're getting played like a goddamn fiddle. And I see the same thing play out on social media. I see the same thing play out in the media and in the press. You know, I say everything that people are sort of pretending is, uh, I don't know. Honestly, as I talk about it, I start telling myself to shut the fuck up. Because the minute I start talking about this stuff, I just, I wish I never would have brought it up. One, because I don't know how to defend my own, like, stance. You know, I always picture someone challenging me, and not not that anyone ever really does, but I, I'm always imagining someone challenging me on my position, and I, I don't have a defense for myself. So, so, you know, I don't really know what to say. But, um, but, uh, yeah, I don't know. I always regret bringing it up. But I think in a way that's kind of what I'm talking about, like with the whole religious, you know, the reason I always bring in, um, Sorry. <clears throat> the reason I always bring up this idea of this sort of um, cult mentality or um, um, religious mentality. You know, when people leave a group like the Mormons or Scientology or anything, they always ask them, they say, did you really believe that stuff? And they say, well, no, I never really believed it, but everyone around me seemed so certain of it. I thought there was something wrong with me that I didn't believe. You know, so I just said the right things. But meanwhile, everybody's feeling that way. It's like no, no single person believes, but everybody's pretending to believe so much that everybody else just plays along. 
and anytime someone does dare to stand up and sort of you know voice their skepticism they get fucking skewered for it you know so nobody does it just sort of reinforces the sort of groupthink mentality right um so even as i'm saying this i'm I'm being honest about how i feel i mean this is this is genuinely my experience this is what i think and feel as i go through the world You know, and I hear people saying all the right words, but, you know, the the only thing that I see, like, the only thing I really feel when I hear them talk is I just hear cheap grace. You know, what a cheap path to virtue. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, and there's something insidious about it, too. Like, I, I feel like it's, it's the, you know, saying the right words and you know, saying these certain magic words is sort of like an incantation or something. It, like there's, it actually masks a lot of bad behavior, I feel like. Um, for some reason, I'm thinking about male feminists. You know, it's, it maybe it's actually a, pretty, a good example because, you know, if you were to ask me, I would say, yes, I think all men should be feminists. But there's something about the men who actually stand forward and, and sort of self-stylize themselves or, you know, they, they call themselves male feminists. They actually seem phenomenally creepy to me. You know, women will say the patriarchy runs deep and I think, oh, you fucking bet your ass it does. <clears throat> There's something about these fucking male feminists that actually seem like the, like the creepy people, <laughs> you know? It's some sort of Jedi level, uh, male chauvinism or, or, uh, uh, a Jedi level patriarchy is the sort of male feminist, you know? They're actually using their feminist ideals to uh, ingratiate themselves with women. It's sort of funny how that works, huh? But again, as I'm talking about it, I'm telling myself, shut up, shut up, shut up. I have two thoughts now as I'm thinking about just sort of being topical and talking about current events. Um, I guess, uh, well, I'll just, yeah, I don't know. I've been watching uh, Watchmen on HBO. I actually just finished the first season yesterday. Um, I started watching it before I left for the Pacific Northwest and just sort of wrapped it up since I've been home. And dude, it is so good. I think actually the first four episodes are great. Then it kind of hits a kind of weird point where you got to slog through the next three episodes or so. And then it ends pretty strongly. But um, it, it's I, I it, it's just a weird mix of both just being flat out entertaining, but also it engages with current events in, in, in sort of a, a, a deeper way than you're used to, and I think it's because it sort of comes at them not really. Well, I was gonna say it doesn't come it doesn't come head on, but in a way, it actually does. It probably. Yeah, I don't know how to describe it. Most most movies or television shows or whatever that try to deal with current events, I fucking roll my eyes at. Like, I've seen this trailer recently for this reboot of Party of Five, where it's, um, you know, some immigrant family who gets their... You know, the original Party of Five that aired, at least in the 90s when I was a kid, was about, like, this orphaned family. You know, I think there was, like, three or four siblings or whatever the fuck it is. And uh, actually, maybe it's, like, five siblings because it's called Party of Five. But... Um, these kids' parents die or something, and I, I don't remember they, how they had, how they die in the original show, but they're left by themselves. The eldest son has to sort of take custody of the kids and sort of raise them, whatever the fuck. Um, I forget the actor's name, but this is the guy who was eventually on Lost. Um, but now the new one is the parents are sort of deported because they're um, 
illegal immigrants and so who the fuck knows but you're watching the trailer and you just think this is so fucking bad not only does the acting look horrible the writing sounds fucking horrible and you can tell this is just a fucking cash grab to sort of you know uh pander to the liberal left and people are going to see the trailer and think oh this is a show you're supposed to like because it's topical and you know it's not challenging. It, it wants to be taken seriously. You know, it's a show that, you know, it's just some writer's room bullshit where they sat around and said, you know, what's a really hot button issue that we could really, um, you know, put our sights on and sort of make a show about and fucking God, dude, it looks so goddamn terrible. You know, and I, I just look at that and I just fucking cringe. You know, it's so cloying and it's so pandering and it just, God, it looks so fucking shitty, man. And I just think, what idiots look at this trailer and go, oh, this is for me? Because they're not fucking intelligent. I'll tell you that much right now. And uh, so, yeah, I, I think all I'm trying to say is it's so rare when you see something that's actually dealing with the types of issues that are going on in society and they handle it well. And Watchmen fucking does it perfectly. You know, and it's messy. It's not clean. Like, Party of Five was like, oh, dude, isn't this terrible? Like, I th- what was I talking about where you watch it and you go, so much shit is made now. It's not actually going to challenge your thinking. It's not going to deal with the messiness of the issues as they exist in the real world. I think I was talking about this in terms of Moonlight. Like, you're just supposed to watch it go, oh, yeah, this is awful. But, you're, it, but only if your fucking critical thinking faculties are turned the fuck off. You know, Moonlight is this sort of neutered, uh, story about a closeted homosexual living in the inner city, and you just think, this is fucking bullshit. This is the type of movie that people watch and go, oh yeah, this makes me feel great about how I, how I see the world. You know, it's not an actual depiction of anything. It's not like real art, you know what I'm saying? Um, and uh, and uh, that's what this fucking new Party of Five looks like. It's just completely fucking neutered. Um there's no nuance. There's the good guys and they're the bad guys. Do you know what I'm saying? <clears throat> but Watchmen's great. It shows, that, yeah, dude, the good guys are the bad guys and the bad guys are the good guys and who the fuck knows what's going on. And the murkier it is, the better the show works. And the more tangentially it engages with today's topics, the better it is. There's a couple times where it gets a little too fucking preachy, I think, in the middle part, where it tries to engage too directly with the, the, you know, the current events or whatever, and it actually becomes less entertaining. And I'm not sure what the takeaway is from that. Uh, maybe that's just a completely personal thing. But I experience it as just like an entertainment value thing. I go, oh, I think things are less entertaining when you try to engage with them directly. Like, maybe art is better at being abstracted. Like, I was talking about the movie The Square... There's no fucking moralizing or anything. It just sort of engages. It just, it's, you know what it does? It trusts you. It trusts that the audience is smart and that they're, they're connecting the dots for themselves. Ah, this is exactly what it is. <clears throat> the more you try to state your case or explain exactly what you're doing and why you're doing it, the less entertaining it is. When you watch something like The Square, it just trusts that you're smart and that you're putting two and two together and that you're connecting dots. And you're seeing how these things are related. It's just presenting itself. It's just existing as what it is. And it trusts that the audience is smart enough to connect dots. When you start sort of like breaking into these sort of interstitial monologues where you're sort of explaining to the audience how you want them to connect things with current events, it becomes less entertaining. And the perfect fucking example, I finally, I finally saw Joker. And I, I really wanted to like this movie. <clears throat> 
And first of all, it's actually not bad. I'd probably, honestly, I'll probably give it about a six out of 10. Five is just completely neutral. So it's not like six is like really a 60 and it's failing. It's okay. It's a little bit better than completely neutral. You know, it's kind of well shot. It's good production design. Joaquin Phoenix fucking kills it. I mean, he's, if anything else, you could say he's dedicated. You know, I think I was talking about The Master, the uh, Paul Thomas Anderson film with Philip Seymour Hoffman and Joaquin Phoenix on another episode. And Joaquin Phoenix is so fucking dedicated in that movie. And he actually kind of brings a lot of the same to the Joker performance. The parts where Joker sucks, because clearly it's, it's trying to be a topical film. And a lot of the, I think the criticism or the controversy about the film was I think people were worried that all the incels and the mass shooters of the fucking world right now are going to have a new folk hero to lionize, you know? It's about this guy who's sort of ostracized and, you know, it, I don't know. It tries to touch on mental health. It tries to touch on bullying. It tries to touch on, um, I don't know, marginalized masculinity. I don't, I don't know what the fuck you want to call it, but a guy who's sort of beat up, you know? And it's saying, like, if, if, if you did have someone who became a villain, what would have to actually happen to them for them to become the type of person that a comic book villain like Joker would be? And so they try to show you what that might look like. Um, the problem is, is it breaks into these... You know, I'm, I don't want to say spoiler alert, alert necessarily, but especially near the end, you know, Robert De Niro has this great cameo as this sort of late night host or whatever that um, um, Joker, Joaquin Phoenix's character, ends up being on this Tonight Show or whatever. And they enter into this fucking debate that would never fucking happen, especially based on a, on a, on a sort of reveal that happens like five seconds before. And it's just like the writer's wanted to state as like they they couldn't just trust that the audience understood that this was largely a topical movie that that it was dealing with current events even though it was a period piece it was dealing with fucking current events it basically like there's just no fucking subtlety do you know what i'm saying and uh i don't know it's like you hear the writer is already preemptively thinking about the critics and i don't know why i'm th- i don't know if this will make sense but i'm thinking about like when a president <laughs> when a president leaves office, they always write a biography. You know, they're sort of, they want to have the chance to sort of tell their own story. I don't know what you call it in terms of like writing their own history. Um, to, I don't know, canonize their own story for lack of a better term. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure what to call it necessarily, but um, you know, they're trying to create, they, they, they're trying to shape how their presidency will be experienced. Like that happens in art. Do you know what I'm saying? where it becomes a little, you know, the, the, the sort of, the narrative ends and there's these awkward moments where characters are given monologues that are basically telling the audience what, what the filmmakers want the takeaway of the film to be. You know, this, this is the summation of my character or this is the summation of the film. This is what we want you to take away from the goddamn movie. And not directly, obviously, but that's like the sense you get. And uh, it fucking just ruins shit, you know what I'm saying? And when you watch Joker, you think, oh, God, why couldn't they just trust the audience to be smart? You know, to put two and two together or, or, to, or to connect the dots. Why do they have to fucking try to serve me up on a platter what they want my takeaway from the movie to be? It's not art. And that's why Joker is, like, not a great film. You walk away, and, and it's, I guess because it feels just more, like, more... Um, polemicism or something if that's even a goddamn word i don't know but it it just felt like 
art is supposed to be something else, you know? It's supposed to be just cultural commentary. It's not supposed to be just another talking head. You know, someone else just throwing their fucking hat into the ring, their fucking two cents. Do you know what I'm saying? You know, whether it is or not, whether it is or not, art is supposed to be authoritarian, you know? It's supposed to say, here's the fucking truth. I don't know. There's something about that. It feels like an apology. Do you know what I'm saying? Does it, I don't know if that word makes sense. It's a. We're living in such a time now where everything and everything that everybody says and does is so dissected. It's it's everything's too self-aware. You know, I feel this in my own thinking all the time. I stop myself. You know, just a moment ago, I was talking about. Oh, but when I start talking about this, I want to stop myself. You know, you know, I want to qualify things that I say. I do it all the time. To cushion the blow of what I'm saying. I wish I could just say everything I think and feel without qualification. And just, you know, whether I'm right or wrong, just trust that's the truth. You know, I'm speaking from the heart. That's how I feel. Now, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe, maybe in the future I'll look back on this and, and you know, I'll fucking regret that I said it or whatever the fuck. But I, it's really how I feel. You know, and not that I'm immune to this, but... um you know, I'm not just parroting back some shit that I fucking read or heard or, um, you know, parroting back someone else's opinion as my own. I, I'm, I'm really just trying to speak from my own experience. And um, and I don't know, man. Maybe I sound fucking blowhardy or whatever, but that, that's what art is, you know? And, you know, when I, you know, I'm watching The Joker and all of a sudden they, I just feel these you know, uh, these monologues of characters where I feel like they're just anticipating the audience's response or they're just trying to, to tell the audience what they want their takeaway to be. I just think like, fuck man, that really takes me out of the story. You know, it dulls the effect of the film. It would have been a much more powerful film. if it just fucking told its own story and said, you fucking deal with it. I don't know. People just editorialize themselves, you know? I I do it. I mean, I I fucking do it all the time, unfortunately. I wish I didn't. But who knows? As, as, even as I say that, I'm thinking, you know, in a way, I think that's why Trump's been so successful. He's not concerned about fucking being understood by everybody. He speak. I mean, he's fucking crazy. But, you know, he just says what he says and, you know, lets the chips fall where they may. You know, yeah, and maybe for a politician, that's a horrible thing, right? Like, maybe that's where fucking... Um, um, you know, megalomaniacal dictators come from, but in art, maybe that's what maybe that's what art is supposed to be. It's supposed to be authoritarian. It's supposed to be dictatorial. Is that a word? <laughs> it's supposed to be a dictatorship. You know, here's my two hours. If it's a movie or a podcast, here's one hour. I'm just going to tell you exactly what I fucking feel and think, and I'm not going to qualify it. And you either you're either you're either in this fucking thing or you're not. 
You're either a part of this political party or you're not, dude. You're either on this varsity team or you're not. And if you're not, fuck off. And I was going to say, you know, and not apologizing. And it doesn't mean you have to stand by everything you say all the time. I mean, maybe, you know, I say something on this podcast that I disagree with later, so then I just say something else. But, um... Yeah, I don't do... I don't fucking know what we're talking about, man. I don't know why we get to where we get to sometimes. I came out with this song earlier in the year called The Dark. I guess what I'm thinking is there's a lyric in there where I say something like, I don't feel able like everyone... What does it say? I don't feel able like everyone claiming to have any answers at all. I'm just confused by everybody else's self-certainty. Everyone else seems, or at least acts like they have it all figured out, and I don't. I feel confused. And I know it should be... ah, All right, I don't know if this is going to make sense. There's something about Christianity... You know, there's something sort of naive, right? When you hear someone who's like a fundamentalist Christian, there's got to be something comforting when you see the world through a fucking keyhole like that, you know? When you decide what's true, what's real, or what's not, you just believe the the Bible's the word of God. Now, whether that's true or not, imagine how simple your life becomes. Is it true or is it false? Well, is it in the Bible? I'll just believe the literal word of the Bible, and that'll be my truth. I feel the same thing about fucking political parties right now, or whatever the whatever it is. It could be social issues. It could be whatever the moral issues, social moral issues of the day. People just talk as if they have everything figured out, and I'm just like, well, how are you so certain? Because to me, it seems muddy as fuck. Everything seems murky. Do you know what I'm saying? But people just have these fucking platitudes about life, or the way the world is, or what's good and what's bad, and who's right and who's wrong, and... I, dude, I just don't feel that way. I don't have any of that kind of certainty. Yeah, it's just very isolating to hear the liberal left and just think, you guys sound fucking nuts to me. Not that your hearts are in the wrong place. I think your hearts are in a better place than most of the, you know, certainly the religious right or the conservative right, certainly the alt-right. I mean, those guys are fucking crazy, too. If I had, I mean, if I had to side with anybody, it would be with the fucking left, for sure. But a lot of those guys sound fucking nuts to me, too. In a different way, but as equally nuts as the fucking right or the conservative right or the religious right or the alt-right. I just feel like everybody's fucking nuts. Dude, I feel like everybody's taking crazy pills and, uh... But the unsettling part is I don't know where to fucking land in spite of all that, you know? I just, I just feel like everybody's wrong. <laughs> and nobody has the goddamn answers. I, I certainly don't have the goddamn answers. I feel like it's just the blind leading the goddamn blind around here. And I don't know what the solution is. It, dude, it's like every political season, every time there's new fucking candidates for president, everybody says, oh, this is the person we need. It's going to be Bernie. It's going to be Barack Obama. It's going to be Andrew Yang. It's going to be whoever the fuck. And I just think, really? How the fuck are people so certain? Yeah, I don't know. I just don't know where people find the energy.
Oy, oy, oy. Damn, dude. Is this how we wanted to end this fucking four-hour marathon? With question marks, dude? Let's just chalk it up to me being sick. Let's just do that. You know, when I find myself in the middle of these podcasts, and I don't know what the fuck... I don't know. One, I don't know what I'm talking about. I also don't know where the fuck we're going to go. Um, or I feel lost or apprehensive. You know, I usually don't have an excuse, but let's just pretend it's because I'm sick. Let's just say my head's not screwed on straight today. And uh, if I'm talking nonsense, it's because I'm sick. I should be back to normal pretty soon. I am eager to fall into the next semester, though. Finished the last semester with straight A's, which is a good thing. I, I'm eager to get back into school. It's like when you're a kid, you, you know, when you, you'd spend all year in school and you'd be looking toward your summer break. And then like two weeks into your summer vacation, you know, you'd never admit it to anybody, but you kind of actually want school to start up again because you want the structure. That's kind of exactly how I feel. You know, I don't start, I still have like, uh, I think I still have like, th- like at least three weeks left of vacation. And I'm like, fuck, dude, I don't know what to do with myself. The only thing I can think of is the books I'm going to read. You know, I just finished reading Poor Folk by Dostoevsky. I got, so, I, I don't know, I, I finished this whole collection of his short fiction, and then I actually just got another one while we were in, uh, while we were in Seattle at this place. It's called Elliott Bay Bookstore in Capitol Hill. It's pretty cool. Although, my thing is, I, I, I usually only like to buy used books. Um, and they only have new books. But if you ever wanted to find kind of a cool bookstore in Seattle, go to Capitol Hill and look for Elliott Bay Books. Um, I got this collection. Uh, it's called Poor Folk and Other Stories, or whatever the fuck. But I'm reading that. I just finished Poor Folk, which was uh, Dostoevsky's first novel. But I'm going to finish this collection. Then I'm going to read The Idiot and hopefully read The Possessed before school starts. That's sort of my goal. Because <clears throat> I know once the semester starts, I'm not going to read for fun anymore. I'm going to go back to just doing schoolwork and stuff. So <sighs> I'd like to finish this collection and read The Idiot. That I'm pretty confident I can do before school starts. But I'd also like to read The Possessed, because then that would only leave uh, um, pretty much Brothers Karamazov, which I'll probably read this summer. I'm hoping that'll be my summer reading book after the semester ends. But, uh, yeah, man, I don't know what we're going to do this year. I mean, I, I finished my goals of 2019 of releasing one original song every month. And... Uh, I wish I could say we could continue it. I think I was promising that a lot last year. I said the music was going to continue, but I, I don't know how we're going to do that. I mean, unless it's me recording a bunch of old songs, um, that's going to be uh, that's going to be a hard thing to do. I mean, the podcast is going to keep going, no doubt. That's going to be easy. You know, I record those. Uh, it's very easy for me to continue doing the podcast for sure. That'll be coming out weekly, no doubt. But in terms of music, I don't know. I don't know if the smart move is to take a year to write i don't know it's hard because i've been telling myself you know since i'm going back to school and sort of seriously considering doing something else with my life it's supposed to be liberating you know i'm not supposed to be thinking about what's going to quote work in terms of my career but you know i think about spotify i think about the algorithm i think what's gonna you know keep my audience up or keep my streams up and i'm I've just decided that that's releasing music constantly. And so uh, there's a part of me that says, well, maybe I should just take the year to write. But that seems scary, man. That seems like a scary thing for me to embrace. I'm worried that it'll affect my streaming numbers or, um, you know, my audience will diminish. 
but uh, but I don't know. I'm not, I'm not supposed to be caring about that stuff, right? I'm supposed to be doing just what I want to do. And so even though, I guess what I'm worried about is I'm thinking, well, you just got to keep writing. But I, dude, I haven't been writing. And I don't really feel compelled to write. And uh, I think I was saying, dude, probably a lot of it, probably, dude, probably like 10 episodes ago or so, but I was saying, you know, I don't really feel, you know, whatever the mechanism of my, where the songs come from, whatever that mechanism is, is slowing down. You know, the thing I'm the most excited about doing right now is the podcast. I mean, it sounds like a stupid thing to be saying when I'm in the middle of an episode that I'm not sure is going very well, because then I feel fucking crazy. But overall, the thing I'm the most excited about doing is the podcast, for sure. <clears throat> and that feels like the easiest thing to sort of keep keep doing. So, I mean, that's going so that, to, I mean, that, that sort of takes care of itself. But at the same time, feeling obligated is maybe the word. I feel obligated to keep releasing music, um, knowing that there's, you know, maybe not tons of people, but there are people out there who want me to keep releasing music and feeling like I, I don't, I don't know that I have the energy to do that. You know, let alone the time. I mean, between school and work and, you know, writing is a big process. And, uh, you know, like I said, I feel like I have one song left in me right now that could be written. And, uh, but I've been fucking marinating on that for like two months now. And I, I, it's like, I just can't bring myself to, to, to make the time to write it. And after that, it's like I have, um, you know, like I said, I, I get, there, there are songs that could be written, but I don't feel, it doesn't feel inspired. You know what I mean? You know, the, the wellspring of songs, is, I feel like it's kind of dried up. You know, and, and it's not like that never gets replenished, but right now I, I don't really, you know. I don't know where that's going to come from, you know. <laughs> I mean, right now, the two most exciting things for me to do are read Dostoevsky or read books in general and uh, do the podcast. I wish I could just do that all the time. <sighs> yeah, otherwise, watch Watchmen. It's pretty good. I remember, um, I normally hate fucking comic book movies. I hate all that shit. But I remember I watched the movie Watchmen when it came out and I said, oh, this is actually pretty goddamn good. And I was talking in another episode about getting hit with the spirit. I was watching, I think I watched it maybe, I've probably seen that movie like three times probably. And I remember seeing it going, oh dude, this is the real goddamn deal. I mean, even Christopher Nolan's fucking Batman movies, that movie, those movies came out and everybody was losing their shit over them. They're Okay. You know, they're good in that Christopher Nolan sense. Like, they look good. They have goal production design. But, dude, none of them are even half as good as Inception, which to me is, like, one of the best, like, blockbuster movies of the last, like, who knows how many fucking years. I was going to say 10 years, but, dude, that movie's probably, like, 12 years old, which is fucking crazy. That movie probably came out in, like, 2006 or seven or something like that. 2008? Dude, that's fucking nuts. I was going to say one of the best blockbusters of the last decade, dude, but it's probably over 10 years old. But that movie is fucking awesome. None of the Batman movies are as good as that. Even fucking Batman, or even uh, The Dark Knight with fucking Heath Ledger. Like, it's okay. Heath Ledger's good. But is that a great movie? No, it's fucking overlong and weird, and the whole fucking Two-Face villain is completely shoehorned in there. And uh, Batman Begins, it was like, what the fuck? 
That was not a great movie. And then fucking uh, Dark Knight Rises. Was that the fucking Bane movie? Like, okay. It was aight. <clears throat> but actually, Christopher Nolan has a new movie coming out. I forget what it's called. Tan- not Tantrum. What the fuck is it called? Tandem or something like that. I don't know, man. Of course, it looks uh, intriguing. You know, you watch the trailer and you're like, I don't know what the fuck's going on. But it has something to do with time moving forward and backward at the same time or something like that. Very Christopher Nolan. Yeah. <clears throat> you know what I got to rewatch? I got to rewatch Memento, dude. I haven't seen that movie in a minute. I know we've talked about it here on the podcast, but I probably haven't seen it. You know, I, pro- I don't know. Who the fuck knows, dude? I'm really just rambling. I'm like looking at the time here and I go, eh. We got about 10 minutes here before I hit an hour. So let me just fucking ramble as long as I can to sort of run the clock out. When really maybe what I should do is have the creative confidence just for to stop it and say, fuck it, I'm out of things to say. Let's just end it here. So maybe I'll do that. Um, yeah, dude, fuck it. Who gives a shit? So this is it. We're wrapping up. Thanks for tuning in for this uh, four-hour Super Mega Mix Marathon episode. Um... Did we end strongly? Probably not. Uh, but uh, it was like a marathon, wasn't it? We're crossing the finish line, and yeah, I'm tired, and I'm under the weather, but we did it. So, uh, you know, you're troopers for sitting through the whole thing. And uh, when we start the next episode, we're going to be coming. We're going to be coming back strong. So, um, you know, if you've been listening to this podcast since the very beginning, since it started, thanks, thanks a bunch. Um, like I said, I, I've gotten a few messages from people who said, well, look, the, the whole reason I started this podcast is because, you know, I was listening to a lot of podcasts that were fucking, you know, really inspiring me. And I think my favorite part about it was I was always like connecting and listening in with somebody. If Dude, if, when, I, when I find a podcast that I like, it's like, it's like finding a new friend. And I just like spending time with that person, you know, and I just like being in their headspace, you know, and hearing their take on certain things. And, uh, you know, I'm not pretending this is going to be for everybody, but, you know, if you like the podcast and you're fucking digging, just sort of getting together with me and talking, that's what I want. You know, I don't want to have a bunch of guests. I don't want to fucking interview people. Um, not that I would never want to do that. But that's, uh, you know, if, if really, you know, me getting a, a podcast episode together was about finding someone to talk to and, in, and interviewing them, dude, it, I would be fucking done with it by now for sure. So, uh, you know, the fact that I just get to sit down stream of consciousness, just sort of speak my mind. Um, that's really what I want to do. That's the, uh, that's the skill set I want to develop, you know, uh, just sort of, uh, press record, talk through an hour and just fucking put it up. Um, so if you've been enjoying it so far, um, thanks so much for listening. It means a lot. Um, uh, I'm trying to think if there's any special, you know, thanks I want to give out, uh, here at the end of, uh, here at the end of the the official end of the 2019 episodes. I know I said my buddy Matt Evans was the MVP of last year. Uh, God damn, dude. He's such a good guy. He actually opened his place to me in Portland. Uh, he and his wife bought a place in Portland. And uh, when I was there with my girlfriend, I, I would spend the day with her and her family. And then at night I would go retreat to his place and sort of pass out and sleep. Um, so he was kind enough to open his house to me while he was out of town. So... Um, thanks Matt. Thanks Matt Evans for, uh, uh, being a good friend and supporting me, uh, in my life and in the podcast and in the music. 
And uh, if you want to check out Matt Evans' music, you can. You can find his band, Reddening West, uh, on Spotify. And he, uh, he had a, a earlier project, too, you can check out, called Sleepy Holler. And uh, check out Matt, Matt's music and let him know who sent you. And uh, otherwise, I want to thank you. I want to thank you for listening and, uh, and supporting the podcast. Uh, if you haven't already and you want to subscribe to the podcast, you can on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, uh, Google Play, Stitcher, and uh, if you want to connect with my socials, you can at this is MXOXO. And if you want to share the podcast, please do. Think of one person in your life who you think would uh, like the podcast and uh, share your favorite episode with them and encourage them to listen and subscribe as well. Otherwise, thanks for listening, babies. And uh, we'll be back with the next full length episode, the first official full length episode of 2020 uh, next week. Uh, thanks for listening. Appreciate your time and ciao for now.